Chapter 1 Strict Liability versus Negligence Underscore 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 Introduction Tort Rules Come in Two Types, Fault-Based Rules and Strict Liability Rules. Many accident-producing activities exist, such as driving cars, owning reservoirs, running trains, to mention only a few. Some of these activities are governed by the rule of negligence, the most important fault-based rule, others by the rule of strict liability. A major tort problem the focus of this chapter is how to sort different types of activities between the two liability rules, which are governed by negligence and which by strict liability. Here is why it makes a difference. Suppose a railroad train accidentally sets fire to an adjacent farmer's land. If liability were strict, which it is not, the farmer would have to show only that sparks from the defendant's locomotive set the fire. When the rule is negligence, as it actually is, the farmer must show that the fire was caused by the railroad's negligence, not just by the railroad's act of running the train. For accidents falling under the rule of negligence, the railroad need not pay damages unless it behaved negligently. Some people have trouble imagining accidents not caused by someone's negligence or other fault. Nonetheless, steam locomotives with the best available equipment can still start fires. When the railroad has used reasonable precaution, and a fire has started anyway, the courts have held the railroad immune. In this situation, the only way that the railroad could be liable is if the rule were strict liability, which it is not. Von V. Tafvale Re 157 ENG Republic 1351, EXCHCH 1860, Rev. G. 157 ENG Republic 667, EXCH 1858, the plaintiff, whose woods were burned by the defendant's train, alleged that the defendant had negligently operated and maintained its locomotive. The trial was before Bramwell, B., at the Glamorganshire Spring Assizes. When the fire was discovered in the plaintiff's woods, several of the defendant's trains had recently passed. The fire started in the bank next to the tracks and spread from there into the woods. Before this fire, the plaintiff had written a complaint to the railroad, no fire was known copyright 2019 Mark F. Grady 2 Strict Liability versus Negligence CH1 in the memory of man in the wood before the Aberdeer Railway was made. Since it has been made, four or five times the wood has been ignited. Anyone looking at it can easily satisfy himself that in a dry season the wood is in just about as safe a state as a barrel of gunpowder at Seifarth for rolling mill. The evidence at trial indicated that the plaintiff had taken no steps to clear away the accumulation of dry grass and fallen branches in his woods. The defendant's evidence, on the other hand, showed that the railroad had taken every reasonable precaution to prevent its engines from emitting sparks. The defendant's counsel submitted that there was no negligence on the part of the railroad. Nonetheless, Bramwell, B., instructed the jury that he would be prepared to decide that the defendant was liable, and he directed that if to serve his own purposes a man does a dangerous thing, whether he takes precautions or not, and mischief ensues, he must bear the consequences, that running engines which cast forth sparks is a thing intrinsically dangerous, and that if a railway engine is used, 
which in spite of the utmost care and skill on the part of the company and their servants is dangerous, the owners must pay for any damage occasioned thereby. The defendant objected to this instruction because it effectively charged that the defendant was strictly liable. Although the defendant requested him to do so, Baron Bramwell refused to ask the jury whether the plaintiff had been guilty of contributory negligence by failing to clear his woods of brush. The jury returned a verdict for the plaintiff. On appeal the Court of Exchequer, per Bramwell, b, held that the evidence had been sufficient to uphold the verdict and that the jury had not been misinstructed. The defendant then appealed to the Court of Exchequer Chamber. The issues were whether the trial court had erred in instructing that the defendant was strictly liable and in refusing to instruct that the plaintiff's contributory negligence would bar his recovery. Coburn, CJ- We are all of the opinion that the decision of the Court of Exchequer cannot be upheld, and that the case must go down for a new trial. I collect, from the reasons given by my brother Bramwell in delivering the judgment of the Court of Exchequer, that the ground upon which that court discharged the rule was this dash whereas accidents occasionally arise from the use of fire as means of propelling locomotive engines on railways, the happening of such accidents must be taken to be the natural and necessary use of fire for that purpose, and, therefore, railway companies, by using fire, are responsible for any accident which may result from its use, although they have taken every precaution in their power. So far as I can gather from the language of the judgment, that is the view taken by the court of the law applicable. I cannot adopt that view, it is at variance with the principle on CH1 strict liability versus negligence 3 which the court of Queen's Bench proceeded in the case of Rex VPs, 4B. And at all. 30, which we are prepared to uphold. Although it may be true, that if a person keeps an animal of known dangerous propensities, or a dangerous instrument, he will be responsible to those who are thereby injured, independently of any negligence in the mode of dealing with the animal or using the instrument, yet, when the legislature has sanctioned and authorized the use of a particular thing, and it is used for the purpose for which it was authorized, and every precaution has been observed to prevent injury, the sanction of the legislature carries with it this consequence, that if damage results from the use of such thing independently of negligence, the party using it is not responsible. It is consistent with policy and justice that it should be so, and for this reason, I think the judgment of the court below is wrong. It is admitted that the defendant used fire for the purpose of propelling locomotive engines, and no doubt they were bound to take proper precaution to prevent injury to persons through whose lands they passed, but the mere use of fire in such engines does not make them liable for injury resulting from such use without any negligence on their part. The question of negligence, was improperly withdrawn from the jury. It may be that the plaintiff is entitled to succeed, or it may be that the mischief arose from the sparks not being carried to the bank but directly to the wood, which was of a combustible nature, in which case the defendants would not be liable. Notes 1 Remember the main objective. Are fires governed by the rule of strict liability or by negligence? In other words, after the Taft Vale recase, suppose a train starts a farmer's land on fire and that the railroad was using all reasonable precaution, spark arrestor, etc. Can the farmer recover damages? To the procedural issue. 
what was the procedural issue when the Taft Vale case came up on appeal to the Court of Exchequer Chamber. The jurisdiction of an appeals court, like Exchequer Chamber, is generally limited to correcting errors at trial. What error did the Exchequer Chamber find that the trial court, Baron Bramwell, had committed? Why, given this error, could the jury verdict not be accepted? What substantive principle of tort law was implied by the procedural error that the Exchequer Chamber found? 3. Internalizing costs In a case decided after Von V. Tafvale re, but not involving a railroad fire, Baron Bramwell restated his argument for strict liability, for strict liability versus negligence ch1 the public consists of all the individuals in it, and a thing is only for the public benefit when it is productive of good to those individuals on the balance of loss and gain to all. So that if all the loss and all the gain were borne and received by one individual he, on the whole, would be a gainer. But whenever this is the case whenever a thing is for the public benefit, properly understood the loss to the individuals of the public who lose will bear compensation out of the gains of those who gain. It is for the public benefit that there should be railways, but it would not be unless the gain of having the railway was sufficient to compensate the loss occasioned by the use of the land required for its site, and accordingly, no one thinks it would be right to take an individual's land without compensation, to make a railway. It is for the public benefit that trains should run, but not unless they pay their expenses. If one of these expenses is the burning down of a wood of such value that the railway owners would not run the train and burn down the wood if it were their own, neither is it for the public benefit that they should if the wood is not their own. If, though the wood were their own, they still would find it compensated them to run trains at the cost of burning the wood, then they obviously ought to compensate the owner of such wood, not being themselves, if they burn it down in making their gains. So in like way in this case a money value indeed cannot easily be put on the plaintiff's loss, but it is equal to some number of pounds or pence, 10 pounds, 50 pounds, or what not, unless the defendant's profits are enough to compensate this, I deny that it is for the public benefit he should do what he has done, if they are, he ought to compensate. Bramwell, B., in Bamford v. Turnley, 122 ENG Republic 27, 33, AXCHCH 1862, Rev G, 122 ENG Republic 25, KB 1860. If you find Bramwell's argument convincing, can you nonetheless think of reasons why the Court of Exchequer Chamber refused to follow his views? For a fuller description of Baron Bramwell's views, see Atiyah, Liability for Railway Nuisance in the English Common Law, a historical footnote, 23 JL. An Econ. 191, 1980. There are some modern themes in Bramwell's thinking. One is the idea of Caldor Hicks efficiency, named for two economists. This theory posits that an activity or social policy is good if the winners get enough from it to be able to compensate the losers, but not otherwise. In different words, a social policy is good if it increases social wealth has greater benefits than costs aggregated over all members of society. For the behavior of the vertically integrated firm. Another modern idea in the Bramwell passage, quoted super at P4, 
is that we can judge CH1 strict liability versus negligence 5 whether an activity is efficient by imagining that all its beneficial and harmful effects are captured by one firm and by then asking whether that firm would behave differently than the defendant behaved. If one farmer owned all the farmland through which a railroad passed together with the railroad itself, what would happen? Would that one farmer run the railroad in the same way that the current owners do? If so, an economist would say that the railroad's current operations were economically efficient. 5. Field Burning In Coos v. Roth, 652p.2d1255, or 1982, the defendant was engaged in the commercial production of grass seed in central Oregon. After the grass seed was harvested, the defendant and a crew equipped with mobile water tanks burned the field by setting fire to dry straw. They had already plowed a protective strip around the perimeter. While the defendant's field was being burned, the plaintiff's adjoining field accidentally caught fire, causing damage to real and personal property stipulated at $8,017. Although no one testified to seeing how the fire on the plaintiff's property started, the witnesses agreed that probably a whirlwind carried burning material from the defendant's field onto the plaintiff's property. In central Oregon, where grass seed was grown, field burning used to be common. The purpose was to make potash, which improved the next year's crop. The plaintiff's complaint had negligence, trespass, and strict liability counts. At the close of evidence, the plaintiffs moved for a directed verdict on their strict liability count. The defendant moved for a directed verdict on all counts. The trial court denied the plaintiff's motion and granted the defendant's motion. The trial court's determination thus implied that strict liability was unavailable to the plaintiffs on the facts of this case and that the evidence of the defendant's negligence was insufficient to go to the jury. The plaintiffs appealed. On appeal the plaintiffs abandoned their negligence count and argued only that it was error for the trial court to have refused to direct a verdict for them on their strict liability count. Held, for the plaintiffs that the trial court erred in failing to direct a verdict for them on their strict liability count. The Oregon Supreme Court stressed that a large amount of risk existed even after the defendant had used due care. At trial, the local fire chief had testified that fire spread beyond the field intentionally burned in one fire in eight, and he did not attribute this high percentage to a lack of care. Although field burning was relatively common in the area, the court said it was not a matter of common usage, because it was not an ordinary activity that many people routinely expect to do for themselves, like domestic six strict liability versus negligence CH1 fires, or to have done for them, like the distribution of water, gas, electricity, and other common goods. What is the relationship between Coos v. Roth and Von v. Tafvale re, Supra at P1? What is the distinction between the cases? Was the Coos defendant's activity less common? 6. How much liability exists? When liability exists, damages are the same under the rules of strict liability and negligence. Nonetheless, before there is an accident an actor's expected liability is larger under strict liability. It is possible for the railroad to start fires even when it has used all reasonable precautions and has thus purged itself of negligence. If the railroad were strictly liable, its expected liability would be larger than under a negligence rule, because the railroad would be liable for harms that due care would not prevent. 
Notice that in Coos v. Roth the court took the issue of liability away from the jury by directing a verdict for the plaintiffs on strict liability. When we examine negligence law, we will see that directed verdicts for plaintiffs on negligence are rare. Directed verdicts for defendants in negligence cases are comparatively common. Moreover, the courts have given juries broad powers to forgive negligence, even obvious negligence like a surgeon leaving a sponge in a patient. A major benefit of strict liability for plaintiffs is that it allows them to avoid jury forgiveness. In the modern period courts more often give the issue of strict liability to juries, especially in marginal strict liability cases, but still strict liability is more likely to be decided as a matter of law by judges than is negligence liability. This is an additional reason why expected liability is greater under strict liability than under the negligence rule. With strict liability there is less forgiveness of the defendant's behavior, which is the main reason defense attorneys don't like it. 7. Popcorn Box Burning In Boynton v. Fox Denver Theaters, Inc., 214p.2d793, Colorado 1950, the plaintiff owned a garage that was practically next door to the defendant's movie theater. For about a year, the defendant's employees had burned the theater trash, such as empty popcorn containers, in metal drums in the back alley. On the day in question, the fire spread from the burning metal drums to the plaintiff's garage, causing the damage complained of. The plaintiff sued on theories of nuisance and negligence. The trial court dismissed the nuisance count and submitted the case to the jury on a negligence instruction. The trial court told the jury that it should find for the plaintiff only if it found that the defendant's employees had been negligent when they burned the trash. The jury returned a verdict for the defendant. The plaintiff appealed on the ground that the trial court CH1 strict liability versus negligence 7 erred in dismissing the nuisance count, which alleged only that the damage to the plaintiff's property was caused by a fire that the defendant's employees had intentionally started. Held, for the defendant, that the trial court did not err in dismissing the nuisance claim, because proof of negligence was required to justify a recovery in this type of action. What is the relationship between Boynton v. Fox Denver Theaters, Inc., and Coos v. Roth, Super at P5? What is the superficial similarity between them? Were they both intentionally set fires? What is the distinction between the two cases? Did the Boynton activity create a low risk of unavoidable harm, whereas the Coos activity created a high risk of unavoidable harm? Unavoidable harm is the harm that remains after all reasonable precautions have been used. 8. Moral Hazard In Taftvale Rehu was responsible for the fact that the plaintiff's woods were in a condition about as safe as a barrel of gunpowder at Seifarth for rolling mill? Was it partly the plaintiff? Suppose the railroad is strictly liable for all fires. Would this type of liability discourage the farmer from taking reasonable precautions? Suppose the cheapest way to prevent fires is for the farmer to use a $10 precaution, clearing the weeds off his land every year, and for the railroad to use a $50 precaution, using a medium-grade spark arrester. On the other hand, if the farmer does not clear the weeds, equal fire safety could be purchased only if the railroad used a $200 precaution. If strict liability were the rule, would the farmer use any precaution? Will the negligence rule induce the farmer to use precaution? 
Does the answer depend on whether the farmer will be barred from recovery if he is found to have been contributorily negligent? Some economists have argued that a negligence rule without a contributory negligence defense also induces victims to use precaution. See John P. Brown, Toward an Economic Theory of Liability, 2J Legal Stud. 323, 1973. Can you see how negligence would encourage victim precaution more than would strict liability? What happens when the railroad is non-negligent but the farmer has omitted a valuable precaution? Who bears the cost of the farmer's negligence in this situation? Moral hazard was originally an insurance term that referred to the proclivity of insured people to reduce their precaution levels because they are insured. Now economists use the same words to describe how a liability rule can induce potential victims to use too little precaution. Can you think of the various methods that insurance companies use to control moral hazard? Are deductibles one such method? 8. Strict liability versus negligence CH19. Does tort law deter? Economists assume that tort liability causes people to use more precaution. Do you think tort has any effect on people's precaution levels? Traditional legal realists doubted that tort liability induced greater precaution. Here is a classic statement of this position, the fact is that we have come to realize that a certain spate of accidents is inevitable, and that reduction of their number in a society which conducts itself as ours does can be and is influenced more by other pressures or programs than by the law of torts. That does not mean that the standards of conduct laid down by the law of torts are unimportant. Of course they are important, most people try to live up to them, when they know what the standards are. When a rule is laid down inflexibly, as that for stopping at red traffic lights, it is generally known and obeyed. But when the relevant rule is that an auto driver or an occupier of premises should use due care under the circumstances he needs some other guide than the rule of law to determine what his conduct should be in any particular situation. He might find a guide in the language of an appellate decision affirming a jury verdict on a somewhat similar set of facts occurring some years previously in another part of the state, but again he might not. Besides, he doesn't have a copy of the opinion before him at the moment, and it is couched in the sort of well-considered judicial phraseology that needs to be studied carefully in order to be understood. And we have never encouraged truck drivers to study judicial opinions anyway. We know very well that conduct in such situations is controlled by the actor's own judgment as to what will prevent unpleasant injury to himself and his neighbor, and this judgment will be conditioned by the experience and training in safety practices to which he has been subjected. Robert A. Leffler, Negligence in Name Only, 27 NYUL Revelation 564, 576 577, 1952. Legal realism was a school of legal scholars that started at Yale Law School in the 1920s. Their realism was that legal case results depended on policy and even politics. They also proposed to find legal answers in the social sciences, except for economics, which was experiencing a dormant period in the 1920s. The newer field of law and economics added economics to the mix, and often criticizes the more traditional legal realist analyses. Most legal realists, like Professor Leffler, thought that the purpose of tort was merely to compensate victims. Moreover, when the realists looked at the negligence system to see how well it served this supposed objective, 
they found that it was horribly inefficient. Hence, in the 1960s and 1970s realist scholars recommended that states abolish their tort CH1 strict liability versus negligence 9 systems, especially in the area of automobile accidents, and substitute no-fault plans, which pay money to victims independently of fault by either party. Some states and Canadian provinces followed this recommendation. For a careful analysis of the results, see Michael J. Trebilkic, Incentive Issues in the Design of No-Fault Compensation Systems, 39U Toronto LJ 19, 1989. Under a radical no-fault compensation system, nothing depends on fault. Thus, drivers pay a fixed amount of insurance, and draw out according to the number of injuries that they receive. A safe driver on average will draw out little, a dangerous driver will draw out a lot. An economist would predict that such systems would increase the number of accidents. Legal realists would predict little or no effect on the number of accidents. Mark Gaudry conducted a multivariate analysis of accident and fatality rates in Quebec before and after the adoption of a pure no-fault automobile insurance scheme in 1978. Mark Gaudry, the effects on road safety of the compulsory insurance, flat premium rating and no-fault features of the 1978 Quebec Automobile Act Appendix to Report of the Inquiry into Motor Vehicle Accident Compensation in Ontario. He found that bodily injury accidents increased by 26.3% a year after the adoption of the scheme and fatalities increased by 6.8%, equivalent to 100 additional deaths a year. Rose and Devlin, in a more detailed analysis of the Quebec experience, reached even more striking conclusions than Gaudry. See Rose and Devlin, Liability versus No-Fault Automobile Insurance Regimes, an analysis of Quebec's experience, paper presented at the Canadian Economics Association meeting, Windsor, Ontario, June 3, 1988, described in Michael J. Trebilkic, Incentive Issues in the Design of No-Fault Compensation Systems, 39U Toronto LJ19, 1989. Devlin found that the adoption of the no-fault regime in Quebec led to more high-risk and fewer lower-risk drivers on Quebec highways, which just for this reason accounted for a small increase, 1 or 2 percent, in fatalities. More importantly, she found that average care levels fell substantially after the introduction of no-fault, resulting in 9.6 percent increase in fatal accidents, or 154 more deaths a year. She concluded that a liability system for automobile accidents which operates in the presence of liability insurance still provides incentives for more prudent driving than does a no-fault system with insurance. Furthermore, the tying of insurance premiums to driving behavior is essential if one wants individuals to exercise more care when driving. Evidence also exists that the tort system reduces medical errors. Toshiaki Izuka has recently found that increasing joint liability, which expands physician accountability, reduces medical errors and 10 strict liability versus negligence CH1 that tort reforms that limit physician tort liability correspondingly increase medical errors. See his article, Does Higher Malpractice Pressure Deter Medical Errors, 56J Law and Econ. 161188, 2013. Other empirical researchers have found that traditional tort liability, as compared to more limited reform tort liability improves obstetric outcomes. See Janet Curry and Bentley W. McLeod, 
first do no harm. Tort Reform and Birth Outcomes, 123 Quarterly Journal of Economics 795830, 2008. Medical errors are one of the leading causes of death and injury in the United States. According to the Institute of Medicine, between 44,000 and 98,000 people die each year as a result of medical errors. This number exceeds that of those who die as a result of highway accidents, breast cancer, or AIDS. See Institute of Medicine, To Air is Human, Building a Safer Health System, 2000. Gil v. Swan 19 Johns. 381, NY 1822, in error, on certiorari, to the Justices Court in the City of New York. Swan sued Gill in the Justices Court, in an action of trespass, for entering his clothes, and treading down his roots and vegetables, etc. in a garden in the City of New York. The facts were that Gill ascended in a balloon in the vicinity of Swan's garden and descended into his garden. When he descended, his body was hanging out of the car of the balloon in a very perilous situation, and he called to a person at work in Swan's field, to help him, in a voice audible to the pursuing crowd. After the balloon descended, it dragged along over potatoes and radishes, about 30 feet, when Gill was taken out. The balloon was carried to a barn at the farther end of the premises. When the balloon descended, more than 200 persons broke into Swan's garden through the fences, and came on his premises, beating down his vegetables and flowers. The damage done by Gill, with his balloon, was about $15, but the crowd did much more damage. The plaintiff's total damages amounted to $90. It was contended before the trial court, the justice, that Gill was answerable only for the damage done by himself, and not for the damage done by the crowd. The justice was of the opinion, and so instructed the jury, that the defendant was answerable for all the damages done to the plaintiff. The jury, accordingly, found a verdict for him, for $90, on which the judgment was given, and for costs. The defendant appealed to the New York Supreme Court. Spencer, CHJ The counsel for the plaintiff in error the defendant in the trial court supposes, that the injury committed by his client was involuntary, and that done by the crowd was voluntary, and that, therefore, there was no union of intent, and that upon the same CH1 strict liability versus negligence 11 principle which would render Gill answerable for the acts of the crowd, in treading down and destroying the vegetables and flowers of S, he would be responsible for a battery, or a murder committed on the owner of the premises. The intent with which an act is done, is by no means the test of the liability of a party to an action of trespass. If the act caused the immediate injury, whether it was intentional, or unintentional, trespass is the proper action to redress the wrong. It was so decided, upon a review of all the cases, in Percival v. Hickey. 18 Johns. Republic 257. Where an immediate act is done by the CO operation, or the joint act of several persons, they are all trespassers, and may be sued jointly or severally, and any one of them is liable for the injury done by all. To render one man liable in trespass for the acts of others, it must appear, either that they acted in concert, or that the act of the individual sought to be charged, ordinarily and naturally, produced the acts of the others. 
The Case of Scott v. Shepard, 2 Black. Republic 892, is a strong instance of the responsibility of an individual who was the first, though not the immediate, agent in producing an injury. Shepard threw a lighted squib, composed of gunpowder, into a market house, where a large concourse of people were assembled, it fell on the standing of Y, and to prevent injury, it was thrown off his standing, across the market, when it fell on another standing, from thence, to save the goods of the owner, it was thrown to another part of the market house, and in so throwing it, it struck the plaintiff in the face, and, bursting, put out one of his eyes. It was decided, by the opinions of three judges against one, that Shepard was answerable in an action of trespass and assault and battery. De Grey, C.H.J., held, that throwing the squib was an unlawful act, and that whatever mischief followed, the person throwing it was the author of the mischief. All that was done subsequent to the original throwing, was a continuation of the first force and first act. Any innocent person removing the danger from himself was justifiable, the blame lights upon the first thrower, the new direction and new force, flow out of the first force. He laid it down as a principle, that everyone who does an unlawful act, is considered as the doer of all that follows. A person breaking a horse in Lincoln's Inn Fields, hurt a man, and it was held, that trespass would lie. In Leem v. Bray, 3 East Republic 595, Lord Ellenborough said, If I put in motion a dangerous thing, as if I let loose a dangerous animal, and leave to hazard what may happen, and mischief ensue, I am answerable in trespass, and if one, he says, put an animal or carriage in motion, which causes an immediate injury to another, he is the actor, the causins. I will not say that ascending in a balloon is an unlawful act, for it is not so, but, it is certain, that the aeronaut has no control over its motion horizontally, he is at the sport of the winds, and is to descend when and 12 strict liability versus negligence ch1 how he can, his reaching the earth is a matter of hazard. He did descend on the premises of the plaintiff below, at a short distance from the place where he ascended. Now, if his descent, under such circumstances, would, ordinarily and naturally, draw a crowd of people about him, either from curiosity, or for the purpose of rescuing him from a perilous situation, all this he ought to have foreseen, and must be responsible for. Whether the crowd heard him call for help or not, is immaterial, he had put himself in a situation to invite help, and they rushed forward, impelled, perhaps, by the double motive of rendering aid, and gratifying a curiosity which he had excited. Can it be doubted, that if the plaintiff in error had beckoned to the crowd to come to his assistance, that he would be liable for their trespass in entering the enclosure? I think not. In that case, they would have been CO trespassers, and we must consider the situation in which he placed himself, voluntarily and designedly, as equivalent to a direct request to the crowd to follow him. In the present case, he did call for help, and may have been heard by the crowd, he is, therefore, undoubtedly, liable for all the injury sustained. Judgment affirmed. Notes 1. Remember the main objective. Were balloon accidents governed by the rule of strict liability or by the rule of negligence? In other words, 
suppose that immediately after Gil V. Swan another aeronauta sends in a balloon and lands on a plaintiff's New York City property thereby causing damage. Could that plaintiff recover without showing that the defendant was negligent? Two analogies. What is the analogy between Gil V. Swan and Scott V. Shepard, described in the Gil opinion, Supra at P11? That case is more commonly spelled Scott V. Shepard. In Mitchell v. Ailes Tree, 86 ENG Republic 190, KB 1676, the plaintiff brought an action for trespass on the case against the defendant who, the plaintiff alleged, did ride a horse into a place called Lincoln's in Fields, a place much frequented by the king's subjects, and unapt for such purposes, for the breaking and taming of him, and that the horse was so unruly, that he broke from the defendant, and ran over the plaintiff, and grievously hurt him. The defendant pleaded not guilty, but the jury found for the plaintiff. The defendant moved to arrest the judgment, but the court found sufficient evidence to support the verdict. This case was also cited in Gil v. Swan at P11, though the court did not mention its name. What is the analogy between Gil v. Swan and Mitchell v. Ailes Tree? CH1 Strict Liability versus Negligence 13-3 Charles Lewis Gill, Aeronaut In 1819, over Jersey City, New Jersey, Charles Lewis Gill was the first person in America to parachute from a balloon. An ascent in New York followed. One method for balloonists of the era to descend was to cut loose the wicker basket in which they sat and descend slowly to the ground by way of an attached parachute. Perhaps the crowd following the balloon was hoping to see the balloonist escape in this way. If so, would that fact make Gil v. Swan a more obvious case of liability for the damage done by the crowd? For how did Von V. Tafvale relimit Gil v. Swan? Gil v. Swan and Von V. Tafvale recame to opposite results. That means that Von either overruled Gil, or would have done so if they had come from the same jurisdiction, or limited Gil. Which one depends on whether a reasonable factual distinction exists between the two cases? What are the key the factual differences between Von V. Tafvale Re and Gil V. Swan that led to the different results? Note that Gil V. Swan came to the same result, liability, as Scott V. Shepard, the famous English case that was described in the Gil V. Swan opinion. How was Gil a more radical case, a more surprising case of liability, than Scott was? In other words, how did Gill extend Scott v. Shepard? 5. Airplane Crash In Christ v. Civil Air Patrol, Inc., 278N.Y.S.2D430, Sup. CT1967, the plaintiff sued to recover for personal injuries and property damage alleged to have been sustained by the plaintiffs on the ground when an airplane owned by the defendant crashed onto the plaintiff's lawn. The affidavits revealed the following facts. On November 16, 1963, a C-45 Beechcraft airplane crashed shortly after taking off from Zanz Airport in Amityville, New York. The plane landed on the lawn of property owned by the plaintiff, Stanley Cotta, located in North Lindenhurst, which was about one-half mile from the airport. The pilot and two occupants of the plane were killed on impact, and the log maintained by the crew was lost in the burning wreckage. Because of the crash, personal injury was sustained by the plaintiffs, Stanley Cotta, his wife, children, and their visitors. 
In addition, the Kata house and two parked automobiles were damaged. The defendant, Civil Air Patrol, Inc., admitted ownership of the airplane and that the flight was made in the course of its business by authorized CAP personnel. Under Section 251 of the New York General Business Law, enacted in 1959, an owner of aircraft was liable for death or injury to person or 14 strict liability versus negligence CH1 property resulting from the use or operation of the aircraft with the permission of the owner in any case where the person using or operating the aircraft asterisk 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 would be liable. The purpose of this statute was to make the owner of an airplane liable for its operation just as the owner of a motor vehicle was similarly held liable under Section 388 of the Vehicle and Traffic Law. Section 251, however, differed from the vehicle and traffic law in that it did not attempt to resolve the question of whether the owner's liability was strict or was based on negligence or other fault. That issue was expressly left open for determination by a court or by future legislation, 1959 Report of the Law Revision Commission, Leg. Doc. No. 65, J, P23, ETSEQ. The plaintiffs moved for summary judgment on the issue of liability. Held, for the defendant, that the plaintiff's motion must be denied. Said the court, the plaintiffs in this case argue that injury to persons or property on the ground caused by an airplane falling to the earth constitutes a trespass for which damages may be assessed without regard to fault. Technological advances and development and the experiences of the last two decades have dissipated the universal early fears that flying was an ultra-hazardous occupation. The application of the trespass theory advanced in the Dunlop case appears to be based to some extent on a recognition of such earlier fear. The opinion, for example, reads, pages 851852-266 NYS pages 472473 The correctness of that statement, that airplanes fall from causes over which the pilot has no control, we believe cannot be questioned, at least in the present state of aircraft development asterisk 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 when, therefore, a man takes over another man's land a machine which he knows is liable to crash upon and do injury to that land and the structures upon it, can it be said that he is an accidental trespasser within the meaning of those decisions which have exempted the trespasser from liability? Asterisk 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 if asterisk 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 common experience requires the opposite conclusion, namely, that no matter how perfectly constructed or how carefully managed an aeroplane may be, it may still fall, then the man who takes it over another's land and kills his cow or knocks off his chimney, has committed an inexcusable trespass. The quotation indicates that the court found an intentional as distinguished from an accidental, trespass based on a constructive intent imputed to the pilot to land wherever the plane may fall ch1 strict liability versus negligence 15 because of the lack of control he possessed over his flight the decision bears a marked similarity to the holding made in 1822 in gil v swan 19 johns 381 a balloonist in that case was found liable in trespass for damage caused to plaintiff's property by a crowd that collected when he landed under circumstances disclosing that he called for their assistance. The court finding the aeronaut had no control over the balloon's motion horizontally, stated, P383 asterisk 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 he is at the sport of wines, and is to descend when and how he can, his reaching the earth is a matter of hazard. 
aviation, however, has progressed far beyond a stage where the control of flight is left to chance. The pilot of today is in a far different situation than the balloonist who, in 1822, was found to have no control over his motion or the aviator who, in 1933, was presumed to know that he was liable to crash. Trespass provides a remedy for intentional harm to person or property and the act done must be such as will result in injury with substantial certainty, Phillips v. Sun Oil Company, 307 NY 328, 121 N.E.2D 249. A constructive intent to land in an uncontrollable flight pattern or at the whim of the elements cannot today be realistically imputed from the mere act of flying. What is the distinction between Christ v. Civil Air Patrol, Inc., and Gill v. Swan, Super at P-10? Rylands v. Fletcher 3H and C-774, 159 ENG Republic 737, EXCH 1865, Rev D, LR1 EX265, EXCHCH 1866, AFD, LR3 HL330, 1868, the defendants hired independent contractors to build a reservoir for them. One of the defendants, John Rylands, was the owner of the land on which the reservoir sat, and the other defendant, Jehu Horrocks, owned a nearby factory that used the water power that the reservoir generated. During the construction of the reservoir, the defendants' independent contractors discovered some old mining tunnels underneath Rylands's property, but did not investigate them. It turned out that the shafts were connected to a coal mine owned by the plaintiff, Thomas Fletcher. When the defendants filled the reservoir, the water brought from a different location, the water almost immediately broke through the bottom of it, flowed into the tunnels, and flooded the plaintiff's mine. The flood occurred at night, no workers were hurt. An arbitrator found that the defendants' construction contractors had been negligent, but that the defendants themselves had not been negligent. The plaintiff, however, had not sued the construction contractors, apparently because they had gone out of business. Based on the arbitrator's findings, the 16 strict liability versus negligence CH1 Court of Exchequer held, with Bramwell, B, dissenting, that the plaintiff was not entitled to recover against the defendants. The plaintiff appealed to the next highest court, the Court of Exchequer Chamber Blackburn, J. After stating the facts dash the plaintiff, though free from all blame on his part, must bear the loss, unless he can establish that it was the consequence of some default for which the defendants are responsible. The question of law therefore arises, which is the obligation which the law casts on a person who, like the defendants, lawfully brings on his land something which, though harmless whilst it remains there, will naturally do mischief if it escape out of his land. It is agreed on all hands that he must take care to keep in that which he has brought on the land and keeps there, in order that it may not escape and damage his neighbors, but the question arises whether the duty which the law casts upon him, under such circumstances, is an absolute duty to keep it in at his peril, or is, as the majority of the Court of Exchequer have thought, merely a duty to take all reasonable and prudent precautions, in order to keep it in, but no more. If the first be the law, the person who has brought on his land and kept there something dangerous, and failed to keep it in, 
is responsible for all the natural consequences of its escape. If the second be the limit of his duty, he would not be answerable except on proof of negligence, and consequently would not be answerable for escape arising from any latent defect which ordinary prudence and skill could not detect. We think that the true rule of law is, that the person who for his own purposes brings on his lands and collects and keeps there anything likely to do mischief if it escapes, must keep it in at his peril, and, if he does not do so, is prima facie answerable for all the damage which is the natural consequence of its escape. He can excuse himself by shewing that the escape was owing to the plaintiff's default, or perhaps that the escape was the consequence of this major, or the act of God, but as nothing of this sort exists here, it is unnecessary to inquire what excuse would be sufficient. The general rule, as above stated, seems on principle just. The person whose grass or corn is eaten down by the escaping cattle of his neighbor, or whose mine is flooded by the water from his neighbor's reservoir, or whose cellar is invaded by the filth of his neighbor's privy, or whose habitation is made unhealthy by the fumes and noisome vapors of his neighbor's alkali works, is damnified without any fault of his own, and it seems but reasonable and just that the neighbor, who has brought something on his own property which was not naturally there, harmless to others so long as it is confined to his own property, but which he knows to be mischievous if it gets on his neighbors, should be obliged to make good the damage which ensues if he does not succeed in confining it to his own property. But for his act in bringing it there no mischief could have accrued, and it seems but just ch1 strict liability versus negligence 17 that he should at his peril keep it there so that no mischief may accrue, or answer for the natural and anticipated consequences. And upon authority, this we think is established to be the law whether the things so brought be beasts, or water, or filth, or stenches. The case that has most commonly occurred, and which is most frequently to be found in the books, is as to the obligation of the owner of cattle which he brought on his land, to prevent their escape and doing mischief. The law as to them seems to be perfectly settled from early times, the owner must keep them in at his peril, or he will be answerable for the natural consequences of their escape, that is with regard to tame beasts, for the grass they eat and trample upon, though not for any injury to the person of others, for our ancestors have settled that it is not the general nature of horses to kick, or bulls to gore, but if the owner knows that the beast has a vicious propensity to attack man, he will be answerable for that too. But it was further said by Martin, b, in the court of exchequer that when damage is done to personal property, or even to the person, by collision either upon land or at sea, there must be negligence in the party doing the damage to render him legally responsible, and this is no doubt true, and as was pointed out by Mr. Mellish during his argument before us, this is not confined to cases of collision, for there are many cases in which proof of negligence is essential, as for instance, where an unruly horse gets on the footpath of a public street and kills a passenger, Hamak v. White, or where a person in a dock is struck by the falling of a bale of cotton which the defendant's servants are lowering, Scott v. London Dock Company, and many other similar cases may be found but we think these cases distinguishable from the present. Traffic on the highways, whether by land or sea, cannot be conducted without exposing those whose persons or property are near it to some inevitable risk, and that being so, those who go on the highway, or have their property adjacent to it, 
may well be held to do so subject to their taking upon themselves the risk of injury from that inevitable danger, and persons who by the license of the owner pass near to warehouses where goods are being raised or lowered, certainly do so subject to the inevitable risk of accident. In neither case, therefore, can they recover without proof of want of care or skill occasioning the accident, and it is believed that all the cases in which inevitable accident has been held in excuse of what prima facie was a trespass, can be explained on the same principle, viz., that the circumstances were such as to shew that the plaintiff had taken that risk upon himself. But there is no ground for saying that the plaintiff here took upon himself any risk arising from the uses to which the defendants should choose to apply their land. He neither knew what these might be, nor 18 strict liability versus negligence ch1 could he in any way control the defendants, or hinder their building what reservoirs they liked, and storing up in them what water they pleased, so long as the defendants succeeded in preventing the water which they there brought from interfering with the plaintiff's property. Judgment for the Plaintiff The House of Lords later affirmed the decision of the Court of Exchequer Chamber. In that decision, Lord Cairns gave a significant speech Cairns, L.J., my lords, the principles on which this case must be determined appear to me to be extremely simple. The defendants, treating them as the owners or occupiers of the clothes on which the reservoir was constructed, might lawfully have used that clothes for any purpose for which it might in the ordinary course of the enjoyment of the land be used, and if, in what I may term the natural use of that land, there had been any accumulation of water, either on the surface or underground, and if, by operation of the laws of nature, that accumulation of water had passed off into the clothes occupied by the plaintiff, the plaintiff could not have complained that that result had taken place. On the other hand if the defendants, not stopping at the natural use of their clothes, had desired to use it for any purpose which I may term a non-natural use, for the purpose of introducing into the clothes that which in its natural condition was not in or upon it, for the purpose of introducing water either above or below ground in quantities and in a manner not the result of any operation on or under the land, and if in consequence of their doing so, the water came to escape and to pass off into the close of the plaintiff, then it appears to me that that which the defendants were doing they were doing at their own peril, and, if in the course of their doing it, the evil arose to which I have referred, the evil, namely, of the escape of the water and its passing away to the close of the plaintiff and injuring the plaintiff, then for the consequence of that, in my opinion, the defendants would be liable. Notes 1. The True Rule of Law what was the holding of the Court of Exchequer? What was the holding of the House of Lords? What were the differences between them? How would you state the rule of Rylands v. Fletcher? What is the meaning of Lord Cairns's distinction between natural and non-natural uses of property? If someone were to ask you to list some non-natural uses of property, would a reservoir come to mind? In CH1 Strict Liability versus Negligence 19 What sense is a steam railroad a natural use of land and a mill pond a non-natural use? 2. Pragmatism All of the four cases that Justice Blackburn cited in support of his true rule, Supra at P16, cattle that go onto neighboring property and eat corn, reservoir that floods a mine, filth that leaks to next door, and alkali fumes that leak from a defendant's plant out into the neighborhood, all involve unintentional trespasses to land with the possible exception of the escaping alkali fumes, 
which technically might be a nuisance instead of a trespass because the invading particles are so small. Nevertheless, even the alkali fumes are very similar to a trespass to land. Should we take this similarity seriously? Was Gil V. Swan, Supra at P10, also a similar case of unintentional-slash-accidental trespass to land? Now think of the two cases that Blackburn distinguished. They were Hammack v. White, defendant's unruly horse jumped up on sidewalk and killed a person, and Scott v. London Dotco, bale of cotton fell out of defendant's warehouse and struck a person on the pavement below, super at P17. Both accidents could be described as escapes of something, but apparently not in the technical sense that Blackburn intended because he said that neither of these two cases fell under the same strict liability rule that the four cases, including Rylands v. Fletcher, fell under. That is why he distinguished them. Blackburn wanted to understand Hammack and Scott, the two cases he distinguished from Rylands, as assumptions of the risk. Does that concept provide a clear rule? In other words, how can you tell whether people have assumed the risk in this context? Maybe Blackburn didn't intend us to reason about whether a pedestrian mentally, in his own mind, assumes the risk of a horse jumping up on the sidewalk and killing him or whether a pedestrian also assumes the risk that a bale of cotton will fall on his head. Instead, given the way legal arguments work, maybe he was just using that concept as a kind of amorphous catch-all for all the cases in which there is no trespassery escape in the sense of the cattle going from the defendant's private property across a property line onto the plaintiff's neighboring property, reservoir water going from the defendant's property across a property line onto the plaintiff's neighboring property, etc. In any event, each of the four cases of strict liability involved a trespassery invasion, and neither of the two distinguished cases, i.e., Hammack and Scott, did. This must be an important difference given the way Blackburn structured his opinion. Three paradigms of strict liability and of no strict liability. We can sometimes distinguish liability cases from no liability cases based on policy grounds. Often, however, legally technical ideas do a better job. 20 Strict Liability versus Negligence CH1 The technical ideas can be regarded as surrogates for policy ideas, but often the technical ideas create clearer boundaries between liability and no liability. Clear boundaries are important because they lead to certainty in the legal rule and therefore promote settlement and reduce litigation, which is costly. Presumably this is why courts often prefer technical distinctions to policy distinctions. Accordingly, paradigms of strict liability are families of similar cases defined by the technical ideas that the courts have evolved to define strict liability and its absence. As the law of negligence began to develop rapidly in the second half of the 19th century, English courts began to see the need for a stricter form of liability, a type that did not depend on negligence but attached simply to the defendant's activity. The English legal historian Brian Simpson has written an article describing English reservoir failures occurring in England before the famous case of Rylands v. Fletcher. One several of these accidents were devastating, killing hundreds of people in the middle of the night. Although Rylands entailed no loss of life, Simpson argued that the court had these more catastrophic failures in mind when it applied strict liability to the Rylands accident. Table 1-1, Strict Liability Paradigms Liability No Liability ATI, Accidental Trespassery Invasion, CU, 
common usage, mu, mutual use, VMS, vis major or sabotage, UA, ultra hazardous activity, PPR, plaintiff participated in risk, a, uh, unforeseeable harm, HNR, harm from non ultra hazardous risk, NLPA, neither liability paradigm applies, 1AWB Simpson, legal liability for bursting reservoirs, the historical context of Rylands v. Fletcher, 13J Legal Stud, 209264, 1984. CH1 Strict Liability versus Negligence 21 It is useful to categorize cases into families of similar cases, or paradigms. Table 11 lists some paradigms for strict liability. The liability paradigms lead to strict liability, and the no liability paradigms lead to no strict liability. The latter cases may result in negligence liability. During the Victorian era, reservoir construction techniques were so primitive, reservoirs were often constructed of puddled mud, that an enormous amount of risk remained even after the builders had used what the industry then regarded as reasonable precaution. Nevertheless, the idea of risk was unfamiliar to Victorian judges, so when they saw their first reservoir failure, they described it in more direct terms, something that resulted in an accidental, massive invasion of a neighbor's property. The Rylands v. Fletcher facts define the original strict liability paradigm ATI, accidental trespassery invasion. Modern reservoirs do not create much risk after the engineers and builders use the amount of precaution that now represents due care. We do, however, still have activities that are like Victorian reservoirs. An example is a nuclear reactor. When a nuclear reactor fails, there is not necessarily a massive invasion of neighbor's property. The invading particles are subatomic. Nevertheless, once the common law has a basic metaphor in play, that metaphor tends to endure. A basic feature of the law of strict liability is the decline of paradigm ATI and the corresponding growth of paradigm UA. Both paradigms still exist and do not always overlap. We must understand the paradigms considering the facts of the case precedents that fall under it. As we will see, not every accidental trespass falls under paradigm ATI. For strict liability to apply, an accidental trespass must be massive, as in Rylands, or otherwise very dangerous, as under later ATI case precedents. A key aspect of paradigm UA is that a large risk remains even after everyone with a duty to use due care has done so. If due care would reduce a risk to modest levels, paradigm UA does not apply to it. In fact, the ability of reasonable precaution to reduce the risk from an activity to modest levels is one of the best tests of when strict liability does not apply. Possibly because the historical evolution has been so complex, with UA slowly eclipsing ATI, multiple no-liability paradigms have also evolved. A very common no-liability paradigm is CU, common usage. The basic idea of liability paradigm UA, ultra-hazardous activity, is that the defendant's activity yields unusually large amounts of risk for other members of the community. In other words, the defendant's activity is not the type of common activity whose risks we all impose on each other through our direct or vicarious participation. Members of society benefit 22 strict liability versus negligence CH1 from police target ranges because they lead to officers more often hitting their intended targets. Hence, 
when a bullet randomly escapes such a range and accidentally strikes someone, that is paradigm CU. No liability will exist unless the target range was negligently sighted or built. A second no liability paradigm applies when the activity was conducted for the benefit of the plaintiff as well as the defendant. This is paradigm mu, mutual use. Thus, if the Rylands plaintiff's coal mine used part of the water power created by the defendant's reservoir, the plaintiff could not recover because of mutual use. A third no liability paradigm applies when the plaintiff's own conduct amounted to active CO participation in creating the risk that led to his harm. Thus, if a reservoir failed because the plaintiff had knowingly dug into its walls, weakening them, that would be a case of no liability under paradigm PPR, plaintiff participated in risk. A fourth no liability paradigm is a, unforeseeable harm. This paradigm creates no liability when the type of harm that resulted from the defendant's activity was ex-ante unforeseeable. A similar no liability paradigm, HNR, harm from non-ultra-hazardous risk, exists when the defendant was conducting an ultra-hazardous activity, but the harm to the plaintiff came from a normal risk of the activity, not the ultra-hazardous risk. Thus, if a truck carrying nuclear waste runs a red light and strikes a plaintiff without releasing any radiation, liability will arise only under the negligence rule. The harm came from a normal risk. Finally, paradigm NLPA, neither liability paradigm applies, is the residual of cases that do not fall within one of the two liability paradigms, ATINUA. A good example is someone who delivers a small amount of sulfuric acid into the wrong factory pipe thus causing harmful gases breathed by a single factory worker. Point two: This is not paradigm ATI because the accidental trespassery invasion, if any, was not massive enough. The invasion was also not classically trespassery because the factory had consented to the delivery of the acid. The case is also not paradigm UA, ultra-hazardous activity, because if everyone used reasonable precaution with the delivery of sulfuric acid to the right pipe, hardly any risk would be left. These paradigms considered together comprise a comprehensive structure for understanding the separate realms of strict liability and negligence as they exist today. Nevertheless, the further case examples printed below show how this structure developed and illustrate how the 2C Edwards v. Post Transportation Co., 279 calories RPTR 231, CTF 1991, case of misdelivered sulfuric acid, printed infra at P85. CH1 Strict Liability vs. Negligence 23 Paradigms The main purpose of the paradigms is to organize the case precedents, not to give us bite-sized legal rules. In predicting the results of new cases, we want to analogize to the facts of precedent cases, again, the paradigms help us organize the precedent cases. The cases in this chapter are sorted by paradigm in the appendix to this chapter, infra at P96. Four overflowing privies. In Tenant v. Goldwyn, 91 ENG Republic 314, KB 1705, the parties occupied adjoining houses and had a joint wall between their two cellars. The plaintiff kept coal and beer in his cellar, and unfortunately the defendant's privy was adjacent, right on the other side of the wall. The plaintiff alleged that the defendant failed to repair the wall and consequently filth from the defendant's privy invaded the plaintiff's cellar and there did damage. 
the plaintiff got a default judgment, and the defendant later moved to have it arrested because the declaration failed to state a good cause of action. Held, for the plaintiff, that his complaint was good. Said the court, IT was the defendant's wall and the defendant's filth, and he was bound of common right to keep his wall so as his filth might not damnify his neighbor, and that it was a trespass on his neighbor, as if his beasts should escape, or one should make a great heap on the border of his ground, and it should tumble and roll down on the border of his neighbors. Do you suppose that the defendant could have failed to repair his wall without being negligent? Suppose the defendant had no way of knowing that his wall was leaking? The court's reasoning suggests how liability grows by extension. In the clearest case, the defendant's beasts stray onto the plaintiff's land and leave a deposit. Well before 1705, the date of the tenant decision, that was a case of trespass liability. It would be trespass if cattle did not leave a heap, the heap only makes liability clearer. Second, there is the hypothetical case, a bridge, in which the cattle leave their heap right on a border, and the heap falls over onto the plaintiff's land. That is a case of liability because it is indistinguishable from the first. The third case is the actual one of tenant in which the heap was not produced by cattle, and was not left as close to the border, and was underground, but still crossed the line. That is a case of liability, because it was indistinguishable from the second case. Finally, there is Rylands v. Fletcher, decided after Tenant v. Goldwyn, in which the Court of Exchequer Chamber relied on Tenant as a precedent for strict liability, see Super at P16. In Rylands v. Fletcher it was not filth, or a heap, 24 strict liability versus negligence ch1 but large quantities of plain water that went across an underground border into the plaintiff's mine. That was a case of liability by analogy to tenant. Think about the ways in which the tenant v Goldwyn facts were like the Rylands v Fletcher facts. Your analogies do not have to be deep, obvious factual similarities are best for starters. 5 Rats and Rice In Carstairs v Taylor, LR6EX217, 1871, the plaintiff sued for the destruction of his rice. The plaintiffs leased from the defendant the ground floor of a warehouse in Liverpool for storing rice. The defendant himself occupied the upper floor where he stored cotton. The water from the roof was collected in gutters, which terminated in a wooden box resting on the wall and partly projecting over it on the inside. From there the water was discharged by a pipe into the drain. The gutters and box were examined from time to time by a person employed by the defendant, and they had been, in fact, examined and found secure on the 18th of April, but between that day and the 22nd a rat gnawed a hole in that part of the box which projected on the inside of the wall, on the latter day a heavy storm occurred, and the collected rainwater passed through the hole into the upper floor of the warehouse, and from there reached the ground floor and injured the plaintiff's rice. The gutters and box were constructed in the mode ordinarily used in Liverpool. The plaintiff's fifth count, sounding under Rylands v. Fletcher, recited as follows, that before, and see, the plaintiffs were possessed of and occupied the ground floor of a warehouse, and the defendant was possessed of and occupied all the upper floors of the warehouse, and the defendant so negligently and improperly used and managed the said upper floors that large quantities of water, which the defendant had suffered to collect in and upon the said upper floors, 
penetrated and flowed from the upper floors into the ground floor so occupied by the plaintiffs, and wetted, damaged, and destroyed goods of the plaintiffs being in the said ground floor. At the trial of the case, Baron Martin dismissed the plaintiffs' action, and they appealed to the Court of Exchequer. Held, for the defendant, that the trial court did not err in dismissing the action. Said the court, per Bramwell, B. I am satisfied that the defendant conducted the water to the place where it escaped. He may therefore be said, in a sense, to have poured the water onto the plaintiff's premises, which is more accurate than to say that the water escaped, or to use any other ch1 strict liability versus negligence 25 expression which speaks of the water as though it were an active agent. The defendant made a gutter, of such a shape, character, and direction, that when the hole in question had been made, the water poured into the plaintiff's premises. Suppose that an ordinary cistern were pierced by a stranger, and the water in consequence escaped, the proximate cause of the accident would be the act of the person who pierced the cistern, the owner of the cistern could not be said to have poured the water upon his neighbor's premises, unless he afterwards filled the cistern. But the defendant has here conducted the water to the place from which it poured onto the plaintiff's premises, and he may therefore be said to have poured it onto them. So far the case resembles Rylands v. Fletcher, and I am satisfied that it makes no matter that the defendant is the plaintiff's landlord, but that the case must be argued as if there had been a severance of the freehold. But I am clearly of opinion that there is a material difference between the cases. In Rylands v. Fletcher the defendant, for his own purposes, conducted the water to the place from which it got into the plaintiff's premises. Here the conducting of the water was no more for the benefit of the defendant than of the plaintiffs. If they had been adjacent owners, it would have been for the benefit of the adjacent owner that the water from his roof was collected, and the case would have been within the decision in Rylands v. Fletcher, but here the roof was the common protection of both, and the collection of the water running from it was also for their joint benefit. H. Air the plaintiffs must be taken to have consented to this collection of the water which was for their own benefit, and the defendant can only be liable if he was guilty of negligence. Is there, then, any evidence of negligence? I think not. It is said there was negligence in so constructing the box that if a hole were made in this place the water would enter the warehouse. But how can it be said that there was negligence, when it was constructed in the way in which such things are ordinarily constructed? When it is repaired, it will probably be repaired in such a way that this accident cannot occur again, but, as I have often said, to treat this as evidence of negligence is to say that whenever the world grows wiser it convicts those that came before of negligence. It is said that rats can be easily got rid of out of a warehouse, but, assuming it to be so, it is no negligence not to take means to get rid of them till there is reason to suppose they are there, and it cannot be said that persons ought to anticipate that rats will enter through the roof by gnawing holes in the gutters. 26 Strict Liability versus Negligence CH1 What is the distinction between Carstairs v. Taylor and Rylands v. Fletcher, Super at P15? How would you change the facts of Rylands in order to flip it into a no-liability case analogous to Carstairs? 6A Problem at Henbury Hall In Nichols v. Marsland, LR 10 EXCH 255, 1875, AFD, 2 EXD 1, CA 1876, 
the plaintiff sued as the surveyor for the county of Chester for the destruction of four county bridges from water that overflowed the defendant's artificial pools during a large storm. His first count was for negligence, and his second count was under the doctrine of Rylands v. Fletcher. The case was tried before Coburn, C.J., at the Chester Summer Assizes in 1874. The plaintiff's witnesses gave evidence that the defendant occupied a mansion house and grounds at Henbury, in the county of Chester. A natural stream called Bag Brook, which rose in higher lands, ran through the defendant's grounds, and after leaving them flowed under the four county bridges in question. After entering the defendant's grounds the stream was diverted and dammed up by an artificial embankment into a pool of about three acres called the Upper Pool, from which it escaped over a weir in the embankment, and was again similarly dammed up by an artificial embankment into the Middle Pool, which was between one and two acres in area. Escaping over a weir in the embankment, it was again dammed up into the Lower Pool, which was between eight and nine acres in area, and from which the stream escaped into its natural and original course. About 5 o'clock p.m. on the 18th of June 1872 a terrible thunderstorm occurred, accompanied by heavy rain, which continued till about 3 o'clock a.m. on the 19th. The rainfall was greater and more violent than any within the memory of the witnesses and swelled the stream both above and in the defendant's grounds. On the morning of the 19th it was found that during the night the violence and volume of the water had carried away the artificial embankments of the three pools, the accumulated water in which, being thus suddenly let loose, had swelled the stream below the pool so that it carried away and destroyed the county bridges mentioned in the declaration. At the pools were paddles for letting off the water, but for several years they had been out of working order. Some engineers and other witnesses gave evidence that in their opinion the weir in the upper pool was far too small for a pool of that size, and that the mischief happened through the insufficiency of the means for carrying off the water. It was not proved when these ornamental pools were constructed, but it appeared that they had existed before the defendant began to occupy the property, and that no CH1 strict liability versus negligence 27 similar accident had ever occurred within the knowledge of the witnesses. After hearing the address of the defendant's counsel, the jury said they did not wish to hear his witnesses, and that in their opinion the accident was caused by this major. In answer to Coburn, CJ, they found that there was no negligence in the construction or maintenance of the works, and that the rain was most excessive. Coburn, CJ, being of opinion that the rainfall, though extraordinary and unprecedented, did not amount to this major or excuse the defendant from liability, entered the verdict for the plaintiff for £4,092, the agreed amount, reserving leave to the defendant to move to enter it for her if the court, who were to draw inferences of fact, should be of opinion that the rainfall amounted to this major and so distinguished the case from Rylands v. Fletcher. The Court of Exchequer reversed the judgment for the plaintiff. Speaking for that court, Baron Bramwell said, in this case I understand the jury to have found that all reasonable care had been taken by the defendant, that the banks were fit for all events to be anticipated, and the weirs brought enough, that the storm was of such violence as to be properly called the act of God, or vis major. No doubt, as was said by Mr. McIntyre, a shower is the act of God as much as a storm, so is an earthquake in this country, yet everyone understands that a storm, supernatural in one sense, may properly, 
like an earthquake in this country, be called the act of God, or vis major. No doubt not the act of God or of his major in the sense that it was physically impossible to resist it, but in the sense that it was practically impossible to do so. Had the banks been twice as strong, or if that would not do, ten times, and ten times as high, and the weir ten times as wide, the mischief might not have happened. But those are not practical conditions, they are such that to enforce them would prevent the reasonable use of property in the way most beneficial to the community. So understanding the finding of the jury, I am of opinion the defendant is not liable. What has the defendant done wrong? What right of the plaintiff has she infringed? She has done nothing wrong, she has infringed no right. It is not the defendant who let loose the water and sent it to destroy the bridges. She did indeed store it, and store it in such quantities that, if it was let loose, it would do, as it did, mischief. But suppose a stranger let it loose, would the defendant be liable? If so, then if a mischievous boy bored a hole in a cistern in any London house, and the water did mischief to a neighbor, the occupier of the house would be liable. That cannot be. 28 Strict Liability versus Negligence CH1 Then why is the defendant liable if some agent over which she has no control lets the water out? This case differs wholly from Fletcher v. Rylands. There the defendant poured the water into the plaintiff's mine. He did not know he was doing so, but he did it as much as though he had poured it into an open channel which led to the mine without his knowing it. Here the defendant merely brought it to a place whence another agent let it loose. The plaintiff then appealed to the Court of Appeal, which affirmed the dismissal. Lord Mellish, L.J., said for that court, T. He accumulation of water in a reservoir is not in itself wrongful, but the making it and suffering the water to escape, if damage ensue, constitute a wrong. But the present case is distinguished from that of Rylands v. Fletcher in this, that it is not the act of the defendant in keeping this reservoir, an act in itself lawful, which alone leads to the escape of the water, and so renders wrongful that which but for such escape would have been lawful. It is the supervening vis major of the water caused by the flood, which, superad to the water in the reservoir, which of itself would have been innocuous, causes the disaster. A defendant cannot, in our opinion, be properly said to have caused or allowed the water to escape, if the act of God or the Queen's enemies was the real cause of its escaping without any fault on the part of the defendant. If a reservoir was destroyed by an earthquake, or the Queen's enemies destroyed it in conducting some warlike operation, it would be contrary to all reason and justice to hold the owner of the reservoir liable for any damage that might be done by the escape of the water. We are of opinion, therefore, that the defendant was entitled to excuse herself by proving that the water escaped through the act of God. What is the analogy between Nichols v. Marsland and Carstairs v. Taylor, Super at P24? 7. Pouring Water In Nichols v. Marsland and Carstairs v. Taylor, the courts tried to develop a metaphor that would predict when liability existed. This attempted metaphor was liability resulting from the defendant's pouring water onto the plaintiff's property. Thus, we are told that the Rylands defendants did pour water into the plaintiff's mine but that the Nichols defendant did not pour water onto that plaintiff's bridges. We are further told that the Carstairs defendant did in a sense pour water on that plaintiff's premises, but that he was excused because the plaintiff was a mutual user of the same water system.
CH1 strict liability versus negligence 29 does this metaphor help us understand the cases? The Ryland's water came from a different place. The defendants had to haul it from there to the reservoir, whereas in the Nichols the water came naturally down the channel. Thus, greater intentionality existed in on the part of the Ryland's defendants. 8. Clogged Sink In Rickards v. Lothian, 1913 AC 263, PC Austral, the defendant was the owner of a commercial building in Melbourne, Australia, and the plaintiff was one of his tenants. One night a trespasser entered the building, clogged the sink and its drains in the fourth floor restroom, turned the water on, and left. Water accumulated and leaked into the plaintiff's rooms, damaging his inventory of school books. Based on the jury's answers to special interrogatories, factual questions asked of the jury by the judge, the trial judge entered judgment for the plaintiff for £156, the amount of the damages found by the jury. The High Court of Australia ultimately affirmed, and the defendant appealed to the Privy Council, the highest court of appeal for claims arising from British Commonwealth countries. Held, for the defendant, that judgment, should be entered him. Said the court, per Lord Moulton, LJ their lordships agree with the law as laid down in the judgments above cited, and are of opinion that a defendant is not liable on the principle of Rylands v. Fletcher for damage caused by the wrongful acts of third persons. But there is another ground upon which their lordships are of opinion that the present case does not come within the principle laid down in Rylands v. Fletcher. It is not every use to which land is put, that brings into play that principle. It must be some special use bringing with it increased danger to others and must not merely be the ordinary use of the land or such a use as is proper for the general benefit of the community. The provision of a proper supply of water to the various parts of a house is not only reasonable, but has become, in accordance with modern sanitary views, an almost necessary feature of town life. It is recognized as being so desirable in the interests of the community that in some form or other it is usually made obligatory in civilized countries. Such a supply cannot be installed without causing some concurrent danger of leakage or overflow. It would be unreasonable for the law to regard those who install or maintain such a system of supply as doing so at their own peril, with an absolute liability for any damage resulting from its presence even when there has been no negligence. It would be still more unreasonable if, as the respondent contends, such liability were to be held to extend to the 30 strict liability versus negligence ch1 consequences of malicious acts on the part of third persons. In such matters as the domestic supply of water or gas, it is essential that the mode of supply should be such as to permit ready access for the purpose of use, and hence it is impossible to guard against willful mischief. Taps may be turned on, ball cocks fastened open, supply pipes cut, and waste pipes blocked. Against such acts no precaution can prevail. It would be wholly unreasonable to hold an occupier responsible for the consequences of such acts which he is powerless to prevent, when the provision of the supply is not only a reasonable act on his part but probably a duty. Such a doctrine would, for example, make a householder liable for the consequences of an explosion caused by a burglar breaking into his house during the night and leaving a gas tap open. There is, in their lordship's opinion, no support either in reason or authority for any such view of the liability of a landlord or occupier. 
in having on his premises such means of supply he is only using those premises in an ordinary and proper manner, and, although he is bound to exercise all reasonable care, he is not responsible for damage not due to his own default, whether that damage be caused by inevitable accident or the wrongful acts of third persons. The Privy Council also found that the plaintiff's negligence claim failed because the one untaken precaution that the jury had identified could easily have been defeated by an intruder who was as dedicated and resourceful as the person who had stopped up the defendant's sink. What is the distinction between Rickards v. Lothian and Rylands v. Fletcher? Is the difference between natural and non-natural uses any help in explaining their relationship? How would you revise the facts of Rylands to make them more like the facts of Rickards and thus to make Rylands a case of no liability? What is the distinction between Rickards v. Lothian and Tennant v. Goldwyn, Super at P23? How does Rickards v. Lothian extend Carstairs v. Taylor, Super at P24? How does Rickards extend Nichols v. Marsland, Super at P26? Nine Sewage Pipes In W.H. Smith & Son, Limited v. Da, C.A. March 31, 1987, on Pub, the Court of Appeal reversed a trial court's determination that the proprietor of a bursting sewage pipe was strictly liable to his neighbor. The trial judge had relied on Blackburn, J.S. statement in Rylands v. Fletcher that the person, whose cellar is invaded by the filth of his neighbor's privy, is damnified without any fault of his own, and it seems but reasonable and just that the neighbor, who has brought something on his own property which was not naturally there, harmless to others so long as it is confined to his ch1 strict liability versus negligence 31 own property but which he knows to be mischievous if it gets on his neighbors, should be obliged to make good the damage which ensues if he does not succeed in confining it to his own property. Said Nichols, LJ, holding that the plaintiff would have to prove that the defendant was negligent in allowing the pipe to burst, I am unable to accept Blackburn, J.S. reference to the filth of his neighbor's privy in the classical passage in his judgment in Fletcher v. Rylands, as intended or apt to include soil being conveyed away through a pipe within a building in the ordinary manner from a domestic water closet system. This situation is to be contrasted with a collection of sewage in, for example, a cesspool. How is a sewage pipe different from a cesspool? In this connection, it may be relevant that the plaintiff's own premises were connected to the same sewage pipe. 10 Worst Case Scenario In Bunyak v. Yancey, 438 so. 2d891, FLA App 1983, the defendant, Yancey, operated a dairy farm. His plant generated 14,000 pounds of liquefied cow manure each day. In 1970 Yancey built a large lagoon to hold the liquefied manure. In 1978 Yancey's neighbors, the Bunyaks, set out to go fishing at a pond on their property, but discovered that the pond was covered with a substance that appeared to have originated in Yancey's lagoon. Further investigation confirmed the Bunyaks' suspicion that the lagoon had overflowed into several ponds on their property. The Bunyaks sued Yancey. The trial court dismissed their strict liability claim before trial, and the jury found no negligence on Yancey's part. The Bunyaks appealed to the Florida Court of Appeals. Held, for the plaintiffs, that they were entitled to verdict and judgment. Said the court, in the off-sided case of Rylands v. Fletcher, 
England adopted the doctrine of strict liability for the hazardous or abnormally dangerous use of one's land. This doctrine is limited to those land uses deemed non-natural. Subsequently, the doctrine has been adopted in the United States by a majority of jurisdictions. Prosser, Law of Tort 78, 1971 American courts, like the English courts, have applied the doctrine to abnormally dangerous conditions or activities not natural to the locality in which they occur. Impounding thousands of gallons of liquefied manure on one's property certainly presents some risk to the person, land, or chattels of another. If it escapes, as the circumstantial evidence shows it did here, great harm results. Ineradicable risks attend such impoundment despite reasonable care. Tihi Manure Lagoon here is 32 strict liability versus negligence CH1 not a matter of common usage, and this, in our view, dovetails with the non-natural use of land to which the common law doctrine and the more modern restatement doctrine address themselves. What is the distinction between Bunyak v. Yancey and Nichols v. Marsland, Super at P26? What is the superficial similarity between them? Note that the jury tried to forgive what seems to have been fairly obvious negligence on the part of the defendants, but the jury forgiveness was foiled by strict liability. 11 more leaky ponds. In McGregor v. Barton Sand and Gravel, Inc., 660p.2d175, or App 1983, the plaintiffs brought a lawsuit alleging trespass, nuisance, negligence, and ultra-hazardous activity, arising out of spillage and sliding of water and debris onto plaintiff's property from artificial ponds located on the defendant's property and used in connection with their gravel mining operations. The defendants bought the gravel quarry site in 1972 and incorporated defendant Barton Sand and Gravel, Inc., to conduct business operations. At the time of the purchase, there was one naturally fed pond on the site, which defendants supplemented with two artificial ponds for use in cleaning gravel. Subsequently, the defendants sold the corporation and leased the site to G.D. Dennis & Sons, Incorporated, Dennis. Dennis encountered financial difficulties, which resulted in the defendants' repossession of the business and the site in the spring of 1979. While in possession of the property, Dennis had constructed four more ponds by diverting the natural stream. In November 1977, the plaintiffs purchased their property, which was located approximately 50 feet below and to the south of the ponds on defendant's property. The spillage problems were apparent from the inception of plaintiff's possession and were still continuing at the time of trial in 1981. The plaintiffs promptly and repeatedly called the problems to Dennis's and, later, to defendant's attention and demanded that corrective measures be taken. Dennis and the defendants undertook some action aimed at remedying the condition, and they promised plaintiffs that there would be further efforts. Those efforts were largely aborted, however, by Dennis's financial problems, weather conditions, and other factors, including the defendants' dilatoriness or unsustained attention. The plaintiffs and the defendants hired separate specialists to attempt to resolve the problem. The specialists' advice was conflicting, Although they eventually agreed that digging trenches to divert water would be of some benefit, they apparently did not agree where the trenches should be located, and no trenches were installed. Throughout the relevant period, the plaintiffs continued to sustain serious property damage and continued to inform the defendants, 
CH1 strict liability versus negligence 33 through engineering reports and other means, that there was a danger of ongoing and new problems, including landslides, if the conditions were not remedied. Ultimately, the plaintiffs brought this lawsuit. The trial court submitted only the plaintiff's trespass and ultra-hazardous activity counts to the jury, which returned a verdict for the plaintiffs upon which the trial court entered judgment. The defendants appealed to the Oregon Court of Appeals, inter alia, on the ground of insufficiency of the evidence. Held, for the plaintiffs, that the evidence was sufficient to support the verdict. Said the court, defendants' final assignment of error is that the court should have concluded that the activity was not ultra-hazardous and therefore should have withdrawn the ultra-hazardous activity count from the jury. Reduced to essentials, defendants' argument is that, in Nikolai v. Day, 264 or 354, 506 p.2 d 483, 1973, the court adopted a six-factor test for determining whether an activity is ultra-hazardous and that the evidence here was conclusive that defendants' activity passed two of those tests. We need not comment on whether we share defendants' understanding that the court in Nikolai meant that an activity could be found ultra-hazardous only if it failed all six parts of the test. It is clear from the court's later opinion in Coos v. Roth, 293 or 670, 652 p.2 d 1255, 1982 that the inquiry is not that rigidly circumscribed and that the relevance of the common usage and inappropriate to the location factors is generally marginal. 293 or at 67679, 652 p.2 d 1255. The court stated by way of summary in Coos, asterisk 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 t he focus in our cases has been on assessing abnormal hazards by their potential for harm of exceptional magnitude or probability despite the utmost care this potential may of course differ with the place where the activity is conducted but an activity is not otherwise immune from strict liability because it is appropriate in its place Asterisk 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 a danger that is only ordinary in an appropriate location may be abnormal where it exposes others to an extraordinary risk or magnitude of harm, but an extraordinary risk does not become ordinary because it occurs in its own appropriate place. 293 or at 68182, 652 p.2 d 1255. We conclude that the storage of the large quantity of water above plaintiff's property created a potential for harm of exceptional magnitude and probability that could not be averted by the exercise 34 strict liability versus negligence CH1 of utmost care. The trial court did not err in concluding that the activity was ultra-hazardous. What is the distinction between McGregor v. Barton Sand and Gravel, Inc., and Nichols v. Marsland, Super at P26? Was the McGregor trespass more intentional? 12. Escaping fire. In Walker Shoe Store v. Howard's Hobby Shop, 327 N.W.2D 725, Iowa 1982, the plaintiff owned a shoe store, the defendant owned a hobby shop next door. The defendant heated his property with oil, which was stored in his basement in two tanks having a capacity of 550 gallons. A leak developed in one or both tanks, allowing oil to escape into the defendant's basement, 
eventually the oil was ignited by the pilot light of a hot water heater. Although the defendant's oil never crossed over into the plaintiff's premises, the ensuing fire caused substantial smoke and fire damage to the plaintiff's adjacent property. The defendant produced affidavits stating that the heater had been checked regularly, the plaintiff did not respond, relying on a claim of strict liability rather than negligence. The trial court granted the plaintiff's motion for summary judgment. The defendant appealed to the Supreme Court of Iowa. Held, for the defendant, that the plaintiff was not entitled to summary judgment because it was not strictly liable but would be liable only on a showing of negligent. 13 IC Parking Lot In Delano v. Mother's Supermarket, Inc., 163N.E.2D920, Massachusetts 1960, the plaintiff early in the morning walked across the defendant's parking lot to try to buy some cough drops, but found when she reached the supermarket door that the defendant's store was not yet open. It was winter, and she retraced her steps across the parking lot. Unfortunately, water from the defendant's roof gutter had formed a pool of ice on the parking lot, which had overnight been covered by a thin coat of snow. The plaintiff slipped and hurt herself. In a bench trial, no jury, the trial court found the defendant was not guilty of negligence, but was liable under a nuisance legal theory. The defendant appealed on the ground that the evidence was insufficient to support the trial court's verdict. Held, for the defendant, that the trial court's finding that the defendant had not been negligent implied as a matter of law that a nuisance action would not lie on these facts. What is the distinction between Rylands v. Fletcher, Super at P15, and Delano v. Mother's Supermarket, Inc. CH1 Strict Liability versus Negligence 3514 Municipal Reservoirs In Albig v. Municipal Authority, 502A.2D658, PA 1985, the defendant's municipal reservoir, holding 1 million gallons of water, leaked into the plaintiff's basements and houses causing significant damage to their property. The jury found that the municipal authority had been negligent in failing to inspect its reservoir over a period of 70 years. Nonetheless, the jury also found that the defendant's negligence was not a proximate cause of the plaintiff's damage, because the immediate cause of the leakage was cracking in the reservoir floor caused by subsidence of coal mines operated by another defendant, the Republic Steel Corporation. The trial judge entered judgment NOV against the defendant reservoir owner, holding that it was strictly liable under the doctrine of Rylands v. Fletcher, super at P15. The defendant appealed. Held, for the defendant, that the principle of Rylands v. Fletcher did not apply to this case and that the jury's verdict should be reinstated. The court stressed that the reservoir was purchased and maintained for storing a municipal water supply, to enhance firefighting, and to equalize pressure in the water distribution system and that the plaintiffs benefited from the reservoir. What is the relationship between Albig v. Municipal Authority and Rylands v. Fletcher, Super at P15? What is the distinction between them? Can we see Albig as falling within paradigm mu, mutual use, by analogy to Carstairs v. Taylor, the mu-nl case of the rain-guttering system shared between the plaintiff and defendant, Super at P24. 15 Faulty Towers. In Transco PLC v Stockport Metropolitan Borough Council, 2004 2AC1, HL 2003, 
the plaintiff sued for the expense of having to fix its gas pipeline after the defendant's burst water pipe eroded its supports. The defendant's Brinnington housing estate formed part of the Metropolitan Borough of Stockport. This housing development was adjacent to an abandoned branch railway that used to run from Stockport Town in the south to Denton in the north. In 1966 the Northwestern Gas Board, pursuant to an agreement with the British Railways Board, laid a 1-6-inch high-pressure steel gas main beneath the surface of the old railway. At the time of suit, the gas pipeline belonged to the plaintiff, which was formerly called British Gas PLC, but which by the time of the suit had renamed itself Transco PLC. At some time in the summer of 1992 a leak developed in a high-pressure water pipe belonging to the defendant which supplied water to hollow end towers, and one one-story tower block on the Brinnington estate. Although the pipe was not part of the Northwest Water Authority's main system, it was a good deal larger than the kind of pipe that would 36 strict liability versus negligence CH1 normally lead from the main to a single dwelling. This was because it had to supply the large tanks in the basement of hollow end towers from which the water was pumped to tanks on the roof which supplied all 66 flats in the apartment house. The pipe was made of asbestos cement and had an internal diameter of 3 inches, giving it a capacity 16 times greater than the 3-14-inch pipe in common domestic use. It was not clear why the pipe fractured, but the judge found that it was probably the result of the subsidence of tipped material in a landfill site under part of the tower, which was itself supported on piles. The leak was first discovered on September 24, 1992, when the well of the lift shaft at hollow end towers was found to be flooded. The fracture was found and quickly repaired. But later events showed that water must have been escaping for some time in considerable quantities, because two days after the leak had been found, water was seen bubbling up near the old railway below the tower. The old landfill site below the tower, which had been soaking up water like a sponge, was now saturated. The water ran along the tightly packed surface of the footpath along the railway bed and then, where the path was carried upon an embankment, spilled down the sides. On September 28, 1992 a section of embankment, sodden with water, gave way, and spilled over the golf course sited on the edge of the country park. A 2-7-meter section of Transco's gas pipeline was left unsupported and exposed. The possibility of a fracture in the unsupported gas pipe was obviously hazardous, and Transco quickly took steps to repair the damage. The cost of the works required to restore support and cover the pipe was £93,681. The plaintiff, Transco, sued the council to recover the cost of repair. It did not allege that the fracture in the pipe and consequent escape of water was caused by any lack of care. It did say the damage to the embankment would not have happened if council had not allowed the drains and culverts under the old railway to become blocked but the trial judge said that this had made no difference and there was no appeal against his finding. The plaintiff's principal claim was that the council was liable without proof of negligence under the rule in Rylands v. Fletcher. The trial judge awarded the plaintiff judgment on this theory, but the court of appeal reversed. The plaintiff appealed to the House of Lords. Held, for the defendant, that the trial court erred in upholding the plaintiff's claim. Lord Hoffman, L.J., said, I pause at this point to summarize the very limited circumstances to which the rule of Rylands v. Fletcher has been confined. 
First, it is a remedy for damage to land or interests in land. As there can be ch1 strict liability versus negligence 37 few properties in the country, commercial or domestic, which are not insured against damage by flood and the like, this means that disputes over the application of the rule will tend to be between property insurers and liability insurers. Secondly, it does not apply to works or enterprises authorized by statute. That means that it will usually have no application to really high-risk activities. As Professor Simpson points out, 1984, 13 J. Legstud 225 The Bradfield Reservoir was built under statutory powers. In the absence of negligence, the occupiers whose lands had been inundated would have had no remedy. Thirdly, it is not particularly strict because it excludes liability when the escape is for the most common reasons, namely vandalism or unusual natural events. Fourthly, the cases in which there is an escape which is not attributable to an unusual natural event or the act of a third party will, by the same token, usually give rise to an inference of negligence. Fifthly, there is a broad and ill-defined exception for natural uses of land. It is perhaps not surprising that council could not find a reported case since the Second World War in which anyone had succeeded in a claim under the rule. It is hard to escape the conclusion that the intellectual effort devoted to the rule by judges and writers over many years has brought forth a mouse. Is the rule of Rylands v. Fletcher worth keeping? I do not think it would be consistent with the judicial function of your lordship's house to abolish the rule in Rylands v. Fletcher. It has been part of English law for nearly 150 years and despite a searching examination by Lord Goff of Chiavelli in the Cambridge Water Case 1994-2 there was no suggestion in his speech that it could or should be abolished. I think that would be too radical a step to take. It remains, however, if not to rationalize the law of England, at least to introduce greater certainty into the concept of natural user which is in issue in this case. In order to do so, I think it must be frankly acknowledged that little assistance can be obtained from the kinds of user which Lord Cairns must be assumed to have regarded as non-natural in Rylands v. Fletcher itself. They are, as Lord Goff of Chiavelli said in the Cambridge Water Case 1994-2AC 264-308, redolent of a different age. So nothing can be made of the anomaly that one of the illustrations of the rule given by Blackburn J is cattle trespass. Whatever Blackburn J and Lord Cairns may have meant by natural, the law was set on a different course by the opinion of Lord Moulton in Rickards v. Lothian 1913 AC 263 and the question of what is a natural use of land or, the converse, a use creating an increased risk, must be judged by contemporary standards. 38 Strict Liability versus Negligence CH1 In the present case, I am willing to assume that if the risk arose from a non-natural user of the council's land, all the other elements of the tort were satisfied. Transco complains of expense having to be undertaken to avoid damage to its gas pipe, I am willing to assume that if damage to the pipe would have been actionable, the expense incurred in avoiding that damage would have been recoverable. I also willing to assume that Transco's easement which entitled it to maintain its pipe in the embankment and receive support from the soil was a sufficient proprietary interest to enable it to sue in nuisance and therefore, by analogy, under the rule in Rylands v. Fletcher. Although the council, as owner of hollow end towers, 
was no doubt under a statutory duty to provide its occupiers with water, it had no statutory duty or authority to build that particular tower block and it is therefore not suggested that the pipe was laid pursuant to statutory powers so as to exclude the rule. So the question is whether the risk came within the rule. The damage which eventuated was subsidence beneath a gas main, a form of risk against which no rational owner of a gas main would fail to ensure. The casualty was caused by the escape of water from the council's land. But the source was a perfectly normal item of plumbing. The pipe was, it is true, considerably larger than the ordinary domestic size. But it was smaller than a water main. It was installed to serve the occupiers of the council's high-rise flats, not strictly speaking a commercial purpose, but not a private one either. In my opinion the Court of Appeal was right to say that it was not a non-natural user of land. I am influenced by two matters. First, there is no evidence that it created a greater risk than is normally associated with domestic or commercial plumbing. True, the pipe was larger. But whether that involved greater risk depends upon its specification. One cannot simply assume that the larger the pipe, the greater the risk of fracture or the greater the quantity of water likely to be discharged. I agree with my noble and learned friend, Lord Bingham of Cornhill, that the criterion of exceptional risk must be taken seriously and creates a high threshold for a claimant to surmount. Secondly, I think that the risk of damage to property caused by leaking water is one against which most people can and do commonly ensure. This is, as I have said, particularly true of Transco, which can be expected to have insured against any form of damage to its pipe. It would be a very strange result if Transco were entitled to recover against the council when it would not have been entitled to recover against the water authority for similar damage emanating from its high-pressure main. I would therefore dismiss the appeal. CH1 Strict Liability versus Negligence 39 What is the distinction between Transco PLC v Stockport Metropolitan Borough Council and McGregor v Barton Sand and Gravel, Incorporated, the ATI slash L case of the failing gravel ponds above the plaintiff's property, Super at P32? Was there a more dramatic and classic trespassery invasion in McGregor? Was the McGregor trespass more intentional than the Transco trespass? What is the analogy between Transco and Von V. Tafvale Re, Super at P1? Despite what Lord Hoffman said, why would the gas company ever buy insurance when it owns so many pipes? It would be an excellent self-insurer because, except for the states of the world that market insurance would normally exclude, acts of war, earthquakes, etc., it was unlikely that many pipes would break during the same brief period. Hence, the gas company's losses of pipes would be uncorrelated with each other, and the company's ownership of so many of them would make the gas company like Allstate. The latter insures thousands of cars and thereby, under the law of large numbers, faces a fully predictable and risk-free stream of expenses that wouldn't need to be insured. For the gas company, purchasing market insurance would simply add more cost from the insurance company's claims adjusters, etc., and yield zero benefit for the gas company. For that matter, even if the losses were somewhat correlated, many pipes could easily break on the same day, the gas company's shareholders could diversify their stock portfolios, buy not only gas company stock but also electricity company stock, etc., and cheaply throw off the risk in that way. 
American legal realists, with whom the UK House of Lords seems to have cast its lot, were never very economically sophisticated in their thinking about insurance. Losey v. Buchanan 51 NY 476, 1873, the plaintiffs brought this action to recover damages occasioned by the explosion of a steam boiler, while the same was owned and being used by the Saratoga Paper Company, at their mill, situated in the village of Schuylerville, Saratoga County. The boiler exploded on the 13th day of February, 1864, by means whereof it was projected and thrown onto the plaintiff's premises and through several of his buildings, thereby injuring and damaging the same, and destroying personal property therein. The defendants Buchanan and Bullard were joined with the paper company as defendants in the action, on the ground that they were trustees, stockholders, and agents of the corporation, and superintending its business as such, and therefore jointly liable with the company in the action. The Clutes, who manufactured the boiler, were also made 40 strict liability versus negligence CH1 defendants on the ground that they made it in a negligent manner, in consequence of which negligence the boiler exploded. Upon the first trial of this action, the trial judge dismissed the complaint as against the defendants Clute, who manufactured the engine, and held that the other defendants were strictly liable and excluded all evidence to show that they were not guilty of negligence. A lower appeals court reversed the ensuing judgment for the plaintiffs and ordered a new trial, holding that the defendants could be made liable only by proof against them of negligence. During the second trial, the trial judge instructed the jury that the defendants could be liable only if they had been negligent. On the question of negligence the jury decided against the Saratoga Paper Company and in favor of the two individual defendants, Buchanan and Bullard. The plaintiffs had claimed again in this second trial that all defendants were strictly liable without proof of any negligence and requested the trial judge so to rule. The trial judge instead instructed the jury that the defendants could be liable only if they had been negligent. So instructed, the jury returned a verdict against the paper company but in favor of the two owners, Buchanan and Bullard. The plaintiffs again appealed to the lower appeals court, the general term, on the ground that the jury had been misdirected in the second trial. The general term found that certain technical errors had been made and ordered a third trial. The individual defendants, Buchanan and Bullard, appealed from this order to the Court of Appeals of New York, the highest New York court, on the ground that no errors were committed during the second trial and that judgment should be entered in favor of them in accordance with the jury's verdict that they had not been negligent. The company did not appeal the adverse jury verdict that it had been negligent, probably because it was insolvent. Earl See after stating the facts and some other matters dash by becoming a member of civilized society, I am compelled to give up many of my natural rights, but I receive more than a compensation from the surrender by every other man of the same rights, and the security, advantage, and protection which the laws give me. So, too, the general rules that I may have the exclusive and undisturbed use and possession of my real estate, and that I must so use my real estate as not to injure my neighbor, are much modified by the exigencies of the social state. We must have factories, machinery, dams, canals and railroads. They are demanded by the manifold wants of mankind, and lay at the basis of all our civilization. If I have any of these upon my lands, and they are not a nuisance and are not so managed as to become such, 
I am not responsible for any damage they accidentally and unavoidably do my ch1 strict liability versus negligence 41 neighbor. He receives his compensation for such damage by the general good, in which he shares, and the right which he has to place the same things upon his lands. I may not place or keep a nuisance upon my land to the damage of my neighbor, and I have my compensation for the surrender of this right to use my own as I will by the similar restriction imposed upon my neighbor for my benefit. I hold my property subject to the risk that it may be unavoidably or accidentally injured by those who live near me, and as I move about upon the public highways and in all places where other persons may lawfully be, I take the risk of being accidentally injured in my person by them without fault on their part. Most of the rights of property, as well as of person, in the social state, are not absolute but relative, and they must be so arranged and modified, not unnecessarily infringing upon natural rights, as upon the whole to promote the general welfare. I have so far found no authorities and no principles which fairly sustain the broad claim made by the plaintiff, that the defendants are liable in this action without fault or negligence on their part to which the explosion of the boiler could be attributed. Notes 1. Losey and Rylands v. Fletcher. What is the distinction between Losey v. Buchanan and Rylands v. Fletcher, Supra at P15? The New York Court of Appeals considered whether Losey fell under the rule of Rylands v. Fletcher but did not distinguish the case because it said that Rylands was contrary to the law of New York. More specifically, the Losey Court said about Rylands, it is sufficient, however, to say that the law, as laid down in those cases Rylands v. Fletcher and its various appeals, is in direct conflict with the law as settled in this country. Here, if one builds a dam upon his own premises and thus holds back and accumulates the water for his benefit, or if he brings water upon his premises into a reservoir, in case the dam or the banks of the reservoir give away and the lands of a neighbor are thus flooded, he is not liable for the damage without proof of some fault or negligence on his part. Angel on Water Courses, 336, Taffin v. Curtis, 5 vt, 371, Todd v. Cochell, 17 calories, 97, Everett v. Hydraulic, etc., Co., 23 id, 225, Shrewsbury v. Smith, 12 Cushing, 177, Livingston v. Adams, 8 Cowan, 175, Bailey v. Mayer, etc., of New York, 3 Hill, 531, SC, 2 Dino, 433, Pixley v. Clark, 35 NY, 520, 524, Sheldon v. Sherman, 42 ID, 484. The true rule is laid down in the case of Livingston v. Adams as follows, where one builds a mill dam upon a proper model, and the 42 strict liability versus negligence ch1 work is well and substantially done, he is not liable to an action though it break away, in consequence of which his neighbor's dam and mill below are destroyed. Negligence should be shown in order to make him liable. On the reception of Rylands v. Fletcher in America, Jed Handelsman Shug Ehrman has written, in fact, a significant majority of the states actually accepted Rylands in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, at the height of the era of fault. While New York's highest court famously declared, in Ives v. South Buffalo Railway in 1911, that due process of law categorically required proof of fault, 
courts around the country had been applying Rylands over the previous three decades. A few states split on the validity of Rylands in the 1870s, but a wave of states from the mid-1880s to the early 1910s adopted Rylands, with 15 states and the District of Columbia solidly accepting Rylands, nine more leaning toward Rylands or its rule, five states wavering, and only three states consistently rejecting it. Just after the turn of the century, the California Supreme Court declared, more correctly than not, that Tehe American authorities, with hardly an exception, follow the doctrine laid down in the courts of England in Rylands. In the following years, some states shifted against Rylands, but an equivalent number of new states also adopted Rylands. Accordingly, a strong majority of states has consistently recognized this precedent for strict liability from about 1890 to the present. Jed Handelsman Shugerman, the floodgates of strict liability, bursting reservoirs and the adoption of Fletcher v. Rylands in the Gilded Age, 110 Yale LJ 333, 33435, 2000. Two road trains. In Powell v. Fall, 5QB 597, 1880, the defendant was held strictly liable for a fire started by the defendant's traction engine a steam locomotive that was pulling a train of cars along the road next to his farm. It burned down the plaintiff's haystack, which was next to the road. Needless to say, this technology did not catch on. Nevertheless, the traction engine in question complied with 24 and 25 VICT. C70 and 28 and 29 VICT. C83, which were the statutes then in force for regulating locomotives on public highways. Moreover, in the bench trial before Meller, J., he could find no evidence of the defendant's negligence. At the time the defendant's engine ignited the hayrick, the road train was not speeding, and the engineer was using due care. Nonetheless, 13 of 24 and 25 VICT. C-70, provided, nothing in this act contained shall authorize any person to use upon a highway a locomotive engine, which shall be so constructed or used as to cause a public or CH-1 strict liability versus negligence 43 private nuisance, and every such person so using such engine shall notwithstanding this act be liable to an indictment or action as the case may be, for such use where, but for the passing of this act, such indictment or action could be maintained. The plaintiffs took the position that this statutory provision held the defendant's strict liability intact, and the trial judge agreed, holding the defendant strictly liable. The defendant appealed on the grounds that the trial judge misdirected himself and that the evidence was insufficient to support the verdict and judgment. Held, for the plaintiff, that the trial court did not misdirect himself and the evidence was sufficient to support the verdict. Said Meller, J. In support of his earlier decision the principle which governs this case is that established by Fletcher v. Rylands. What is the relationship between Powell v. Fall and Von v. Tapvale re, Supra at P1? Is there a distinction between the two cases apart from the obvious one based on the terms of the road train legislation? Are victim precautions poorer for road trains than for conventional trains that run on tracks? Were road trains more of an unproven technology? Is strict liability especially appropriate for new and unproven technologies? 3. Blasting In Sullivan v. Dunham, 
1900, the plaintiff's intestate, Annie E. Harton, who was 19 years old, was hit by a tree as she was walking along a public road near the village of Irvington in Westchester County. Two of the defendants had been employed by the third defendant, Dunham, who owned a piece of land, to remove certain trees standing upon it. On the south side of the tract, about 300 feet from the nearest point of the highway in question, there was a large living elm tree, 60 to 70 feet in height, between the tree and the highway were some woodlands. The defendants put dynamite under the roots of this tree and ignited it, shattering the tree and throwing a section of the stump over the intervening forest, a distance of 412 feet, to the point on the highway where the plaintiff's intestate was traveling. She was struck by it with such force as to cause her death within a few hours. The trial court instructed the jury that the plaintiff did not have to show negligence on the defendant's part in order to recover. The jury returned a verdict for the plaintiff, and the defendants appealed. Held, for the plaintiff, that the trial court did not err in instructing the jury and that the evidence was sufficient to support the verdict. What is the distinction between Sullivan v. Dunham and Losey v. Buchanan, Supra at P39? 44 Strict Liability versus Negligence CH14 Falling Ice In Davis v. Niagara Falls Tower Co., 64 NE4, NY1902, the parties were owners of adjacent properties on the riverway in Niagara Falls, and the plaintiff sued the defendant for letting ice drop from its tower onto their museum. The plaintiff's museum had large skylights in its roof. The defendant built a hotel and 200-foot observatory tower right next door to the plaintiff's museum building. Visitors were transported to the observatory by elevator. The trial court found that during each winter ice formed on the defendant's tower from sleet and snow and from the spray from Niagara Falls. When a thaw occurred, large quantities of ice fell from the tower onto the roof of the plaintiff's building. The ice chunks were large and fast enough to endanger human life. Although no one had been killed, the falling ice regularly damaged the plaintiff's museum building. The damage to the plaintiff's building recurred each winter during periods of thaw. The trial court also found, however, that the tower was a safe, substantial, and suitable structure for the purpose for which it was used and that the defendant had not been negligent in any way. Nonetheless, based on all of its findings, the trial court entered verdict and judgment for the plaintiffs, and the defendant appealed to the appellate division, which affirmed. The defendant then appealed to the New York Court of Appeal. Held, for the plaintiff, that the trial court did not err in entering judgment for it. Said the court, in Tanner v. Valentine, 75 ill 624, it is said, it is well settled that if the owner of a building causes the water to flow from the roof upon the lot or ground of another, such other may recover of him for the damages sustained, unless prevented by some agreement. Hazeltine v. Edgmond, 35 Kansas 202, is to the same effect. It is to be observed that the structure of the tower is not on the division line between the land of the plaintiffs and that of the defendant, and, therefore, the ice that is formed on the posts, beams, and girders is accumulated wholly on the defendant's land. If the shape of the tower were such that rain falling on the defendant's premises would run down the posts and then be cast on plaintiff's building, plainly, under the authorities cited, the defendant would be liable. 
it can make no difference on the question of the defendant's liability, that the water, instead of being precipitated on the plaintiff's land, is allowed to congeal and freeze and fall in the form of ice. Nor is it material on the question of liability whether the ice proceeds from the fall of rain or from the spray and mist of Niagara Falls. The latter is just as much a natural phenomenon as the former. In climates where at certain seasons of the year the rain falls in the CH1 strict liability versus negligence 45 form of snow, the owner of land must build his structures with guards that would be unnecessary in places where there is no fall of snow. Likewise, where a structure is built so near Niagara Falls as to be subject to the precipitation thereon of spray and water from the falls, the owner is bound to take the necessary precautions against casting the water which falls on his own premises or the ice that is formed therefrom upon those of his neighbor. What is the analogy between Davis v. Niagara Falls Tower Co. and Rylands v. Fletcher? Note that Davis is a New York case. What is the distinction between Davis v. Niagara Falls Tower Co. and Losey v. Buchanan, Super at P39? Between Davis and Delano v. Mother's Supermarket, Inc., Super at P34? 5. What if it was an employee who got hurt? In Central Trust and Savings Bank v. Toppert, 554 and.e.2d820, ILAP 1990, the plaintiff bank sued a dead workers' employer for the workers' death in a blasting operation. In its count for absolute liability, the plaintiff alleged that the defendants owned or operated a certain rock quarry, and that in furtherance of the operations of the quarry L.D. Davis Construction Company, Inc., was hired to work with Charles Toppert in setting dynamite and caps in certain boreholes and exploding same. The plaintiff's decedent, as an employee of L.D. Davis Construction Company, Inc., was allegedly in the process of doing that when on May 18, 1984, at about 5.45 p.m. at said Rock River Stone Quarry, asterisk 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 while inserting a stick of dynamite with a cap into the 13th borehole, he was killed from a premature explosion. The plaintiff further alleged in that count that Charles Toppert or someone under the control of Charles Toppert had inserted about 10 sticks of dynamite into that same borehole immediately prior to the plaintiff's decedent's insertion of the cap dynamite. The plaintiff further alleged that the workplace was inherently dangerous in certain specified respects, that special precautions were not taken for the safety of the plaintiff's decedent such as certain specified examples, and T had as a result of said inherent danger, defendants asterisk 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 are absolutely liable to plaintiff for the pecuniary injuries suffered to the heirs of Lee D. Davis as a result of said death. The trial court dismissed this count from the plaintiff's complaint, and the plaintiff appealed to the appellate court of Illinois. Held, for the defendants, that the trial court did not err in dismissing the plaintiff's strict liability count. Said the court, 46 strict liability versus negligence ch1 in process treatise on torts is found the following helpful passage if the plaintiff asterisk 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 encounters the risk of injury from an abnormally dangerous thing or activity pursuant to a contract with the defendant asterisk 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 then it is quite possible that as between the parties it was impliedly if not expressly understood that there would be no liability in the absence of negligence Risks should be allocated in the way parties would normally expect those risks to be allocated in the absence of coercion or an expression to the contrary. Emphasis added. Prosser and Keaton on the Law of Tort 79 at 566, 
5th ed. 1984. The corporation employing the plaintiff's decedent was hired to assist in the blasting work at the quarry. While employees or agents of the quarry allegedly participated in the placement of the dynamite in the boreholes, the plaintiff's decedent had direct, physical control over what clearly was a particularly dangerous part of the work at the time of the premature explosion which caused his death. While each case will turn on its facts, in this case the facts alleged lead us to conclude that the parties could not have reasonably understood the defendants to be strictly liable, i.e. liable without any fault on the part of the defendants, for injuries to or the death of the plaintiff's decedent in the event dynamite prematurely exploded. Hence, we hold that under the facts here the plaintiff cannot maintain an action against these defendants based on strict or absolute liability. 6. Creosote Fumes from the Tracks In West v. Bristol Tramways Co., 1902 KB 14, CA, the plaintiff sued for damage done to his plants by fumes from the defendant's creosote tracks. The plaintiff, a market gardener, sued the defendants to recover damages for injury alleged to have been caused to plants and shrubs belonging to the plaintiff through the fumes given off by creosote wood pavement which had been laid by the defendants upon tram tracks adjacent to the plaintiff's premises. The defendants denied that the injury had been occasioned as alleged and pleaded that they were authorized to lay the pavement as they had done by the terms of their special act, the Bristol Tramways Act, 1894, 57 and 58 Vic CCLV. By S8 of that act it was provided that the company shall pave with wood, or, by mutual agreement, with other suitable material, to the satisfaction of the corporation, a, so much of, among other specified roads, the road in question as lies between the rails of the tramways in the said respective roads, and so much of the roadway as extends 18 inches beyond the rails of and on each side of such tramways, and also, where double lines are or shall be laid on those roads, the portion of the roadway between such double lines. CH1 Strict Liability versus Negligence 47 Evidence was given that there were two methods of wood paving which had been in general use for several years. The first was to use untreated blocks of eucalyptus, a hardwood that was then called jarrow wood. The second method was to use blocks of softer wood coated with creosote, a wood-preserving chemical. Evidence was also given to show that the latter method was more suitable for the locality where the pavement in question was laid, owing to the fact that it was damp, and jarrow wood was apt to expand under the influence of moisture. There was no evidence to suggest that the injury to the plaintiff was foreseeable to the defendant before the accident. Indeed, after the fact, it appeared that the accident was to some extent bad luck because the creosote fumes would not have damaged the plaintiff's plants if the paving operations had been carried out at another time of the year. The jury found, in answer to questions left to them by the recorder, that the injury to the plaintiff's plants and shrubs was caused by the wood paving used by the defendants, that it was not absolutely necessary for the defendants to pave the road as they did, and at the time they did, and that it was reasonably necessary for them to pave the road as they did and at the time they did, according to the knowledge of the defendants at the time, but that in the light of the evidence given at the hearing it was not reasonably necessary. On these findings the recorder gave judgment for the plaintiff, and a panel of the divisional court affirmed his judgment. The defendants appealed to the court of appeal. Held, for the plaintiff, that there was sufficient evidence to support the judgment below. Said the court, 
per Lord Alverstone, CJ I have listened carefully to the arguments of the defendant's counsel, but they have not succeeded in raising in my mind any serious doubt as to the correctness of the judgment of the divisional court. I will deal first with the point, which was most strongly pressed upon us, that, apart from any question of statutory authority, the plaintiff had no common law right of action against the defendants. In my opinion the proposition of law applicable to this case is correctly stated in Garrett on Nuisances, 2nd ed. p. 129, and I will read that statement as part of my judgment, as, in my opinion, the law on the subject could not be more clearly expressed. It is as follows, where the owner of land uses his land for any purpose for which it may in the ordinary course of enjoyment of land be used, he will not, in the absence of negligence on his part, be liable, though damage result to his neighbor in the ordinary enjoyment by the latter of his property, for it lies with the latter to protect himself from the operation of natural laws. But, if the owner of land uses it for any 48 strict liability versus negligence ch1 purpose which from its character may be called non-natural or extraordinary user, such as, for example, the introduction onto the land of something which in the natural condition of the land is not upon it, he does so at his peril, and is liable if sensible damage results to his neighbor's land from its escape, or if the latter's legitimate enjoyment of his land is thereby materially curtailed. If the contention of the defendant's counsel in this case is correct, this last proposition is stated much too widely, for they contend that the owner of land who has so acted has not done so at his peril, and is not liable, unless the plaintiff shews that the thing introduced onto the land was, to the knowledge of the defendant, likely to escape and cause damage. The authorities do not, in my opinion, support the suggestion that this onus is cast on the party injured. The nearest approach to authority in favor of the defendant's contention is to be found in cases where it has been said, with regard to tame animals, that, where such an animal is allowed to escape, its owner would only be liable for some, and not for all, of the damage which it might cause, for instance, if the natural food of the animal was grass, he would be liable for the grass it might trample down or consume, but not for injury to a person through its biting or goring him, Seapor. Blackburn J. in Fletcher v. Rylands. But the principle on which those authorities depend does not really support the contention of the defendant's counsel, as may be seen from the judgment of Bowen L.J. in Filburn v. People's Palace and Aquarium Co., which, substantially, stated the law on the subject in the same way as Lord Esher M.R. in that case had done. He there said, if from the experience of mankind a particular class of animals is dangerous, though individuals may be tamed, a person who keeps one of the class takes the risk of any damage it may do. If, on the other hand, the animal kept belongs to a class which, according to the experience of mankind, is not dangerous, and not likely to do mischief, and if the class is dealt with by mankind on that footing, a person may safely keep such an animal, unless he knows that the particular animal that he keeps is likely to do mischief. In order to bring this case within that proposition, the defendant's counsel must shew that the thing which the defendants introduced onto the land in this case was something which, according to the common experience of mankind, had proved not to be dangerous, or likely to cause mischief. In such a case the onus of proof rests upon the defendants. 
it may perhaps be doubtful whether this doctrine with regard to the common experience of mankind applies to chemicals, but, assuming that it does, there was no evidence in this case that, according to the common experience of mankind, creosote was not likely to cause mischief such as in this case it must be taken to have CH1 strict liability versus negligence 49 caused. It is clear that it is not, for this purpose, the knowledge of a particular witness that is to be considered, but the common experience of mankind in general. As to the first point, namely, that the defendants have no need to rely on any statutory authority, in my opinion the appeal fails. It seems to me that the case comes within the second proposition which I have quoted from Garrett on nuisances, and that the defendants, having introduced upon the road in question something the use of which may be said to constitute a non-natural or extraordinary user of the land, have done so at their peril, and are, apart from any statutory justification for their action, liable for the mischief which has resulted to the plaintiff. That being so, the question arises whether the defendants are protected from any liability by statute. It is, of course, established law that, if a statute has, either expressly, or by necessary implication, authorized the doing of a particular thing, no action will, in the absence of negligence in the mode of doing it, lie in respect of damage thereby caused. In Von V. Tafbale Rico Coburn C.J. said dash dash although it may be true, that, if a person keeps an animal of known dangerous propensities, or a dangerous instrument, he will be responsible to those who are thereby injured, independently of any negligence in the mode of dealing with the animal, or using the instrument, yet when the legislature has sanctioned and authorized the use of a particular thing, and it is used for the purpose for which it was authorized, and every precaution has been observed to prevent injury, the sanction of the legislature carries with it this consequence, that, if damage results from the use of such thing, independently of negligence, the party using it is not responsible. Then did the words of the statute in the present case authorize the defendants to do what they have done? The statute provides that they shall pave with wood, or, by mutual agreement, with other suitable material, to the satisfaction of the corporation so much of, among other roads, the road in question as lies between the rails of their tramways and as extends 18 inches beyond the rails of and on each side of such tramways. In my opinion that provision does not authorize the defendants to pave the specified portion of the road with creosote wood. If the legislature had meant to say that the defendants might use any kind of wood pavement, and therefore that, whatever consequences might ensue therefrom, they should not, in the absence of negligence, be responsible, I think different language would have been used. The obligation placed upon them is to use wood pavement, but not to use a particular kind of wood pavement which is dangerous. There was some suggestion that at another time of the year the use of creosote 50 strict liability versus negligence CH1 wood could not be mischievous, but, however that may be, the jury in this case must be taken to have found that the use of it, as and when it was used, did cause damage through the fumes arising from it. For these reasons I think that the contention that the plaintiff had no right of action at common law, and the contention that the defendants were authorized by statute to do what they did, both of them, fail, and therefore the appeal must be dismissed. What is the distinction between West v. Bristol Tramways Co. and Von v. Taft Vale Re., Supra at P1? 
is the strict liability result in West consistent with Blackburn's statement of his rule in Rylands v. Fletcher, i.e., the person who for his own purposes brings on his lands and collects and keeps there anything likely to do mischief if it escapes, etc., super at P16? More specifically, was creosote something that was likely to do damage if it should escape? Also, did the West defendants collect and keep creosote on their lands? How did West extend Rylands v. Fletcher? 7 Explosion at the Munitions Factory In Raynham Chemical Works, Limited v. Belvedere Fish Guanoco, 1921-2AC465, HL, the plaintiff sued for damage to their property from an explosion coming from the defendant's munitions factory. During World War I, the defendants Feldman and Partridge acquired patents for making high explosive in a novel way. They then obtained contracts from the British government and acquired the lease of land upon which a factory was built. They organized a limited liability company, the Raynham Chemical Works, in which they were the principal directors and shareholders. Nevertheless, at the time of the explosion, the two individual defendants were still the landlords of this new company. On September 14, 1916, a violent explosion occurred at the defendants' range works, Raynham, in the county of Essex, causing loss of life and serious damage to adjoining property. Some of the premises so damaged were owned by the plaintiffs, the Belvedere Fish Guanoco, and related persons, who brought the suit to recover for their loss. The plaintiffs originally sued only the limited liability company, but when it appeared that this company was insolvent and that the individual defendants were still leasing it land, the plaintiffs sued Feldman and Partridge as joint defendants. Scruton, L.J., tried the case and found all defendants liable under the rule of Rylands v. Fletcher. The defendants appealed to the Court of Appeal, which affirmed. The defendants then appealed to the House of Lords. CH1 Strict Liability v. Negligence 51 held, for the plaintiffs, that there was sufficient evidence to support the judgment below against both the company and the individual defendants. Said the court, now, the foundation of the action was a claim based upon the familiar doctrine established by the case of Fletcher v. Rylands, which depends upon this that even apart from negligence the use of land by one person in an exceptional manner that causes damage to another, and not necessarily an adjacent owner, is actionable, West v. Bristol Tramways Co., Charing Cross Electricity Supply Co. v. Hydraulic Power Co. In the present case the use complained of was that for the purpose of making munitions, which was certainly not the common and ordinary use of the land, two substances, namely, nitrate of soda and dinitrophenol, were stored in close proximity, with the result that on a fire breaking out they exploded with terrific violence. It may be accepted that it was not known to either of the defendants that this danger existed, but that in itself affords no excuse, and the result is that the plaintiff's cause of action is well founded and the only matter for determination is against whom the action should be brought. What is the distinction between Raynham Chemical Works, Limited v. Belvedere Fish Guanoco and Losi v. Buchanan, Super at P39? Was the Raynham defendant's activity of manufacturing munitions authorized by the government? The explosion took place at the height of World War I, and the explosives the defendant was manufacturing were doubtless destined for the government's use in that war. In this light how does Raynham extend West v. Bristol Tramways Co., Super at P46?
What is the superficial similarity between Raynham and von V. Tafbeilri, Supra at P1? What is the distinction between the two cases? Given that the Raynham factory was so necessary to the war effort, do you think a jury might have been inclined to forgive the defendant's negligence? 8. Don't ask Jeeves. In Musgrove v. Pandelis, 1919 2 KB 43, CA, AFG, 1991 KB 314, the plaintiff was the tenant of an apartment above a garage where the defendant stored his automobile. The defendant employed a chauffeur who had taken a few driving lessons but otherwise was unskilled with automobiles, which at the time were new technology. The chauffeur was sent to clean the car and found that he had to move it first. He opened the hood, turned on the gas tap, and started the engine. There was a sudden explosion, and flames came from the carburetor. If the chauffeur had immediately shut off the gasoline, the fire would soon have burned out and would not have spread. 52 Strict Liability versus Negligence CH1 Instead, however, he went to look for a cloth, and by the time he got back, the car, the garage, and finally the plaintiff's apartment had caught fire. Held, for the plaintiff, by Banks, LJ, that the motor car with its petrol tank full or partially filled with petrol was a dangerous thing to bring into the garage and thus fell within the rule of Rylands v. Fletcher. Duke, LJ, said, in the present case there was petrol which was easily convertible into an inflammable vapor, there was the apparatus for producing the spark, and added to those there was a person supposed to control the combustion but inexperienced and unequal to the task. Taking together the presence of the petrol and the production of the inflammable gas or those combustibles together with the inexperience of the person placed in charge of them it is impossible to say that this is not an instance of the principle laid down by Blackburn, J. How is an exploding gasoline tank, in 1917 or 1918, distinguishable from a sparking locomotive, in 1858? The first steam railroads were built in the late 1820s and early 1830s. What is the analogy between Musgrove v. Pandelis and Gill v. Swan, Supra at P10? The distinction between Musgrove and Walker Shoe Store v. Howard's Hobby Shop, Supra at P34? 9 Newfangled LPG Volvo In Coxhill v. Forward, QBD March 19, 1986, Unpub, the Queen's Bench Division held that the principle of strict liability applied to an explosion of a 1978 Volvo 244 DL, retrofitted with a novel liquefied petroleum gas, LPG, system. The explosion caused a fire, which burned down a party wall between the defendant's garage and the plaintiff's and ultimately destroyed the plaintiff's car. 10 Electric Wires In Kent v. Gulf States Utilities, 418 so. 2D 493, LA 1982, the plaintiff sued a power company for the death of his son from an electrical injury. At the time of the accident, the son was 18 years old and a new employee of a highway construction firm. His job was to make anti-hydroplaning grooves in the surface of the highway by pulling a metal rake, approximately 5 feet wide, across the surface of the freshly poured concrete. The portion of the highway then under construction ran under three high-voltage distribution lines, which intersected the highway at an angle. The uninsulated lines, located 24 feet 8 inches above the surface of the slab, were clearly visible, 
and everyone on the construction site, including the plaintiff's son, was aware of them. The metal rake had an aluminum handle that was 30 feet long. That length was necessary because of the double width of the roadway under construction. While engaged in a special procedure to avoid the wires, CH1 strict liability versus negligence 53 the handle came into contact with them and electrocuted the plaintiff's son. The jury awarded the plaintiff $3 million against the power company, but the trial court reduced that award to $1 million. The claim against the employer was settled out of court probably for a very small amount because the claim was probably barred by Louisiana's workers' compensation statute. Held, for the defendant power company, that the evidence was insufficient to support the verdict, because the defendant was innocent of negligence as a matter of law and was not strictly liable. The plaintiff recovered no damages. Notice that in this chapter we are examining activities that lead to strict liability. What activity of the Kent defendant did the Kent plaintiff argue was subject to strict liability? Was it the defendant's fault that the 30-foot handle on the deceased's rake was one of nature's best electrical conductors? Given that construction companies may sometimes be tempted to give their employees such rakes, is strict liability for the power company a good idea? What is the analogy between Kent v. Gulf State Utilities and Central Trust and Savings Bank v. Toppert, Super at P45? Additional cases are collected in annotation, liability for injury or death resulting when object is manually brought into contact with, or close proximity to, electric line, 33A.L.R.4TH809, 1984 and sub-1989. 11 Excitable Minks in Madsen v. East Jordan Irrigation Co., 125p.2d794, Utah 1942, the plaintiff was the owner of the Madsen Mink Farm. The farm was 100 yards from the defendant's irrigation canal. The defendant used explosives in performing repairs on the canal, and the resulting vibrations and noises caused 108 of the plaintiff's mother minks to kill 230 of their kittens. Each kitten was worth $25. The plaintiff's complaint alleged that when minks were caring for their offspring they were highly excitable and that when they were disturbed they would become terrified and would kill their young. The trial court sustained the defendant's demurrer to the complaint. The plaintiff appealed. Held, for the defendant, that the complaint failed to state a cause of action. Said the court, had the concussion in the instant case killed the kittens directly, Without the intervention of the mother minks, the majority rule of liability in concussion cases would have been applicable, but the case at bar presents the additional element of the mother minks independent acts, thereby raising a question of proximate causation. 54 Strict Liability versus Negligence CH1 Query, did the mother minks intervention break the chain of causation and therefore require an allegation of negligence? Many years ago, 1896, a main court held that the intervening act of an animal broke the chain of causation to such extent that blasting could not be considered the proximate cause of injury and negligence on the part of the blaster had to be proved. Wadsworth v. Marshall, 88 me 263. In the Wadsworth case, the plaintiff was riding along a public highway near which defendant was operating a quarry. He exploded a blast which frightened plaintiff's horse and she, plaintiff, was injured. 
there was a main statute requiring persons engaged in blasting to give reasonable notice of their intention to blast to all persons in the vicinity of the blast. The trial court excluded testimony as to the viciousness and nervousness of plaintiff's horse, proceeding upon the ground that defendant violated the statute by failing to give the required notice and therefore he was liable regardless of the character of the horse or any negligence of the plaintiff. The appellate court reversed the lower court's decision, holding that it would be a harsh construction of the statute to hold that the negligence of the quarryman in not giving notice subjected him to liability for damages largely, if not wholly, resulting from the negligence of the traveler in riding an unsuitable horse. The court ruled that the established doctrine of contributory negligence, as a defense, applies to this class of actions. While the above ruling interjects an element contributory negligence which is absent in the present case, it impresses one with the thought that he who fires explosives is not liable for every occurrence following the explosion which has a semblance of connection to it. Jake's horse might become so excited that he would run next door and kick a few ribs out of size Jersey cow, but is such a thing to be anticipated from an explosion? Whether the cases are concussion or non-concussion, the results chargeable to the non-negligent user of explosives are those things ordinarily resulting from an explosion. Shock, air vibrations, thrown missiles are all illustrative of the anticipated results of explosives, they are physical as distinguished from mental in character. What is the distinction between Madsen v. East Jordan Irrigation Co. and Sullivan v. Dunham, the L case of the dynamited tree, Super at P43? How about the distinction between Madsen and West v. Bristol Tramways Co., Super at P46? What is the analogy to Carstairs v. Taylor, Super at P24? CH1 Strict Liability versus Negligence 5512 Concussion Damage Traditionally the courts held that a strict liability trespass principle applies to harm done by debris thrown by blasting operations, but that a property owner could recover for concussion harm only by showing that the defendant had blasted negligently. C. E.G., City of Cherryvale v. Studevin, 76 Kansas 285, 91 P60, 1907. Nonetheless, in Harper v. Regency Development Co., 399 so. 2D 248, Alla 1981, the plaintiffs, whose houses were damaged by concussion from the defendant's blasting, were held to state a good claim in strict liability. Can you see why from an economic point of view it would be easier to explain strict liability for thrown debris than strict liability for concussion harm? 13 Long Distance Pollution in Cambridge Water Co. v. Eastern Counties Leather PLC, 1994-2 AC 264, HL 1993, the plaintiff sued the defendants for contaminating its water well. The company defendant was an old established leather manufacturer that used a chemical solvent known as perchloroethene, PCE, in the process of degreasing pelts at its tanning works in Sauston, not to be confused with Sauston Mill, mentioned below. Over the years there were regular spillages of relatively small amounts of the solvent onto the concrete floor of the tannery. The total spillage was at least 1,000 gallons. The spilled solvent, which was not readily soluble in water, 
seeped through the tannery floor into the soil below until it reached an impermeable strata 50 meters below the surface from where it percolated along a plume at the rate of about 8 meters a day until it reached the strata from which the plaintiffs extracted water for domestic use via a well, which the English call a borehole. The distance between the plaintiff's well and the defendant's tannery was 173 miles and time taken for the solvent to seep from the tannery to the well was about nine months. The plaintiffs brought an action against the defendants claiming damages in negligence and nuisance and under the rule in Rylands v. Fletcher for contamination of the water extracted from their well. The source of the contamination was not disputed. The trial judge dismissed the plaintiff's claim on the grounds that the actions in negligence and nuisance failed because the defendants could not reasonably have foreseen, before 1976, after the pollution had already occurred, that repeated spillages of small quantities of solvent would enter the underground strata or that, having done so, detectable quantities would be found down aquifer and thereby lead to any environmental hazard in water. The trial judge also ruled that the plaintiff's Rylands v. Fletcher claim failed because the use of the solvent 56 strict liability versus negligence CH1 in the defendant's tanning business, under the circumstances, constituted a natural use of their land. On appeal by the plaintiffs, the Court of Appeal held that the defendants were strictly liable for the contamination of the water percolating under the plaintiff's land and awarded damages of over £1 million against the defendants. The defendants appealed to the House of Lords. Held, for the defendants, that the trial court did not err in dismissing the plaintiff's suit. Said the court, per Lord Goff of Chiavelli, LJIT appears to me to be appropriate now to take the view that foreseeability of damage of the relevant type should be regarded as a prerequisite of liability in damages under the rule of Rylands v. Fletcher. Such a conclusion can, as I have already stated, be derived from Blackburn J.S. original statement of the law, and I can see no good reason why this prerequisite should not be recognized under the rule, as it has been in the case of private nuisance. Turning to the facts of the present case, it is plain that, at the time when the PCE was brought onto ECL's land, and indeed when it was used in the tanning process there, nobody at ECL could reasonably have foreseen the resultant damage which occurred at CWC Spurhole at Sawston Mill near Cambridge, not to be confused with Sawston, which was where the defendant's factory was located 173 miles away. However, there remains for consideration a point adumbrated in the course of argument, which is relevant to liability in nuisance as well as under the rule in Rylands v. Fletcher. It appears that, in the present case, pools of neat PCE are still in existence at the base of the chalk aquifer beneath ECL's premises, and the escape of dissolved phase PCE from ECL's land is continuing to the present day. On this basis it can be argued that, since it has become known that PCE, if it escapes, is capable of causing damage by rendering water available at boreholes unsaleable for domestic purposes, ECL could be held liable, in nuisance, or under the rule in Rylands v. Fletcher, in respect of damage caused by the continuing escape of PCE from its land occurring at any time after such damage had become foreseeable by ECL. For my part, I do not consider that such an argument is well founded. Here we are faced with a situation where the substance in question, PCE, has so traveled down through the drift and the chalk aquifer beneath ECL's premises that it has passed beyond the control of ECL. 
to impose strict liability on ECL in the CH1 strict liability versus negligence 57 circumstances, either as the creator of a nuisance or under the rule in Rylands v. Fletcher, on the ground that it has subsequently become reasonably foreseeable that the PCE may, if it escapes, cause damage, appears to me to go beyond the scope of the regimes imposed under either of these two related heads of liability. This is because when ECL created the conditions which have ultimately led to the present state of affairs whether by bringing the PCE in question onto its land, or by retaining it there, or by using it in its tanning process it could not possibly have foreseen that damage of the type now complained of might be caused thereby. Indeed, long before the relevant legislation came into force, the PCE had become irretrievably lost in the ground below. In such circumstances, I do not consider that ECL should be under any greater liability than that imposed for negligence. At best, if the case is regarded as one of nuisance, it should be treated no differently from, for example, the case of the landslip in Leakey v. National Trust for Places of Historic Interest or Natural Beauty 1981 All ER 17, 1980 QB 485. In the result, since those responsible at ECL could not at the relevant time reasonably have foreseen that the damage in question might occur, the claim of CWC for damages under the rule in Rylands v. Fletcher must fail. I turn to the question whether the use by ECL of its land in the present case constituted a natural use, with the result that ECL cannot be held liable under the rule in Rylands v. Fletcher. In view of my conclusion on the issue of foreseeability, I can deal with this point shortly. The judge held that it was a natural use. He said, in my judgment, in considering whether the storage of organic chlorines as an adjunct to a manufacturing process is a non-natural use of land, I must consider whether that storage created special risks for adjacent occupiers and whether the activity was for the general benefit of the community. It seems to me inevitable that I must consider the magnitude of the storage and the geographical area in which it takes place in answering the question. Sawston is properly described as an industrial village, and the creation of employment is clearly for the benefit of that community. I do not believe that I can enter upon an assessment of the point on a scale of desirability that the manufacture of wash leathers comes, and I content myself with holding that the storage in this place is a natural use of land. 58 Strict Liability versus Negligence CH1 Fortunately, I do not think it is necessary for the purposes of the present case to attempt any redefinition of the concept of natural or ordinary use. This is because I am satisfied that the storage of chemicals in substantial quantities, and their use in the manner employed at ECL's premises, cannot fall within the exception. For the purpose of testing the point, let it be assumed that ECL was well aware of the possibility that PCE, if it escaped, could indeed cause damage, for example by contaminating any water with which it became mixed so as to render that water undrinkable by human beings. I cannot think that it would be right in such circumstances to exempt ECL from liability under the rule in Rylands v. Fletcher on the ground that the use was natural or ordinary. The mere fact that the use is common in the tanning industry cannot, in my opinion, be enough to bring the use within the exception, nor the fact that Sawston contains a small industrial community which is worthy of encouragement or support. Indeed I feel bound to say that the storage of substantial quantities of chemicals on industrial premises should be regarded as an almost classic case of non-natural use, 
and I find it very difficult to think that it should be thought objectionable to impose strict liability for damage caused in the event of their escape. It may well be that, now that it is recognized that foreseeability of harm of the relevant type is a prerequisite of liability in damages under the rule, the courts may feel less pressure to extend the concept of natural use to circumstances such as those in the present case, and in due course it may become easier to control this exception, and to ensure that it has a more recognizable basis of principle. For these reasons, I would not hold that ECL should be exempt from liability on the basis of the exception of natural use. However, for the reasons I have already given, I would allow ECL's appeal with costs before your lordship's house and in the courts below. What is the distinction between Cambridge Water Co. v. Eastern Counties Leather PLC and Rylands v. Fletcher, Super at P15? What is the relationship between Cambridge Water Co. and West v. Bristol Tramways Co., Super at P46? Does a reasonable distinction exist between the two cases? CH1 Strict Liability vs. Negligence 59 Bolton v. Stone 1951 AC 850, 1 All-ER-1078, HL, Rev. G, 1951 KB 201, 1949 2 All-ER-851, CA-1949, Rev. G, 1949 1 All-ER-237, Manchester Assizes 1948, the plaintiff, Miss Bessie Stone, was standing in front of her garden gate at No. 10 Beckenham Road, Cheatham Hill, Manchester, England, when she was struck by a cricket ball hit out of the park next door by a player from the visiting team. Her quiet residential street adjoined Cheatham Cricket Ground, which had been in the neighborhood since 1864, before the plaintiff's house and even before her street had been built. The cricket grounds were enclosed on the plaintiff's side by a seven-foot fence. There was evidence that on rare occasions, over a period of years, balls had been struck over the fence, sometimes into the garden of the plaintiff's neighbor. Nonetheless, all agreed that the hit in question was outstanding, covering a distance of about 98 yards, which was 20 yards beyond the fence. Mr. Milsom, one of the defendants and a member of the club for over 30 years, testified that it was the best hit that he had ever seen and that it cleared the fence by many, many feet. The captain of the home team, who had been playing at Cheatham Hill for 28 years, confirmed Milsom's testimony. The plaintiff sued three members as representatives of the club that owned the grounds, stating one count in negligence and another in nuisance. After a bench trial the defendants received judgment on both counts. That judgment was reversed by the Court of Appeal, which held that the trial court erred in its factual determination that there had been no negligence and that the plaintiff was entitled to verdict and judgment on her negligence count. The defendants appealed to the House of Lords. The plaintiff's counsel argued, among other things, that the principle of Rylands v. Fletcher applied to this case. Read. L.J. My lords, it was readily foreseeable that an accident such as befell the respondent might possibly occur during one of the appellant's cricket matches. Balls had been driven into the public road from time to time, and it was obvious that if a person happened to be where a ball fell that person would receive injuries which might or might not be serious. On the other hand, it was plain that the chance of that happening was small. It follows that the chance of a person ever being struck even in a long period of years was very small.
it would take a good deal to make me believe that the law has departed so far from the standards which guide ordinary careful people in ordinary life. In the crowded conditions of modern life even the most careful person cannot avoid creating some risks and accepting others. What a man must not do, and what I think a careful man tries not to do, is to create a risk which is substantial. It was argued that this case 60 strict liability versus negligence ch1 comes within the principle in Rylands v Fletcher, but I agree with your lordships that there is no substance in this argument. In my judgment, the test to be applied here is whether the risk of damage to a person on the road was so small that a reasonable man in the position of the appellants, considering the matter from the point of view of safety, would have thought it right to refrain from taking steps to prevent the danger. In my judgment, the appeal should be allowed. Radcliffe, L.J. My lords, I agree that this appeal must be allowed. I agree with regret, because I have much sympathy with the decision that commended itself to the majority of the members of the Court of Appeal. I can see nothing unfair in the appellants being required to compensate the respondent for the serious injury that she has received as a result of the sport that they have organized on their cricket ground at Cheatham Hill but the law of negligence is concerned less with what is fair than with what is culpable, and I cannot persuade myself that the appellants have been guilty of any culpable act or omission in this case. It seems to me that a reasonable man, taking account of the chances against an accident happening, would not have felt himself called on either to abandon the use of the ground for cricket or to increase the height of his surrounding fences. He would have done what the appellants did. In other words, he would have done nothing. Whether, if the unlikely event of an accident did occur and his play turned to another's hurt, he would have thought it equally proper to offer no more consolation to his victim than the reflection that a social being is not immune from social risks, I do not say, for I do not think that that is a consideration which is relevant to legal liability. I agree with the others of your lordships that, if the respondent cannot succeed in negligence, she cannot succeed on any other head of claim. Appeal allowed. Notes 1. Remember the objective. Our objective is still to adumbrate the rule that allocates accidents between negligence and strict liability. Are escaping cricket balls governed by the rule of negligence or the rule of strict liability? 2. The read the language method. Recall that in Rylands v. Fletcher, Super at P15, Blackburn, LJ, stated the true rule to be that the person who for his own purposes brings on his lands and collects ch1 strict liability versus negligence 61 and keeps there anything likely to do mischief if it escapes, must keep it in at his peril, and, if he does not do so, is prima facie answerable for all the damage which is the natural consequence of its escape. In Bolton v Stone did the defendants bring cricket balls onto their land for their own purposes? Is a flying cricket ball likely to do mischief if it escapes? 3. Bring me my chariot of fire. At the Manchester Assizes, the trial level, Oliver, J., had held, I hope it will never be said of cricket in this country that it is a non-natural use of land. Stone v. Bolton, 1949 1 All ER 237, Manchester Assizes 1948, for can the cases be reconciled? What is the relationship between Bolton v. Stone and Rylands v. Fletcher, super at P15? In other words, does Bolton v. Stone extend, limit, or overrule the earlier case? What is the distinction between Bolton and Fletcher?
can the Bolton result of no liability be understood in terms of the Rickards and Carstairs notion that something is a natural use if it is of mutual benefit to the parties concerned? What is the relationship between Bolton v. Stone and Vaughn v. Tafvale re, Supra at P1? Are the facts of the two cases in any way analogous? Did both accidents occur near a highway? What is the relationship between Bolton v. Stone and Sullivan v. Dunham, the L case of the blasted tree, Supra at P43? What is the distinction between the two cases? When you distinguish two cases, the distinction need not reconcile all cases in the line. A distinction is less ambitious than a gloss. 5. Church Bell In Rogers v. Elliott, 146 Massachusetts 394, 1888, the plaintiff sued the defendant for ringing a church bell. The plaintiff lived in Providence Town on Cape Cod and got sunstroke on a Saturday afternoon. His father carried him home. Right across the street, in fact only 20 feet away, was a church. The doctor who came to treat him said that loud noises could throw the plaintiff into convulsions. Both the plaintiff's doctor and his father went across the street and asked the defendant, the church manager, not to ring the bell while the plaintiff was sick. Nonetheless, the defendant refused, and the next day he rang the bell eight times, twice before each of the four scheduled masses. The plaintiff, who had his windows shut, was thrown into violent and painful convulsions at each time that the bell on the church was rung, as well as when other bells in the town were rung, or a whistle on a steamboat in the harbor was blown, and once when the town clock struck. These convulsions slowed his recovery. The trial court directed a verdict for the defendant, and the plaintiff appealed. 62 Strict Liability versus Negligence CH1 held, for the defendant, that the trial court did not err in directing a verdict for him. Said the court, if one's right to use his property were to depend upon the effect of the use upon a person of peculiar temperament or disposition, or upon one suffering from an uncommon disease, the standard for measuring it would be so uncertain and fluctuating as to paralyze industrial enterprises. In the case at bar it is not contended that the ringing of the bell for church services in the manner shown by the evidence materially affected the health or comfort of ordinary people in the vicinity, but the plaintiff's claim rests upon the injury done him on account of his peculiar condition. The plaintiff, in his brief, concedes that there was no evidence of express malice on the part of the defendant, but contends that malice was implied in his acts. In the absence of evidence that he acted wantonly, or with express malice, this implication could not come from his exercise of his legal rights. What is the distinction between Rogers v. Elliott and McGregor v. Barton Sand and Gravel, Inc., Supra at P32? Did the Rogers Church Bell cause a classic trespassery invasion from which the plaintiff suffered? Siegler v. Coleman 502 P.2d 1181, Washington 1972, Cert. Denied, 411 U.S. 983, 1973. Hale, J-17 year old Carol J. House died in the flames of a gasoline explosion when her car encountered a pool of thousands of gallons of spilled gasoline. She was driving home from her after-school job in the early evening of November 22, 1967, along Capitol Lake Drive in Olympia, it was dark but dry, her car's headlamps were burning. 
there was a slight impact with some object, a muffled explosion, and then searing flames from gasoline pouring out of an overturned trailer tank engulfed her car. The result of the explosion is clear, but the real causes of what happened will remain something of an eternal mystery. Aaron L. Coleman had been a truck driver for nearly 11 years after he completed the 10th grade in high school and after he had worked at other jobs for a few years. He had been driving for Pacific Intermountain Express for about four months, usually the night shift out of the Texaco bulk plant in Tumwater. That evening of November 22nd, he was scheduled to drive a gasoline truck and trailer unit, fully loaded with gasoline, from Tumwater to Port Angeles. Before leaving the Texaco plant, he inspected the trailer, checking the lights, hitch, air hoses, and tires. Finding nothing wrong, he then set out, driving the fully loaded truck tank and trailer tank, stopping briefly at the Trails End Cafe for a cup of coffee. It was just a few minutes after 6 p.m., and dark, but the roads were dry when he started the drive to deliver his cargo 3,800CH1 strict liability versus negligence 63 gallons of gasoline in the truck tank and 4,800 gallons of gasoline in the trailer tank. With all vehicle and trailer running lights on, he drove the truck and trailer onto Interstate Highway 5, proceeded north on that freeway at about 50 miles per hour, he said and took the off-ramp about one mile later to enter Highway 101 at the Capitol Lake Interchange. Running downgrade on the off-ramp, he felt a jerk, looked into his left-hand mirror and then his right-hand mirror to see that the trailer lights were not in place. The trailer was still moving but leaning over hard, he observed, onto its right side. The trailer then came loose. Realizing that the tank trailer had disengaged from his tank truck, he stopped the truck without skidding its tires. He got out and ran back to see that the tank trailer had crashed through a chain-link highway fence and had come to rest upside down on Capitol Lake Drive below. He heard a sound, he said, like somebody kicking an empty 50-gallon drum and that is when the fire started. The fire spread, he thought, about 100 feet down the road. The trailer was owned by defendant Pacific Intermountain Express. It had traveled about 329,000 miles prior to November 22, 1967, and had been driven by Mr. Coleman without incident down the particular underpass above Capitol Lake Drive about 50 times. When the trailer landed upside down on Capitol Lake Drive, its lights were out, and it was unilluminated when Carol House's car in one way or another ignited the spilled gasoline. Carol House was burned to death in the flames. There was no evidence of impact on the vehicle she had driven, Coleman said, except that the left front headlight was broken. The jury apparently found that defendants had met and overcome the charges of negligence. From a judgment entered upon a verdict for defendants, plaintiff appealed to the Court of Appeals which affirmed. 3 WNF 231, 473 P.2D 445, 1970 we granted review, 78 WN2D991, 1970, and reverse. In an omitted passage, the court concluded that it was error for the trial court to have refused to instruct the jury on the residential IPSA doctrine. The court continued, T, here exists here an even more impelling basis for liability in this case, namely, strict liability. 
Strict liability is not a novel concept, it is at least as old as Fletcher v. Rylands, LR1 EX 265, 278, 1866, Afti, House of Lords, 3HL 330, 1868. All of the justices in Fletcher v. Rylands, Supra, did not draw a distinction between the natural and non-natural use of land, but such a distinction would, we think, be irrelevant to the transportation of gasoline. The basic principle supporting the Fletcher Doctrine, we 64 strict liability versus negligence ch1 think, control the transportation of gasoline as freight along the public highways the same as it does the impounding of waters and for largely the same reasons. See Prosser, Tort 78, 4th at 1971. In many respects, hauling gasoline as freight is no more unusual, but more dangerous, than collecting water. When gasoline is carried as cargo as distinguished from fuel for the carrier vehicle it takes on uniquely hazardous characteristics, as does water impounded in large quantities. Dangerous in itself, gasoline develops even greater potential for harm when carried as freight extraordinary dangers deriving from sheer quantity, bulk, and weight, which enormously multiply its hazardous properties. And the very hazards in hearing from the size of the load, its bulk, or quantity and its movement along the highways presents another reason for application of the Fletcher v. Rylands, Supra, rule not present in the impounding of large quantities of water the likely destruction of cogent evidence from which negligence or want of it may be proved or disproved. It is quite probable that the most important ingredients of proof will be lost in a gasoline explosion and fire. Gasoline is always dangerous whether kept in large or small quantities because of its volatility, inflammability, and explosiveness. But when several thousand gallons of it are allowed to spill across a public highway that is, if, while in transit as freight, it is not kept impounded the hazards to third persons are so great as to be almost beyond calculation. As a consequence of its escape from impoundment and subsequent explosion and ignition, the evidence in a very high percentage of instances will be destroyed, and the reasons for and causes contributing to its escape will quite likely be lost in the searing flames and explosions. Danger from great quantities of gasoline spilled upon the public highway is extreme and extraordinary, for any spark, flame, or appreciable heat is likely to ignite it. The incandescent filaments from a broken automobile headlight, a spark from the heat of a tailpipe, a lighted cigarette in the hands of a driver or passenger, the hot coals from a smoker's pipe or cigar, and the many hot and sparking spots and units of an automobile motor from exhaust to generator could readily ignite the vapor cloud gathered above a highway from 5,000 gallons of spilled gasoline. Any automobile passing through the vapors could readily have produced the flames and explosions which killed the young woman in this case and without the provable intervening negligence of those who loaded and serviced the carrier and the driver who operated it. Even the most prudent and careful motorist, coming unexpectedly and without warning upon this gasoline pool and vapor, could have driven into it and ignited a holocaust without knowledge of the danger and without leaving a trace of what happened to set off the explosion and light the searing flames. CH1 strict liability versus negligence 65 stored in commercial quantities, 
gasoline has been recognized to be a substance of such dangerous characteristics that it invites a rule of strict liability even where the hazard is contamination to underground water supply and not its more dangerous properties such as its explosiveness and flammability. Transporting gasoline as freight by truck along the public highways and streets is obviously an activity involving a high degree of risk, it is a risk of great harm and injury, it creates dangers that cannot be eliminated by the exercise of reasonable care. That gasoline cannot be practicably transported except upon the public highways does not decrease the abnormally high risk arising from its transportation. Nor will the exercise of due and reasonable care assure protection to the public from the disastrous consequences of concealed or latent mechanical or metallurgical defects in the carrier's equipment, from the negligence of third parties, from latent defects in the highways and streets, and from all of the other hazards not generally disclosed or guarded against by reasonable care, prudence, and foresight. Hauling gasoline in great quantities as freight, we think, is an activity that calls for the application of principles of strict liability. The case is therefore reversed and remanded to the trial court for trial to the jury on the sole issue of damages. Hamilton, C.J., Finley, Rosalini, and Hunter, J.J., and Ryan, J. Pro Tem, concur. Neil, J., dissenting. Notes 1. Restatement, 2nd, of Torts 51920. 1965. 519. General principle, 1. One who carries on an abnormally dangerous activity is subject to liability for harm to the person, land, or chattels of another resulting from the activity, although he has exercised the utmost care to prevent the harm. 2. This strict liability is limited to the kind of harm, the possibility of which makes the activity abnormally dangerous. 520. Abnormally dangerous activities In determining whether an activity is abnormally dangerous, the following factors are to be considered, a. Existence of a high degree of risk of some harm to the person, land, or chattels of others, 66 strict liability versus negligence ch1, b. Likelihood that the harm that results from it will be great, c. Inability to eliminate the risk by the exercise of reasonable care, d extent to which the activity is not a matter of common usage, e, inappropriateness of the activity to the place where it is carried on, and, f, extent to which its value to the community is outweighed by its dangerous attributes. Comment, asterisk 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 be distinguished from negligence. The rule stated in 519 is applicable to an activity that is carried on with all reasonable care, and that is of such utility that the risk which is involved in it cannot be regarded as so great or so unreasonable as to make it negligence merely to carry on the activity at all. C. 282. If the utility of the activity does not justify the risk it creates, it may be negligence merely to carry it on, and the rule stated in this section is not then necessary to subject the defendant to liability for harm resulting from it. E. Not limited to the defendant's land. In most of the cases to which the rule of strict liability is applicable the abnormally dangerous activity is conducted on land in the possession of the defendant. This, again, is not necessary to the existence of such an activity. It may be carried on in a public highway or other public place or upon the land of another. F. Abnormally dangerous. For an activity to be abnormally dangerous, 
not only must it create a danger of physical harm to others but the danger must be an abnormal one. In general, abnormal dangers arise from activities that are in themselves unusual, or from unusual risks created by more usual activities under particular circumstances. In determining whether the danger is abnormal, the factors listed in clauses, A, 2, F, of this section are all to be considered, and are all of importance. Any one of them is not necessarily sufficient of itself in a particular case, and ordinarily several of them will be required for strict liability. On the other hand, it is not necessary that each of them be present, especially if others weigh heavily. Because of the interplay of these various factors, it is not possible to reduce abnormally dangerous activities to any definition. The essential question is whether the risk created is so unusual, either because of its magnitude or because of the circumstances surrounding it, as to justify the imposition of strict liability for the harm that results from it, even though it is carried on with all reasonable care. In other words, are its dangers and inappropriateness for the locality so great that, despite any usefulness it may have for the community, it should be required as a matter of law ch1 strict liability versus negligence 67 to pay for any harm it causes, without the need of a finding of negligence. Comment on clause, di common usage. An activity is a matter of common usage if it is customarily carried on by the great mass of mankind or by many people in the community. It does not cease to be so because it is carried on for a purpose peculiar to the individual who engages in it. Certain activities, notwithstanding their recognizable danger, are so generally carried on as to be regarded as customary. Thus automobiles have come into such general use that their operation is a matter of common usage. This, notwithstanding the residue of unavoidable risk of serious harm that may result even from their careful operation, is sufficient to prevent their use from being regarded as an abnormally dangerous activity. On the other hand, the operation of a tank or any other motor vehicle of such size and weight as to be unusually difficult to control safely, or to be likely to damage the ground over which it is driven, is not yet a usual activity for many people, and therefore the operation of such a vehicle may be abnormally dangerous. Although blasting is recognized as a proper means of excavation for building purposes or clearing woodland for cultivation, it is not carried on by any large percentage of the population, and therefore it is not a matter of common usage. Likewise the manufacture, storage, transportation and use of high explosives, although necessary to the construction of many public and private works, are carried on by only a comparatively small number of persons and therefore are not matters of common usage. So likewise, the very nature of oil lands and the essential interest of the public in the production of oil require that oil wells be drilled, but the dangers incident to the operation are characteristic of oil lands and not of lands in general, and relatively few persons are engaged in the activity. The usual dangers resulting from an activity that is one of common usage are not regarded as abnormal, even though a serious risk of harm cannot be eliminated by all reasonable care. The difference is sometimes not so much one of the activity itself as of the manner in which it is carried on. Water collected in large quantity in a hillside reservoir in the midst of a city or in coal mining country is not the activity of any considerable portion of the population, and may therefore be regarded as abnormally dangerous, while water in a cistern or in household pipes or in a barnyard tank supplying cattle, 
although it may involve much the same danger of escape, differing only in degree if at all, still is a matter of common usage and therefore not abnormal. The same is true of gas and electricity in household pipes and wires, as contrasted with large storage tanks or high-tension power lines. Fire in a fireplace or in an 68 strict liability versus negligence CH1 ordinary railway engine is a matter of common usage, while a traction engine shooting out sparks in its passage along the public highway is an abnormal danger. To remember the main objective. Remember that our objective in reading these cases is to figure out which accidents are governed by the rule of negligence and which by the rule of strict liability. We are not concerned at this point with the details of these rules. Is hauling gasoline governed by the rule of negligence or of strict liability? Which liability rule governs bursting reservoirs? What are the similarities between the two types of accidents? Could you have predicted the Siegler v. Coleman result using restatement, second, of torts 51920? Notice that the subject matter of restatement 51920 is activities. That is the subject matter of the rule we are seeking to understand i.e., which activities are governed by the rule of negligence and which by the rule of strict liability. Cases analogous to Siegler v. Coleman are collected in annotation, liability in connection with fire or explosion incident to bulk storage, transportation, delivery, loading, or unloading of petroleum products, 32A.L.R.3D1169, 1970, annotation, automobiles, Liability for accident arising from escape of trailer, 43A.L.R.3D725, 1972. 3. Shooting. In Fowler v. Lanning, 1959 1QB426, the plaintiff sued the defendant for a gunshot wound. The plaintiff's statement of claim alleged only that on November 19, 1957 at Vineyard Farm, Corf Castle, in the county of Dorset the defendant shot the plaintiff. By reason of the premises the plaintiff sustained personal injuries which the plaintiff's statement of claim went on to explain. The defendant demurred on the ground that the complaint was defective because the plaintiff did not allege that the said shooting was either intentional or negligent. Held, for the defendant, that his demurrer should be sustained because the plaintiff's declaration did not allege fault, that is, either an intentional or negligent act by the defendant. What is the relationship between Fowler v. Lanning and Rylands v. Fletcher, Supra at P15? Did Fowler limit, extend, or overrule Rylands v. Fletcher? Hint, did Fowler tell the Rylands v. Fletcher principle of strict liability to stay closer to bursting reservoirs or to expand toward shootings? Different hint, Rylands v. Fletcher was a case of liability, but Fowler was a case of no liability. Did the Fowler result expand or restrict the earlier liability principle? CH1 strict liability versus negligence 69 Why didn't Fowler v. Lanning fall within paradigm ATI, accidental trespassery invasion? Why didn't the case fall within paradigm UA, ultra-hazardous activity? Was the early action of trespass one in which there was strict liability? See Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., The Common Law 138, 1881, Wex Malone, Ruminations on the Role of Fault in the History of the Common Law of Tort, 31 LAL Revelation 1, 1970, Robert L. Robin, 
the historical development of the fall principle, a reinterpretation, 15 GAL Revelation 925, 1981. 4. Firing Range In Miller v. Civil Constructors, Inc., 651 N.E.2D 239, IL App 1995, the plaintiff was injured by a bullet that strayed from the defendant's firing range. The plaintiff was riding on a truck at the time of the accident. The defendant's firing range was in a gravel pit in a rural area. Law enforcement officers seeking to improve their skills with firearms were the main users of the range. As the truck on which the plaintiff was riding was driven down a nearby road, a bullet ricocheted from the firing range and struck the plaintiff, causing him to fall off the truck. One count of the plaintiff's resulting complaint alleged that discharging firearms is an ultra-hazardous, highly dangerous activity and that the defendants therefore were strictly liable for the plaintiff's injuries. The trial court dismissed the plaintiff's strict liability count, and the plaintiff appealed. Held, for the defendants, that the trial court did not err in dismissing the plaintiff's strict liability count. Said the court, the use of guns or firearms, even though frequently classified as dangerous or even highly dangerous, is not the type of activity that must be deemed ultra-hazardous when the restatement criteria are taken into consideration. First, the risk of harm to persons or property, even though great, can be virtually eliminated by the exercise of reasonable or even utmost care under the circumstances. The doctrine of strict or absolute liability is ordinarily reserved for abnormally dangerous activities for which no degree of care can truly provide safety. There is a clear distinction between requiring a defendant to exercise a high degree of care when involved in a potentially dangerous activity and requiring a defendant to ensure absolutely the safety of others when engaging in ultra-hazardous activity. Second, the use of firearms is a matter of common usage and the harm posed comes from their misuse rather than from their inherent nature alone. Third, the activity in this case was carried on at a firing range in a quarry located somewhere near the city of Freeport. We assume that the location was appropriate for such 70 strict liability versus negligence CH1 activity in the absence of further factual allegations in the complaint particularly describing the area as inappropriate for the target practice. Finally, the target practice is of some social utility to the community, this weighs against declaring it ultra-hazardous where the activity was alleged to have been performed by law enforcement officers apparently to improve their skills in the handling of weapons. What is the distinction between Miller v. Civil Constructors, Inc., and Sullivan v. Dunham, Super at P43? 5. Grade Crossing Accident In Warner v. Norfolk and Western Re, 758 F sub 370, W.D. Virginia 1991, the plaintiff was driving a 1977 Mercedes-Benz truck when he was struck by one of the defendant's locomotives at a grade crossing. One of the plaintiff's counts was for strict liability, which the defendant moved to strike. Held, for the defendant, that the claim should be stricken because it was without basis in law. Said the court, IT has been universally understood that railroad companies are to be excluded from the application of the strict liability doctrine because the operation of a railroad is a matter of common usage. The court also stressed that the risk of grade crossing accidents could be almost eliminated through the exercise of due care. Does this factor distinguish Coos v. Roth, the NL case of spreading grass seed fire, 
Supra at P5, from Siegler v. Coleman, the L case of the exploding gasoline trailer, Supra at P62. What was the activity that the Warner plaintiff maintained was subject to strict liability? 6. Hauling Asphalt In Maximin v. Rivera, 1990 WL 533213, VI 1990, UNPUB, the defendant Meridian Engineering, Inc., hired an independent contractor to haul asphalt in a truck. While on one of these trips, the contractor's driver failed to yield the right-of-way and struck the plaintiff, who was driving her own car. One of the plaintiff's theories was that hauling asphalt was an abnormally dangerous activity and therefore that the defendant was strictly liable. The defendant moved for summary judgment on that count. Held, for the defendant, that summary judgment should be entered for it on the plaintiff's strict liability count. Said the court, the claim that the carrying of asphalt is an abnormally dangerous or ultra-hazardous activity is completely without basis. The criteria for an abnormally dangerous activity manifestly do not apply in this circumstance, in which a truck driver supposedly failed CH1 strict liability versus negligence 71 to yield the right-of-way at an intersection. The improper operation of any motor sick creates the same hazard. What is the relationship between Maximin v. Rivera and Siegler v. Coleman, Supra at P62? What is the distinction between them? One reason why plaintiffs want to hold defendants strictly liable is that the plaintiffs can thereby escape the negligence rule that makes those who hire independent contractors immune for the negligent acts and omissions of these independent contractors. Recall that in Rylands v. Fletcher, Supra at P15, the defendants became liable even for the negligent failure of their independent contractors to use any special precaution with respect to the old coal mining tunnels that the independent contractors knew about. In Maximin v. Rivera, the independent contractor was insolvent and uninsured, which is why the plaintiff wanted to hold the defendant, his hirer, liable. 7. Fumigating In Luthringer v. Moore, 190p.2d1, Cal 1948, the defendant Moore was engaged to exterminate cockroaches and other vermin in the basement of a restaurant. He made his preparations and released hydrocyanic acid gas a deeply penetrating gas dangerous to humans at about midnight. The plaintiff, who was employed by a pharmacy next door, arrived at work the next morning and was overcome by the gas. She suffered various injuries and brought suit against the exterminator. At trial, the plaintiff's expert, an exterminator named Bell, offered the following testimony, Q. Do you know whether hydrocyanic acid gas is a poisonous gas or a lethal gas? A. It definitely is. Q. Can you tell us what the physical characteristics of hydrocyanic acid gas are? A. It is a little lighter than air gas, a very highly penetrative gas, susceptible to moisture quite a bit, it will follow moisture, it is non-inflammable, the flashpoint is very low so that it can be used without very much hazard of fire. Q. I think you said the gas was very penetrative? A. Definitely. Q. What do you mean by that? A. That is one of the advantages of the gas, why they use it in fumigation. It will penetrate behind baseboards, cracks and crevices that we couldn't get at with any type of liquid insecticide. It will go through mattresses, chesterfields, furniture, some types of porous walls. Q. Is it difficult to keep that gas confined? 
A yes, because of the fact it will penetrate, you have to be careful to keep it in a definite area. 72 Strict Liability versus Negligence CH1Q In fumigation, what is your practice? You prepare a room so as to keep the gas confined as far as possible? A. You have to seal all the cracks around doors and windows, any holes around plumbing outlets, pack up the trim on the sinks, tape them off, on a regular fumigation they make a paste for that that is used. Sometimes we will use patching plaster, mostly through the use of a tape, because you tear it off in strips, depending on the width of the crack, pack the ventilator openings, wires, anything with any kind of a crack at all should be sealed. Q in the ordinary operation, if you go in and seal up so that you consider it is adequately sealed, you still have some leakage of gas, or not. A you will have some, yes, sir, unless it is a very well built building. QIC. What is your practice with reference to adjoining premises or adjoining parts of the same building? A in fumigating the building, the tenants from an individual building, when you are fumigating any part of it, should be vacated. Q all parts of the building? A yes, sir. Q what is the reason for vacating other parts of the building that you do not fumigate? A the operator going into a building isn't too familiar with the construction of the building. There might be a hidden flue and cracks someplace you might miss. If you did miss that, the people above the area would be fumigated. That gas might leak up there. They would be subject to being gassed that way. The safest way is to vacate the building, no matter how careful you are to always be careful of every piece of construction of the building. The trial court instructed the jury that fumigating with hydrocyanic gas was an ultra-hazardous activity for which the defendant would be strictly liable even if he had taken all reasonable precautions. So instructed, the jury returned a verdict for the plaintiff, and the defendant appealed. Held, for the plaintiff, that the jury instruction was not error and that there was sufficient evidence to support the verdict. What is the relationship between Luthringer v. Moore and Rylands v. Fletcher, Super at P15? What is the analogy between the cases? 8. Crop dusting. In Langan v. Volocopters, Inc., 567p.2d218, Washington 1977, the plaintiff sought damages resulting from aerial crop spraying conducted on adjacent property. The plaintiffs, Patrick and Dorothy Langan, owned a small farm in the Yakima Valley. They were organic farmers, they used no non-organic CH1 strict liability versus negligence 73 fertilizers, insecticides or herbicides to aid them in their farming, but relied on natural fertilizers and natural pest control agents. They had planned to can and sell their produce to organic food buyers. The defendant, Volocopters, Inc., was a Washington corporation which engaged in the aerial application of agricultural pesticides. Gene Bipple, one of the owners of Volocopters, Inc., was the helicopter pilot at the time of the accident that gave rise to this lawsuit. The Thalheimers owned and farmed the land adjoining that of the plaintiffs. It was their land that was being sprayed by volocopters. On June 3, 1973, Bipple sprayed for Colorado beetle infestation on the Thalheimer farm with a chemical pesticide known as thiodin. While applying the pesticide to the Thalheimer's property, 
people traveled approximately 45 miles per hour while 6 to 8 feet off the ground with a 4-2 foot application boom extending from the sides of the helicopter. The plaintiff Patrick Langan testified that during one spraying pass the helicopter began spraying while it was over his property. He further testified that the spray settled on the entire length of his tomato, bean, garlic, cucumber, and Jerusalem artichoke rows. The Langans and other organic farmers founded and were members of the Northwest Organic Food Producers Association, NOFPA, which required them to abstain from non-organic pesticides. A laboratory test conducted after the spraying indicated the presence of 1.4 parts per million by weight of thiatin on the Langans' crop tissue. The Food and Drug Administration's tolerance for thiatin on tomatoes and beans was 2.0 parts per million. Following the test results, the board of directors of NOFPA revoked the Langan's certification as organic food growers. In fact, the Langan's entire property was decertified in conformance with the NOFPA rule that required this action when a portion of a farmer's land was contaminated. Due to the decertification, the Langans did not grow their tomatoes and beans to fruition. Instead, they pulled them from the ground to prevent further contamination of the soil. The trial court instructed the jury that the defendants were subject to strict liability. The jury returned a verdict for the plaintiffs, and the defendants appealed on the grounds of misdirection and insufficiency of the evidence. Held, for the plaintiffs, that the trial court did not err either in instructing the jury or in entering judgment on the verdict. Said the court, it is undisputed among the authorities cited to us that crop dusting involves an element of risk of harm. In note, crop dusting, legal problems in a new industry, 6 Stan. L. Revelation at 7275, the author 74 Strict Liability versus Negligence CH1 points out that the drift of chemicals is virtually unpredictable due to three uncertain and uncontrollable factors, 1, the size of the dust or spray particles, 2, the air disturbances created by the APPLI catting aircraft, and, 3, natural atmospheric forces. The author discusses these three factors in detail and notes, in the opinion of leading scientists who are working to alleviate the dangers of crop dusting, it is impossible to eliminate drift with present knowledge and equipment. Experience bears this out. 6 Stan L. Revelation at 75 Whether there will be great harm depends upon what adjoining property owners do with their land. For example, one property owner may grow wheat, a narrow-leafed crop, and his neighbor may grow peas, a broad-leafed crop. The wheat farmer may wish to spray his crop with the chemical herbicide, weed killer, 2,40, which kills only broadleaf plants. If the 2,40 drifts onto the pea farmer's property, his entire crop could be destroyed since peas are broadleaf plants. Freyer, Chemistry of Insecticides, Fungicides, and Herbicides 316, 2D at 1948. The reported cases are illustrative of the many possible fact situations which indicate that neighboring property may be sensitive to and damaged by the spraying activity of an adjoining landowner. See comment, crop dusting, two theories of liability. 19 Hastings LJ 476, 479 and 38. The cases cited in that note include the following situations, S.A. Gerard Covey Fricker, 42 Arizona 503, 27 P.2 D 678, 
1933, bees killed by insecticide Budix number 20, WB Bynum Cooperage Covey Coulter, 219 Arc 818, 244S.W.2D955, 1952, Cotton Damaged by 2,4D, McPherson v. Billington, 399S.W.2D186, Texas Civ App 1965, Hogs Killed by Arsenical. The extent of damage can be very high. C, e.g., Krauss v. Wilbur Ellisco, 77 Arizona 359, 272 P.2D 352, 1954, plaintiff recovered $10,000 when his cantaloupe crop was damaged by insecticide containing sulfur, Sanders v. Beckwith, 79 Arizona 67, 283 P.2D 235, 1955, Plaintiff recovered $10,000 when his dairy herd was injured by DDT and benzene hexachloride. As the present case illustrates, it is economically damaging for an organic farmer who is a member of NOFPA to apply non-organic materials to his crops because he would lose the association's certification. There was substantial evidence before the trial court that, once an organic farmer loses his certification, it is highly unlikely that he will be able to sell his crops on the regular commercial market due to his failure to enter into contracts with commercial produce buyers before the season begins, and, even if he could sell his crops to a commercial produce buyer, the farmer would be unable to command as high a price for his goods as he could on the organic market. CH1 Strict Liability versus Negligence 75 What are the analogies between Langdon v. Volocopters, Inc., and Coos v. Roth? Super at P5, and Luthering or V. Moore, Super at P71. What is the distinction between Langdon v. Volocopters, Inc., and Christ v. Civil Air Patrol, Super at P13? What is the distinction between Langdon v. Volocopters, Inc., and Rogers v. Elliott, Church Bell Case, Super at P61? Between Langdon and Cambridge Waterco v. Eastern Counties Leather PLC, Super at P55. 9 Natural Gas Pipelines In New Meadows Holding Co. v. Washington Water Power Co., 102 Washington 2D 495, 687 P.2D 212, 1984, the plaintiff Mark Brown, while attempting to light an oil stove on New Year's Eve in 1978, unwittingly ignited natural gas that was leaking from a damaged gas line several blocks away. An independent contractor for Pacific Northwest Bell had caused the leak seven years earlier. While laying cable some distance from the plaintiff's house the independent contractor had damaged a two-inch gas transmission line owned by the defendant Washington Water Power Company. The natural gas, unable to permeate the frozen ground, had traveled laterally and finally entered the drain field that serviced Brown's residence. As already mentioned, the whole process took seven years. The subsequent explosion seriously injured Brown and destroyed the house he rented from the other plaintiff, New Meadows Holding Company. Brown and New Meadows sued Washington Water Power Co. alleging that the power company, which owned the gas transmission pipe, was strictly liable under the holding of Siegler v. Coleman, Super at P62. The plaintiffs moved for summary judgment on the issue of liability, and the trial court granted this motion. The defendant appealed held, 
for the defendant, that the trial court erred in granting the motion and that the plaintiffs could recover only if they showed that the defendant had been negligent. The Washington court distinguished Siegler v. Coleman, the underground transmission of natural gas presents a significant contrast to the activity at issue in Siegler. Natural gas flows through a small, two-inch, pipe which is buried underground, away from the dangers of the surface world. There are no careless drivers, faulty brakes, or slippery roads with which to contend. The heightened danger resulting from the storage of a highly volatile substance in large commercial quantities, rolling at high speed on a well-traveled highway, is also absent. Furthermore, where there is the intervention of an outside force beyond the control of the manufacturer, the owner, or the operator of the vehicle hauling the gasoline, the rule of strict liability 76 strict liability versus negligence CH1 should not apply. Citation omitted. Here, the gas leak was allegedly caused when a contractor laying underground telephone cable for Pacific Northwest Bell damaged a 2-inch gas transmission line owned by defendant. Neither in its facts nor in its law does Siegler apply to this case. We affirm the holding of the Court of Appeals that the transmission of natural gas through underground lines is not an abnormally dangerous activity upon which strict liability should be imposed, and reverse, summary judgment against Washington Water Power on that issue. Did the plaintiff have a greater opportunity to use precaution in New Meadows Holding Co. as compared to Siegler v. Coleman, Super at P62? What is the relationship between New Meadows Holding Co. v. Washington Water Power Co. and Rylands v. Fletcher, Super at P15? Was the Rylands defendant liable for the negligence of an independent contractor? What is the distinction between the two cases? What is the relationship between New Meadows Holding Co. v. Washington Water Power Co. and Cambridge Water Co. v. Eastern Counties Leather PLC, Super at P55? What is the analogy between the two cases? What is the relationship between New Meadows Holding Co. v. Washington Water Power Co. and Rickards v. Lothian, Super at P29? What is the analogy between the two cases? 10. The Florida Gators in Palumbo v. Game and Freshwater Fish Commission, 487 so. 2d 352, FLA App 1986, the accident occurred at a recreational park operated by the University of Florida for its students. The plaintiff, a University of Florida student, had been visiting the park for recreational purposes since his arrival at the university some three years prior. On the day in question, he arrived at the park, presented his student ID card at the check-in shed, and went to the boat ramp to meet three of his friends. The plaintiff had intended to go sailing, but when he arrived at the boat ramp he noticed that both of the two university sailboats had already been taken out onto the lake. He also noticed that one of the boats had capsized and appeared to have its mast stuck in the mud. He decided to swim out to the capsized boat in order to help the occupants ride it and simply to get some exercise. Unfortunately, on his swim out to the boat, an alligator swam after him and bit him. A sign posted at the boat launch area where appellant entered the water read no swimming allowed. Swimming was allowed in other CH1 strict liability versus negligence 77 parts of the same lake, however. Signs posted around the park warned of alligators. Some of the signs read unlawful to feed alligators. Others said, don't feed or molest, 
and showed pictures of large and mean-looking alligators. The plaintiff sued the University of Florida and the Florida Game and Freshwater Fish Commission, which were the joint owners and operators of the recreational area. The plaintiff maintained that the defendants failed to fence out alligators and failed to provide an adequate number of lifeguards to serve as alligator spotters. The alligator in question probably entered Lake Waberg from the adjoining Payne's Prairie State Park. The trial court entered summary judgment for the defendants, and the plaintiff appealed. Held, for the defendants, that the trial court did not err in entering judgment for them. Said the court, there was no showing that the alligator warning signs that were present, coupled with the no swimming allowed signs, were insufficient to fulfill any duty to warn appellant and others using the park. Furthermore, the record clearly establishes that no accidents of this kind had taken place in the park previously. A party cannot close his eyes and his mind and thereby impose liability on another when there would otherwise be none. What is the relationship between Palumbo v. Game and Freshwater Fish Commission, and Rylands v. Fletcher, Super at P15? What is the distinction between the two cases? Is an alligator more natural than a reservoir? Was there an escape in Palumbo as there had been in Rylands v. Fletcher? Suppose that the alligator that bit the plaintiff was the Florida mascot that the university kept in the recreational park would that fact make Palumbo more analogous to Rylands v. Fletcher? Is maintaining a recreational lake with natural, though mean, alligators a natural use of land? What is the analogy between Palumbo and Kent v. Gulf State Utilities Co., Super at P-52? 11 Giant Pile Driver In Caporali v. C.W. Blakesley & Sons, Inc., 175A.2D561, Con 1961, the plaintiff sued for damage to his business from the defendant's pile driver. The plaintiff was the owner of two cement block buildings at 157159 Water Street in New Haven. He had conducted a tile contracting business in the buildings continuously since their construction prior to 1950 and in his showroom maintained a display tile bathroom with running water. From at least 1945 until 1958, Water Street was used by 78 strict liability versus negligence CH1 trucks and trailers as a major two-way traffic artery. Although the movement of such vehicles was usually noticeable within the plaintiff's buildings, there was no appreciable vibration. In the early part of 1958, construction of the portion of the Connecticut Turnpike called the Oak Street Connector was underway on the south side of Water Street, generally opposite the plaintiff's buildings. The early stages of construction entailed the use of heavy earth-moving machinery and pile drivers, but none of this activity had any observable effect on the buildings prior to October 1958. At that time, the buildings were in a good state of repair, without noticeable cracks in floors, walls, or ceilings, as were also the display tile bathroom and another bathroom. Between October 1958 and January 1959, the defendant drove approximately 400 piles for the foundations of a large concrete retaining wall and a bridge abutment on the south side of Water Street, across from the Caporali buildings and approximately 75 feet away. These piles were made of fluted steel, 60 to 70 feet in length, and were driven by steam hammers capable of delivering from 7,250 to 15,000 foot-pounds of energy. 
The Hammers operated approximately six hours a day every day except Sundays during the whole four-month period. Prior to driving the piles, the defendant checked the condition of some of the buildings in the area so that it could establish later what damage, if any, had been caused by its pile-driving activities, but it made no effort to check the condition of the plaintiff's buildings. Commencing in October, these buildings shook and vibrated while the pile-driving was going on, numerous cracks opened in the walls, floors, and ceilings, the tile bathrooms were damaged, and water pipes were broken. After the defendant ceased driving piles in January 1959 no further cracks appeared. There was no evidence of any activity, other than that of the defendant, which could have accounted for the damage. The trial court, in a bench trial, found that the defendant was strictly liable in tort for conducting an intrinsically dangerous operation. Accordingly, it entered verdict and judgment for the plaintiff. The defendant appealed to the Connecticut Supreme Court. Held, for the plaintiff, that the trial court did not err in entering verdict and judgment for it. Said the court, cases involving pile drivers are far from uniform in their analyses or results. The theories of strict liability, negligence, and nuisance have been applied. Two recent cases in Louisiana imposed liability for concussion damage caused by pile driving regardless of negligence, on the basis of a provision in the civil code of that state which was said to embody the maxim secutera tuo ut alienum non latus. Hawk v. Brunette, 50 so.2 d 495, 497, LA App, Jean Fro v. Sanderson, 239 LA 51, 63, 117 so.2 d 907. Dean Prosser cites an CH1 strict liability versus negligence 79 English pile driving case, Hoare and Covey McAlpine, 1923 1CH167, which he states rests on the principles of absolute liability laid down in Rylands v. Fletcher, 3 Hurl and Colt, 774, Rev D on appeal, LR1EX265, AFD, LR3HL330, C. Prosser, Nuisance Without Fault, 20 Texas L. Rev. 399, 405. In New York, strict liability is imposed in cases involving blasting where the injury results from flying debris, but liability is not imposed where the injury results from vibrations caused by blasting unless there is negligence. By analogy, Liability is not imposed for injury resulting from vibrations caused by pile driving, unless there is negligence. Fagan v. Path Industries, Inc., 274 app.div. 703, 708, 86 n.y.s.2d859, Petillo v. Kennedy and Smith, Inc., 263 app.div. 821, 31N.Y.S.2D481, C. Booth v. Rome, W. and O. T. Arco, 140NY267, 278, 35NE592, 24LRA105, Holland House Co. v. Baird, 169NY136, 141, 62 NE 149, Schlansky v. Augustus v. Regal, 
Inc., 9N.Y.2D493, 496, 215N.Y.S.2D52, 174N.E.2D730. To impose liability without fault, certain factors must be present, an instrumentality capable of producing harm, circumstances and conditions in its use which, irrespective of a lawful purpose or due care, involve a risk of probable injury to such a degree that the activity fairly can be said to be intrinsically dangerous to the person or property of others, and a causal relation between the activity and the injury for which damages are claimed. The defendant actor, even when he uses due care, takes a calculated risk which he, and not the innocent injured party, should bear. He is not regarded as engaging in blameworthy conduct. He is creating hazards to others, to be sure, but they are ordinary, and reasonable risks incident to desirable social and economic activity. But common notions of fairness require that the defendant make good any harm that results even though his conduct is free from fault. Whitman Hotel Corporation v. Elliott & Watrous Engineering Co., 137 con 562, 567, 79A.2D591, 594, quoting from Harper, Torts, P408, C2 Harper and James, Torts, 14.7. The pile driver used in the case at bar was clearly an instrumentality capable of producing harm. The purpose for which it was being used, the construction of a public highway, was a lawful purpose, socially and economically desirable. Caporali concedes that there was no negligence in the use of the pile driver. The driving of heavy steel piles with this powerful instrument over a period of four months within 75 feet of his concrete block buildings, even when due care was used, spells out circumstances and conditions which involve the risk of probable injury, a risk which, in fact, was actually anticipated by the defendant when it inspected premises nearby before it began work. The operation was, as the AD strict liability versus negligence CH1 court correctly found, an intrinsically dangerous one, and the court's conclusion of absolute liability was proper. How was Caporali superficially similar to Von V. Tafvale Railway, Super at P1? Were both activities, running a railroad, building a turnpike, both important and reasonable? What is the distinction between the two cases? Did the Vaughn plaintiff possess a greater ability to use self-protective precaution as compared to the Caporali plaintiff? 12. Delivering Sulfuric Acid In Edwards v. Post Transportation Co., 279 calories RPTR 231, CTF 1991, the plaintiff sued the defendant delivery company for delivering sulfuric acid to the wrong tank, which caused poisonous fumes that hurt the plaintiff. At the time of his injury Edwards was an employee of Norris Industries, a manufacturer of zinc-plated cartridge cases. Norris had constructed a waste treatment facility to dispose of certain emulsions from its plating plant. Part of the new facility consisted of two storage tanks, one for sodium bisulfite and one for sulfuric acid. Because of the differing natures of these chemicals, the pipe leading to the sodium bisulfite tank was to be constructed of plastic, while the pipe leading to the sulfuric acid tank was required to be of stainless steel. Through error in construction, the pipes were switched, 
the plastic pipe being hooked to the sulfuric acid tank and vice versa. When this was noticed it was concluded the easiest remedy would be to change the identity of the tanks, the tanks themselves apparently being interchangeable. Although this was done, the tanks were inadequately labeled. As a result, the driver for post, when delivering a tank truck of sulfuric acid, was directed to pump the acid into the wrong pipe. The material was thus introduced into the sodium bisulfite tank, which unfortunately contained a residue of sodium bisulfite and water. A severe and immediate chemical reaction followed which resulted in toxic gas being released from the tank. Edwards, who was working in an adjacent part of the Norris plant, was overcome by the gas and suffered severe injuries. The negligence or other fault of Norris was not an issue. By virtue of his employment status, Edwards's recourse against Norris was limited to workers' compensation. Since Edwards had no relationship with Post, however, he was free to bring a common law action for personal injuries. This case resulted. The plaintiff asked the trial court to submit his case to the jury on both negligence and strict liability theories. The trial court held that the plaintiff's strict liability theory was not available under the facts here and submitted the plaintiff's case to the jury on the plaintiff's negligence CH1 strict liability versus negligence 81 theory only. The jury found the defendant post not guilty of negligence presumably because the pipe labels were so confusing. The trial court then entered judgment on the defense verdict. The plaintiff appealed to the California Court of Appeal on the ground that the trial court erred in refusing to submit the case to the jury on the plaintiff's strict liability theory. Held, for the defendant, that the trial court did not err in refusing to submit the case to the jury on a strict liability theory. Said the court, the California utilization of the doctrine of ultra-hazardous activity relies upon the exposition which has been contained in the restatement of torts, and is now set forth in sections 519 and 520 of the Restatement, 2nd edition. See Luthering v. Moore, Supra, 31 Cal.2 D489 at P496, 190 P.2 D1, Smith v. Lockheed Propulsion Co., Supra, 247 Cal.App.2 D at P785, 56 Cal.RPTR 128, Aarons v. Superior Court, 1988, 197 Cal.App.3D1134-1145-1146-FN9-243 Cal.RPTR-420, since there is no case directly addressing sulfuric acid use in terms of its nature as an ultra-hazardous activity 3 we must resort to the guidelines set forth in the restatement. Using the term abnormally dangerous rather than ultra-hazardous, the restatement sets forth six factors which are to be considered. They are, a, existence of a high degree of risk of some harm to the person, land, or chattels of others, b, likelihood that the harm that results from it will be great, 1. We have reviewed the cases involving personal injury from sulfuric acid contact and find none to be directly in point. In Galvi Union Ice Company, 1951, 108 Cal.F.2D303-311312-239P.2D48, the injury resulting from explosion of a sulfuric acid tank gave rise to an action for damages in negligence. In something of a throwaway line, 
the appellate court stated, of course, there is no absolute liability for harm done by sulfuric acid. Similarly, in Means v. Southern California Rico, 1904, 144 calories 473, 77 p 1001 The principal issue was the duty owed by the railway station to a trespassing teenager who was injured when a tank of acid near which he was standing exploded. While discussing the possibility of strict liability, the court found the evidence in the case was insufficient to show that sulfuric acid is essentially and inherently a dangerous agency, or that from its nature any particular peril is attendant upon handling it in iron tanks. ID at P481, 77 P1001. See also Blackwell v. Phelps Dodge Corp., 1984, 157 Cal.App.3D372-203 Cal.RPTR706 which dealt with the obligation of posting signs warning of danger from sulfuric acid. We deem none of these cases to establish, as a matter of law, that the storage, transportation, and use of sulfuric acid in California is not an ultra-hazardous activity. Since the concept of ultra-hazardous depends upon time, place, and circumstance, as discussed in the restatement, we doubt that any fast and permanent classification will be possible. 82 Strict Liability versus Negligence CH1, C, Inability to Eliminate the Risk by the Exercise of Reasonable Care, D, Extent to which the activity is not a matter of common usage, E, Inappropriateness of the activity to the place where it is carried on, and, F, Extent to which its value to the community is outweighed by its dangerous attributes. Rest Point 2 D Torts, 520. As explained in comment F to section 520, the several factors are to be considered together, establishment of one factor alone is usually not sufficient to categorize an activity, several factors will ordinarily be required. We commence our analysis of the factors and our application of them to the use of sulfuric acid by dealing with those that are easily resolved. We are satisfied, for instance, that sulfuric acid is not a matter of common usage. Although the substance is no doubt regularly used in certain industries, like the use of dynamite, it is not carried on by any large percentage of the population. Although it can be argued that sulfuric acid is commonly used in various chemical applications, we believe this not to be the sense in which this factor is intended to be applied. Factor, D, we think, is more for the purpose of exclusion of an activity from classification as ultra-hazardous than it is for inclusion. There are many activities in our modern society which, although clearly very hazardous, like automobile driving, we accept because they are so commonly utilized. Sulfuric acid does not fit this concept, and we think factor, D, weighs in plaintiff's favor. Similarly, factor, F, is resolved, we believe, in favor of a finding of ultra-hazard. Sulfuric acid though unquestionably a useful and beneficial chemical, is not so necessary to society that we would insulate its users from strict liability, if we otherwise decide strict liability should be imposed. Factor, E, we find not to be of significant importance in our analysis. Although appellant argues that Edwards, working in a part of the Norris plant not related to the waste treatment facility, should not have been subject to exposure from the sulfur gas, 
we think use of chemicals, generally, in modern manufacturing plants is an activity reasonably to be expected. It is not like drilling an oil well in a residential district. See Green v. General Petroleum Corp., 1928, 205 calories 328, 270 p. 952. CH1 Strict Liability versus Negligence 83 The factors we have examined to this point, although certainly factual in nature, are closely related to questions of public policy. In the usual case we would assume the court would largely draw upon its own knowledge of the community and its values to determine them. The first three factors, however, pertain more to the characteristics of the activity itself and would, in the usual case and in this case, require establishment by evidence introduced at trial. We look, therefore, to the evidence bearing on the danger involved in using sulfuric acid and the potential of risk elimination through the exercise of care. Experts at trial testified that the gas created by the mixed chemicals would cause a chemical burn that it would attack any human tissue. The chemical is highly toxic, very reactive, and will attack most materials. It is listed as a hazardous material by several governmental agencies. One expert, when asked to categorize the hazard of using sulfuric acid as slight, medium, or severe, responded, it is, severe it is a highly dangerous chemical. We conclude that the plaintiff by a preponderance of the evidence satisfied restatement factor, a, dash that the use of sulfuric acid involves a high degree of risk, and factor, b, dash that if it comes in contact with humans the resulting harm is likely to be great. Plaintiff loses his case, however, with the application of factor, c. The issue posed by, c, is whether the risk involved in an admittedly dangerous activity can be eliminated through the exercise of reasonable care. The same experts who testified to the dangerous attributes of the acid were in agreement that the actual risk of harm to people could be eliminated by the use of proper handling procedures. One plaintiff's expert, a civil engineer and sanitarian, agreed that if sulfuric acid is handled in a proper fashion, it is no danger. Since sulfuric acid is governmentally classified as a hazardous material, its transporters must be specially classified or registered. It appears, however, that such regulation, including special training, is designed to and does eliminate the special risk related to handling the acid. The fact that the material requires special handling and one must be careful with it, as plaintiff's expert testified, leads to the logical conclusion that risk can be eliminated through care. This conclusion undermines the argument that the use of sulfuric acid should lead to strict liability. The theory of imposition of strict liability for ultra-hazardous activity is that the danger cannot be eliminated through the use of care. Since the activity is in some sense beneficial, useful, or necessary to society, the actor is not deemed negligent simply for engaging in it. Damage resulting to 84 strict liability versus negligence CH1 others, however, is taxed to the actor because he is the person who most logically should bear the cost. Where the activity is dangerous only if insufficient care is exercised, ordinary rules of fault are sufficient for allocation of the risk. There is no need for liability without proof of fault, because definitionally if there is damage it will have resulted from negligence and will be compensable. Disposition The judgment is affirmed.
What is the distinction between Edwards v. Post Transportation Co. and Langan v. Volocopters, Inc., Supra at P72? Between Edwards and Luthringer v. Moore, Supra at P71? Are the restatement factors more of a guide to analysis than a determinant of it? How many of these factors counted in favor of the Edwards defendant? 13 Waters from the Deep In re-Chicago flood litigation, 680N.E.2D265, IL-1997, the plaintiff sued the city of Chicago and its contractor Great Lakes Dredge and Dock Co. for damages sustained by themselves and by their insureds when Great Lakes breached a tunnel under the Chicago River and flooded much of the loop. An old underground freight tunnel system was located under the central business district of Chicago, commonly known as the Loop, and also under the Chicago River, which was adjacent to the Loop. Many buildings in the Loop were connected directly or indirectly to the tunnel. Before 1959, the tunnel was used to transport freight in the Loop. Since 1959 the city had owned the tunnel and since the 1970s had leased the tunnel to a number of utility and telecommunication companies to carry their service lines. The tunnel crossed under the Chicago River at different locations, including near the Kinsey Street Bridge. In May 1991, the city entered into a contract with Great Lakes, which provided that Great Lakes would remove and replace wood piling clusters at five Chicago River bridges, including the Kinsey Street Bridge. The contract warned Great Lakes not to drive the pilings at any other location than that specified by the city asterisk 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 because even slight position changes may cause serious damage to various underground asterisk 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 structures. The contract further provided that if Great Lakes failed to heed this warning, Great Lakes would be liable to repair such damages at its own expense. By September 1991, Great Lakes informed the city that it had fully completed the work. However, Great Lakes had installed the pilings at the Kinsey Street Bridge in a location other than originally designated in the contract. During pile driving at the bridge, Great Lakes caused a CH1 strict liability versus negligence 85 breach in the tunnel wall by physically breaking, weakening, or creating excessive pressure on the tunnel wall. In January 1992, a television crew using the tunnel discovered the breach in the tunnel wall at the Kinsey Street Bridge. By February 1992, the television crew notified the city of the tunnel damage. During March and early April 1992, city employees inspected the tunnel, photographed the damage, and recommended immediate repairs. On or about April 13, 1992, the tunnel breach opened. In a sudden torrent and continuing flow, the Chicago River rushed into the tunnel and, ultimately, into buildings connected to the tunnel. Approximately 200,000 persons were evacuated from numerous loop buildings. On April 14, the governor of the state of Illinois declared the loop and surrounding areas a state disaster area. The next day, the president of the United States declared the area a federal disaster area. Thousands of loop building occupants were unable to return to their respective places of business for days or weeks thereafter while emergency repairs and cleaning took place. Class plaintiffs sought damages for various alleged losses proximately caused by the flood, including, injury to their property, lost revenues, sales, profits, and goodwill, lost wages, tips, and commissions, lost inventory, and expenses incurred in obtaining alternate lodging.
the trial court dismissed the plaintiff's claim for strict liability, and they appealed to the Illinois Supreme Court. Held, for the defendants, that the trial court did not err in dismissing the plaintiff's strict liability claim. Said the court, we note class plaintiffs and Hartford's argument that pile driving is inherently or intrinsically dangerous. They reason that since pile driving produces uncontrollable vibrations and concussions similar to blasting, which courts generally consider to be inherently or intrinsically dangerous, then pile driving should likewise be subject to strict tort liability. See, e.g., Cincinnati Terminal Warehouses, Inc. v. Contractor, Inc., 324N.E.2D581, 582, Ohio App.1975, Collecting Cases. However, other courts have rejected this analogy, reasoning, in our opinion, the common factor, vibrations, is not sufficient to place the case under consideration in the same category as blasting cases. Machines, motors, and instrumentalities which cause vibrations are in such common use in present-day activities and the probability of damage from their use is so variable that the mere fact that all of them cause vibrations is not a reasonable basis for common classification for liability. There are many 86 strict liability versus negligence CH1 cases involving damage by vibrations set in motion by instrumentalities other than explosives, e.g., pile drivers, drills, pavement breakers, etc. The overwhelming majority require allegation and proof of negligence. Citations Trull v. Carolina, Virginia Welco, 264 NC 687, 69192, 142S.E.2D 622, 625, 1965 what is the analogy between in re Chicago flood litigation and Nichols v. Marsland, the NL case of the overflowing ornamental pools, Super at P26? What is the distinction between in re Chicago flood litigation and Rylands v. Fletcher, Super at P15? What is the distinction between in re Chicago flood litigation and Caporali v. C.W. Blakesley & Co., Super at P77? Did the Chicago flood accident happen because pile-driving vibrations are dangerous or because of some more basic cause? Was the city of Chicago responsible for the fact that its contractor drove piles in the wrong place? What is the analogy between in re-Chicago flood litigation and Maximin v. Rivera, the NL case of the asphalt truck that failed to yield the right-of-way, Super at P70? What is the analogy between in re Chicago flood litigation and Edwards v Post Transportation Co., Super at P80? Did both cases involve injuries that resulted from doing the activity in the wrong place? Could reasonable care have eliminated almost all of the risk in both cases? 14 Overzealous Striker In Pecan Shop of Springfield, Missouri, Inc. v Tri-State Motor Transit Co., 573 S.W.2D431, MO App 1978, the owner of land damaged when a tractor-trailer unit carrying dynamite exploded brought suit against the motor carrier to recover for damages. The defendant Tri-State Motor Transit Co. was a motor carrier licensed by the state of Missouri and the U.S. Department of Transportation. On September 14, 1970, the union employees of Tri-State went on strike. In the early morning hours of September 30, 1970, 
a tractor-trailer unit, owned by Tri-State and driven by its non-striking employee, John A. Galt, was transporting a load of dynamite, for shipper DuPont Company, from Joplin, Missouri, to a mining site at Boss, Missouri. As the unit was traveling on Interstate Highway 44 in Greene County, Missouri, it approached an overpass on which stood Bobby Schuler, one of the striking employees. Using a 3030 rifle, Schuler fired three shots at the unit, thereby causing a tremendous explosion which resulted in the death of Galt and the destruction of the unit. The explosion also caused heavy damage to nearby improved land owned by CH1 Strict Liability versus Negligence 87 The Plaintiff Pecan Shop of Springfield, Missouri, Inc., on which it conducted a restaurant and service station business. The plaintiff brought this action for damages against Tri-State and the Union. Prior to the trial plaintiff settled its claim against the Union. The amount of that settlement did not fully compensate the plaintiff for its damages, and the case proceeded to trial against the defendant Tri-State. The jury returned a verdict in favor of the defendant. The plaintiff appealed to the Missouri Court of Appeals on the ground that the trial court erred in failing to direct a verdict for plaintiff on the issue of liability. It argued that the doctrine of strict liability was applicable to the admitted facts and that the sole province of the jury was to determine the extent of the plaintiff's uncompensated damages and to render the appropriate award. The defendant argued that the trial court did not err in the manner claimed because the theory of strict liability does not apply to a common carrier engaged in transporting explosives, and further, that the cause of the explosion was the intervening criminal act of convicted murderer Bobby Schuler. Held, for the defendant, that the trial court did not err in entering judgment for the defendant on the jury's verdict. Said the court, witnesses for Tri-State testified that the nighttime movement of explosives was safer than daytime movement because of less traffic. Plaintiff, however, attempted to show that the risk of violence was lower during daytime. After the commencement of the strike Tri-State vehicles moved in convoys, usually accompanied by security guards as escorts. The FBI, the Highway Patrol, and local sheriffs, were informed of movements of the convoys. The unit driven by Galt was one of a two-unit convoy. Prior to its departure from Tri-State's premises at Joplin, the sheriffs of Lawrence County and Greene County were notified of the movement. This information was relayed to deputy sheriffs and other patrol officers. Several law enforcement vehicles were assigned the duty of protecting the convoy. There were six overpasses in Greene County and Deputy Sheriff Lindsay had checked the overpass used by Schuler a few minutes before the explosion occurred. Officer Lindsay was checking another overpass, a quarter of a mile away, when he heard the explosion. In submitting the case to the jury the court, at the instance of the plaintiff, gave two verdict directing instructions. Instruction number two, in essence, required a verdict in favor of the plaintiff if the jury found these facts, Tri-State operated a truck that carried dynamite, the 88 strict liability versus negligence CH1 dynamite exploded, such use by, Tri-State, of its property was unreasonable, and plaintiff sustained damage as a result. Instruction number 3 required the jury to return a verdict for the plaintiff if they found that plaintiff was damaged as a result of defendant's conduct in two alternative respects and if the jury found that such conduct was negligent. The alternative grounds were, 1, 
Tri-State operated its truck carrying dynamite at night when incidents of shooting were occurring at night and such truck could have been operated during the day, and, two, Tri-State operated its truck carrying dynamite at a time when it knew that such truck might be fired upon and could cause an explosion. Plaintiff argues that the transportation of dangerous commodities in interstate commerce by motor carrier requires a special certification by the Interstate Commerce Commission and that Tri-State, having sought that certification, exercised its free choice to transport explosives. Approximately 50% of Tri-State's business consists of the hauling of explosives, ammunition, and nuclear waste. Accordingly, says plaintiff, Tri-State should not be entitled to avail itself of those principles which exempt a common carrier from liability for injuries caused by the explosion of commodities in its custody where there is no showing that the carrier was negligent or maintained a nuisance. Plaintiff also argues that the acts of violence which antedated the explosion made the criminal conduct of Schuler foreseeable. Tri-State argues that plaintiff was accorded a decision on the issues of negligence and unreasonable use and that, under the instant facts, the doctrine of strict liability should not be invoked. Tri-State relies upon its status as a common carrier by motor vehicle as defined in 49 U.S.C.A. 303, A. 14 and seeks to avail itself of those principles of liability which pertain to the transportation of explosives by such carriers. Tri-State points out that the Restatement of Torts, 2nd, Volume 3, Chapter 21, 519524, A, contains certain principles concerning abnormally dangerous activities. Section 521 is to the effect that the rules as to strict liability for abnormally dangerous activities do not apply if the activity is carried on in pursuance of a public duty imposed upon the actor as a common carrier. Point four Tri-State advances the alternative for Section 522 of the Restatement of Torts, second, provides that one carrying on an abnormally dangerous activity is subject to strict liability for the resulting harm although it is caused by three enumerated unexpectable sources, one of which is innocent, negligent, or reckless conduct of a third person. CH1 Strict Liability versus Negligence 89 Argument that the criminal conduct of Schuler serves to exculpate it, even assuming that liability would otherwise attach. None of the foregoing arguments totally lacks appeal. Neither side, in their respective and excellent briefs, has cited any authority which is factually similar. This case, viewed in all of its aspects, seems to be one of first impression and the disposition of this appeal has not been free of difficulty. This court concludes that the trial court did not err in refusing to direct a verdict for the plaintiff. Counsel have cited no Missouri cases dealing with the liability of a transporter for damages caused by the explosion of dangerous substances in its custody. Missouri courts have dealt with the liability of persons who use explosives in blasting activities and with the liability of storers of dangerous substances. In order for this court to uphold plaintiff's contention it must adopt the minority view, exemplified by Siegler v. Coleman and Chavez v. Southern Pacific Transportation Co., 413 F sub 1203, ED Cal 1976, a case in which a common carrier was held liable when a trainload of bombs exploded, which refuses to recognize the general rule of non-liability of common carriers for explosions occurring in the absence of negligence and elements of nuisance. 
Plaintiff has cited no authority to support the view that a carrier which devotes most of its business to the transportation of explosives is entitled to less favorable consideration than the ordinary common carrier. In the absence of a clear legislative intent, the granting of a specific classification to a carrier should not create a liability where otherwise none exists. Further, this court would have to take the additional step, not taken by Siegler or Chavez, of invoking the doctrine of absolute liability where the undisputed evidence shows that the explosion was caused by the criminal act of a third person. This it is unwilling to do. Plaintiff's principal point has no merit. What is the distinction between Pecan Shop of Springfield, Missouri, and Siegler v. Coleman, Super at P62? 15 Murder Mystery Weekend In Tom Allen v. Marriott Corp., 845 F.Sup. 33, D. Massachusetts 1994, a member of an acting troupe and a hotel guest together brought suit against a hotel owner and a travel service for burn injuries sustained by both of them at the hotel while they were viewing a fire-eating act. However, a caveat to 522 reads, the Institute expresses no opinion as to whether the fact that the harm is done by an act of a third person that is not only deliberate but also intended to bring about the harm, relieves from liability one who carries on an abnormally dangerous activity. 90 Strict Liability versus Negligence CH1 The defendant Colette Travel Service, Inc., booked the other defendant's Marriott Hotel in Westboro, Massachusetts, for a murder mystery weekend in which actors from an acting troupe would play out a murder mystery and guests would try to solve it. On the evening of August 29, 1988, after a dinner provided to mystery tour guests in the defendant Marriott's hotel, the defendant Mansfield, a member of the hired acting troupe, became engulfed in flames while attempting to perform a fire-eating act. The plaintiff Robert Tom Allen, a fellow actor, ran to the stage to help Mansfield and, in the process, suffered burns. At some point during the defendant Mansfield's struggle to extinguish the flames, he kicked over a can of lighter fluid which spilled across the stage, ignited, and caused burns to the plaintiff Belmont, who was both a hotel guest and client of the murder mystery weekend. Besides their negligence cause of action, the plaintiffs alleged that the defendant Marriott Corp. was strictly liable because the defendant Manfield's fire-eating act constituted an abnormally dangerous activity. The defendant Marriott Corp. moved for summary judgment on this issue. Held for the defendant Marriott Corp., that it was entitled to summary judgment on the plaintiff's strict liability count. Said the court, in the Clark Aiken Co. v. Cromwell Wright Co., Inc., 367 Massachusetts 70, 78 and 7, 323 and.e.2d 876, 1975, Massachusetts explicitly adopted the Rylands v. Fletcher, LR1EX265, 279, 1866, Formula of Strict Liability for Ultra-Hazardous Activity. That formula clearly requires an escape of the dangerous activity from defendant's property onto that of another. ID at 7475, 323N.E.2D876. The question for this court is whether the escape requirement for imposition of strict liability, as announced in Clark Aiken, remains the law of Massachusetts. At least one federal court in this district has implied that it is not.
in Wellesley Hills Realty Trust v. Mobile Oil Corporation, 747F.Sup. 93, D. Massachusetts 1990, the court stated, the original articulation of the rule in Rylands anticipated that such harm would be caused by the escape of the danger from the actor's land. Of course, as the rule developed, courts applied it to situations which did not involve an escape from the land. For example, an individual who conducts an abnormally dangerous activity will be strictly liable to persons who come on the land for injury to their person. CH1 Strict Liability versus Negligence 91 ID at 102. Nevertheless, this court's duty is to determine the current state of the law in Massachusetts. The most direct evidence of that comes from the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court, the SJC. In Clark Aiken, the SJC stated that Delano v. Mothers Super MKT Inc., 340 Massachusetts 293, 163 N.E.2D 920, 1960, was not a strict liability case because the plaintiff in that case fell on ice on defendant's property. Therefore, the SJC stated, T here was no escape onto property of another which would bring that case within the Rylands Doctrine. Clark Aikens, 367 Massachusetts at 78 and 7, 323 N.E.2D 876. This court has found no cases in which the SJC has modified or rejected that general statement of the law. This court therefore concludes that a Massachusetts court would not allow a claim of strict liability in this case where there was no escape of a dangerous instrumentality from Marriott's property. Marriott's motion for summary judgment on the claim of strict liability therefore will be allowed. The same court held that the travel agency that organized the murder mystery weekend was also not strictly liable for the same reason, no escape. See Tom Allen v. Marriott Corp., 880 F sub 74, D Massachusetts 1995. What is the distinction between Tom Allen v. Marriott Corp. and Coos v. Roth, Supra at P5? How does Tom Allen v. Marriott Corp. limit Siegler v. Coleman, Supra at P62? Did an escape in the legal sense occur in Siegler? 16 Radioactive Emissions In Bennett v. Mollenkrot, Inc., 698S.W.2D854, MOAP 1985, Cert. Denied, 476US1176. 1986, the plaintiffs were neighbors of the defendant's radiopharmaceutical processing factory. They alleged injuries to their physical and mental health from exposure to radioactive emissions released from the factory. Held, for the plaintiffs, that if the plaintiffs could allege medically diagnosable injuries or illnesses, their complaint would state a good cause of action for strict liability in tort. See also State Department of Environmental Protection v. Ventron Corporation, 94 NJ 473, 468 A.2D 150, 1983, corporations that had dumped mercury into a creek were strictly liable under the principle of Rylands v. Fletcher. Additional cases are collected in annotation, tort liability for non-medical radiological harm, 73A.L.R.4TH582, 1989.
92 Strict Liability versus Negligence CH1 What is the analogy between Bennett v. Mollenkrot, Inc., and Luthringer v. Moore, Supra at P71? 17 Rocket Testing In Smith v. Lockheed Propulsion Co., 56 Calories RPTR 128, CT App 1967, the plaintiffs owned a boys' camp in the Potrero Valley. One of their principal assets was a well that over the years had consistently produced high-quality water. In 1961, the defendant acquired approximately 9,100 acres in Potrero Valley, one half of it from its predecessor, Grand Central Rocket Co., for the purpose of testing rocket motors. A portion of the land bordered the plaintiff's property on three sides. In early 1962, the defendant unsuccessfully sought to acquire the plaintiff's ranch, at which time the defendant's counsel told the plaintiff, we have to have your land before we can test. The plaintiffs refused to sell. On May 12, the defendant proceeded with the scheduled test firing of a 120-inch solid-fuel applied research rocket motor of three segments, reputedly the largest solid-fuel rocket motor ever to be test-fired prior to that date. One plaintiff, who was on the sun deck of one of his buildings at the time of the test, felt a very strong vibration. A witness who was on the plaintiff's property testified that there was a rumbling, similar to an earthquake taking place, which lasted five or six minutes. Another witness who was in Beaumont recalled that the earth tremor was similar to that which one would sense when a heavy truck passed by. Immediately following the test, the plaintiff inspected his property but found no damage to any structures. Water, which was being pumped from the well into the swimming pool, was clear throughout the period of the test, but at test plus 80 minutes the pumped water became muddy. The plaintiffs were never again able to get potable water from their land despite their digging another well. The trial court dismissed the plaintiff's complaint, but the California Supreme Court reversed. Said the court, in our opinion, defendant's activity must be classed as ultra-hazardous. The solid-fuel rocket motor was the largest ever tested to that date. Test-firing such a device is not a matter of common occurrence. The fact that defendant found it necessary to acquire 9,100 acres for its purposes, and at one time told plaintiffs it needed their property in order to conduct the test, is evidence of its recognition of the risk inherent in the undertaking despite the exercise of due care. In these circumstances, public policy calls for strict liability. Luthring or V. Moore, Supra, 31 calories 2D 489, 500, Rest, Torts, 520. CH1 Strict Liability versus Negligence 93 Additional cases are collected in annotation, liability for injury or damage caused by rocket testing or firing, 29A.L.R.3D566, 1970 and sub-1989. What is the analogy between Smith v. Lockheed Propulsion Co. and Caporali v. C.W. Blakesley & Co., Supra at P77? Between Smith v. Lockheed Propulsion Co. and Sullivan v. Dunham, Supra at P43? 18 Giant Rock Crushing Machine In Great Lakes Dredging and Dockco v. Seagull Operating Corp., 460 so. 2D510, 1984, the plaintiff sued the defendant for the noise caused by the defendant's giant rock crushing machine. On or about June 25, 1981, 
the defendant Great Lakes placed its giant rock-crushing machine on a state-owned portion of the public beach adjacent to the Plaintiff Seagull Hotel, approximately 650 feet from the corner of the hotel. The machine was placed there pursuant to a contract which the defendant Great Lakes had with the United States Corps of Army Engineers as part of a large-scale beach restoration project covering the beach area located south of 21st Street on Miami Beach. The machine crushed rock and sand which were pumped into it by pipeline from offshore, pulverized the material to make it finer, and then deposited the sand on the beach. Aside from its alleged unsightliness, the plaintiff Seagull's chief complaint against this machine was its excessive noise. No claim was made that the machine posed a physical danger to life or limb of any person in the area, and no claim was made that the noise or vibrations caused by the machine posed a physical danger to the structure of any building or property in the area. The complaint was that the machine created a continuous and intense noise which was so disturbing to the plaintiff's hotel guests that these guests cancelled their hotel reservations in large numbers resulting in over $100,000 loss of business to the plaintiff. The plaintiff Seagull originally sought an injunction against the placement of the rock-crushing machine near its hotel, in an action which it brought in the circuit court for the 11th Judicial Circuit of Florida. The trial court denied this injunction, after an evidentiary hearing, without prejudice to a possible claim for damages. The plaintiff Seagull then amended its complaint to state a cause of action for damages sounding in strict liability for ultra-hazardous or abnormally dangerous activity. The defendant Great Lakes filed a general denial answer and set up certain affirmative defenses not relevant here. Based on the testimony adduced at the injunction hearing, plus a supporting affidavit, the plaintiff Seagull moved for a summary judgment on the issue of liability. The basis of the motion was that the 94 strict liability versus negligence CH1 undisputed material facts in the record showed that the defendant Great Lakes was liable to the plaintiff under the Rylands v. Fletcher doctrine of strict liability for ultra-hazardous or abnormally dangerous activity. The trial court heard and granted the motion, the defendant Great Lakes appealed. Held, for the defendant, that the trial court erred in granting the plaintiff's motion for summary judgment. Said the court, W.E. have no difficulty in concluding that the doctrine of Rylands v. Fletcher imposing strict liability for ultra-hazardous or abnormally dangerous activity, has no application in this case, and, that, accordingly, the order granting partial summary judgment for the plaintiff Seagull must be reversed. We reach this conclusion for two reasons. First, there is utterly no showing in this record that the rock-crushing machine poses any physical danger to any person or property in the immediate area where it is situated on the beach, much less that the danger posed is ultra-hazardous or abnormally dangerous. Indeed, the plaintiff Seagull's sole complaint with this machine is that it is excessively noisy. This being so, it is plain that the operation of the rock-crushing machine was not in any sense an ultra-hazardous or abnormally dangerous activity within the meaning of the Rylands v. Fletcher doctrine. Second, to the extent that the rock-crushing machine might conceivably be said to be engaged in ultra-hazardous or abnormally dangerous activity in that the machine could perhaps spew out loose rocks, topple over, cause physical tremors in the ground, or otherwise physically injure persons or property in the area, it is plain that the damages suffered by the plaintiff Seagull were entirely outside the abnormal risk of physical harm which this machine could possibly create. The rock-crushing machine did not, in fact, 
spew out loose rocks, topple over, or cause physical tremors in the ground, indeed, it caused no physical damage whatever to persons or property in the area. All it did was create an excessive and irritating noise which caused the plaintiff Seagull's hotel guests to check out in large numbers, resulting in a loss of business to the said plaintiff. Like the killing of the young mink in Foster v. Preston Milko, Supra, the damages suffered by the plaintiff Seagull were entirely outside the abnormal risk of physical harm posed by the defendant's alleged ultra-hazardous or abnormally dangerous activity. This being so, there can be no recovery for these damages under the Rylands v. Fletcher doctrine. CH1 Strict Liability versus Negligence 95 What is the analogy between Great Lakes Dredging and Docco v. Seagull Operating Corp. and Rogers v. Elliott, the NL Church Bell case, Supra at 61? What is the distinction between Great Lakes Dredging and Bennett v. Mollenkrot, Inc., Supra at P91? The analogy between Great Lakes and Tom Allen v. Marriott Corp.? The distinction between Great Lakes and Smith v. Lockheed Propulsion Co.? 96 Strict Liability versus Negligence CH1 Appendix Table 1-2, Strict Liability Paradigms with Cases Liability ATI, Accidental Trespassery Invasion, Rylands v. Fletcher, EXCHCH 1866, Defendants Private Reservoir Burst and Flooded Plaintiffs Coal Mine Below, Defendants Themselves Lack Knowledge of Risk, P15, Tenant v. Goldwyn, KB 1705, Defendants cesspit leaked into plaintiff's neighboring cellar, P.23, Bunyak v. Yancey, FLA App 1983, Defendants Manure Lagoon overflowed into. Plaintiff's Ponds also UA, P31, McGregor v. Barton Sand and Gravel, Inc., or 1983, Defendants Uphill Ponds leaked water and debris onto plaintiff's downhill property also UA, P32, Davis v. Niagara Falls Tower Co., NY 1902, Plaintiff's Museum Struck by Ice Falling from Defendant's Novel Observatory Tower also UA, P44, Luthring v. Moore, Cal 1948, Defendant's Fumigation Gas Escape to Next Door and Her Plaintiff also UA, P71, Langan v. Volocopters, Inc., Wash. 1977, Defendants areola sprayed pesticides drifted across property line and spoiled plaintiff's organic crop also UA, P72, Bennett v. Mollenkrot, Inc., MO App 1985, Defendants pharmaceutical factory leaked radioactive emissions onto plaintiff's adjoining properties also UA, P91. No liability CU, common usage, Von v. Taft Bailey. EXCHCH 1860, Defendant's Railroad Locomotive Spark Destroyed Plaintiff's Adjoining Woods, P1, Boynton v. Fox Denver Theaters, Inc., Colorado 1950, Defendant's Popcorn Box Fire, Started in Alley, Spread into Plaintiff's Adjoining Garage No Liability, P6, Christ v. Civil Air Patrol, Inc., NYSUP. CT 1967, Defendant's Airplane Crashed Onto Plaintiff's Lawn, P13, Rickards v. Lothian, PC Austro 1913, Third Party Stopped Up Defendant's Sink and Flooded Plaintiff's Store Also VMS, P29, WH Smith & Son, Limited v. DAW, CA 1987, Defendant's Sewage Pipe Burst and Flooded Plaintiff's Premises, P30, 
Walker Shoe Store v. Howard's Hobby Shop, Iowa 1982, Defendant's Heating Oil Tank Burst, and Fire Spread to Neighboring Plaintiff's Property, P34, Delano v. Mother's Super. Market, Incorporated, Massachusetts 1960, Plaintiff Tripped on Defendant's Icy Parking Lot Also PPR and NLPA, P34, Transco PLC v. Stockport Metropolitan Borough Council, HL 2003, Defendant's Burst Water Pipe Undermined Plaintiff's Gas Pipeline, P35, Losi v. Buchanan, NY 1873, Defendant's Steam Boiler Exploded and Spread Shrapnel and Destruction to Plaintiff's Neighboring Building, P39, Bolton v. Stone, HL 1951, Cricket Ball Escaped from Defendant's Cricket Field and Struck Plaintiff. Standing by Her Garden Gate, P59, Rogers v. Elliott, Massachusetts 1888, Defendant's Church Bell sent CH1 Strict Liability versus Negligence 97 Liability No Liability Hypersensitive Plaintiff into Convulsions Also PPR, P61, Fowler v. Lanning, QB 1959, Defendant Shot Plaintiff, His Hunting Companion Also NLPA, P68, Miller v. Civil Constructors, Incorporated, Ill App 1995, Plaintiff Injured by Stray Bullet from Defendant's Firing Range Also NLPA, P69, Warner v. Norfolk and Western. Re, WD Virginia 1991, Defendant's Train Struck Plaintiff's Truck at Grade Crossing Also PPR, P70, New Meadows Holding Co. v. Washington Water Power Co., Washington 1984, Defendant's gas pipeline leaked and seven years later blew up plaintiff's house also a and NLPA, P75. Mu, Mutual Use, Carstairs v. Taylor, EXCH 1871, plaintiff's rice damaged by water escaping from defendant's rain barrel, shared with plaintiff, which rats had eaten through, P24, Rickards v. Lothian, PC Austral 1913. Third party stopped up defendant's sink and flooded plaintiff's store also CU, P29, Albig v. Municipal Authority, PA Super 1985, defendant's public reservoir burst and flooded plaintiff's basements, P35. VMS, Vis Major or Sabotage, Nichols v. Marsland, CA 1876, defendant's ornamental pools overflowed during storm and destroyed plaintiff's bridges, P26, Rickards v. Lothian, PC Austral 1913, third party stopped up defendant's sink and flooded plaintiff's store also CU, P29, Pecan Shop of Springfield, Missouri, Inc. v. Tri-State Motor Transit Co., MO App 1978, Stryker blew up defendant's dynamite truck, damaging plaintiff's adjacent restaurant and gas station, P86. 98 Strict Liability vs. Negligence CH1 Liability UA, Ultra Hazardous Activity, Coos v. Roth, or 1982, Defendants Intentionally Set Grass Field Fire Spread Across Property Line and Destroyed Plaintiff's Adjoining Crop, P5, Gil v. Swan, NY 1822, Defendant Ascended in a Balloon Over Rural Section of Old New York and Attracted Large Crowd That Damaged Plaintiff's Garden Crops When Defendant Made Emergency Landing on Plaintiff's Farm, P10, Bunyak v. Yancey, FLA App 1983.
Defendant's manure lagoon overflowed into plaintiff's ponds also ATI, P31, McGregor v. Barton Sand and Gravel, Incorporated, or 1983, Defendant's uphill ponds leaked water and debris onto plaintiff's downhill property also ATI, P32, Powell v. Fall, QB 1880, Spark from Defendant's Road Train Ignited Plaintiff's Premises, P42, Sullivan v. Dunham, NY1900, Plaintiff's Intestate Hit by Tree That Defendant's Blasted, P43, Davis v. Niagara Falls Tower Co., NY1902, Plaintiff's Museum Struck by Ice Falling from Defendant's Novel Observatory Tower Also ATI, P44, Raynham Chemical Works, Limited v. Belvedere Fish Guanoco, HL1921, Defendant's Factory for Producing Highly Explosive War Munitions Blew Up Damaging Plaintiff's Adjoining Property, P50, Musgrove v. Pandelis, CA1919, Defendant's Novel Car Blew Up, Ignited Plaintiff's Apartment Above, P51, Cox Hill v. Forward, QBD1986, Plaintiff's Car Destroyed by Fire Started by Novel Liquefied Petroleum. Gas fuel system on defendant's Volvo, P52, no liability PPR, plaintiff participated in risk, Central Trust and Savings Bank v. Toppert, IL App 1990, plaintiff's decedent, a blasting employee, killed by premature explosion of blast he himself was setting up, P45, Kent v. Gulf States Utilities, LA 1982, Plaintiff's decedent's aluminum rake touched defendant's power line and electrocuted him also NLPA, P52, Rogers v. Elliott, Massachusetts 1888, defendant's church bells sent. Hypersensitive plaintiff into convulsions also CU, P61, Warner v. Norfolk and Western Re, WD Virginia 1991, defendant's train struck plaintiff's truck at grade crossing also CU. P70, Palumbo v. Game and Freshwater Fish Commission, FLA App 1986, Alligator Bit Plaintiff who was recklessly swimming in defendant's alligator-infested lake also NLPA, P76. Uh, Unforeseeable Harm, Madsen v. East Jordan Irrigation Co., Utah 1942, Defendant's Blast incited plaintiff's mother minks to eat valuable young also HNR, P53, Cambridge Waterco v. Eastern Counties Leather PLC, HL 1993, Defendant's Industrial Solvent Drifted 173 Miles and Polluted Plaintiff's Well, P55. New Meadows Holding Co. v. Washington Water Power Co., Washington 1984, Defendant's Gas Pipeline Leaked and Seven Years Later Blew Up Plaintiff's House Also CU and NLPA, P75. HNR, Harm from Non-Ultra-Hazardous Risk, Madsen v. East Jordan Irrigation Co., Utah 1942, Defendant's Blast incited plaintiff's mother minks to eat valuable young also a, P53, Maximin v. Rivera, VI 1990, Defendant's Asphalt Truck Collided CH1 Strict Liability vs. Negligence 99 Liability Siegler v. Coleman, Washington 1972, Defendant's gasoline tanker truck exploded and killed plaintiff's deceased, P62, Luthring or V. Moore, Cal 1948, Defendant's fumigation gas escaped to next door. And her plaintiff also ATI, P71, Langan v. Volocopters, Incorporated, 
Washington 1977, defendants aerial sprayed pesticides drifted across property line and spoiled plaintiff's organic crop also ATI, P72, Copperali VCW Blakesley and Sons, Incorporated, Con 1961, defendant conducted massive pile driving operations across street from plaintiff's premises, and vibrations damaged plaintiff's building, P77, Bennett v. Mollenkrot, Incorporated, MO App 1985, Defendant's Pharmaceutical Factory. Leaked radioactive emissions onto plaintiff's adjoining properties also ATI, P91, Smith v. Lockheed Propulsion Co., Cal App 1967, Defendant's rocket test shook plaintiff's neighboring water well, destroying water supply, P92. No liability with plaintiff also PPR and NLPA, P70, in re-Chicago flood litigation, IL 1987, defendant city's contractor, which was a CO defendant, negligently breached tunnel wall under Chicago River and flooded plaintiff's Chicago Loop buildings also NLPA, P84, Great Lakes Dredging and Dotco VC Gull Operating Corp., FLA AP 1984, Defendant's giant rock-crushing machine disturbed plaintiff's hotel guests also NLPA, P93. NLPA, neither liability paradigm applies, Delano v. Mother's Supermarket, Incorporated, Massachusetts 1960, plaintiff tripped on defendant's icy parking lot also CUNPPR, P34, Kent v. Gulf States Utilities, LA 1982, Plaintiff's decedent's aluminum rake touched defendant's power line and electrocuted him also PPR, P52, Fowler v. Lanning, QB1959, defendant shot plaintiff, his hunting companion also CU, P68, Miller v. Civil Constructors, Incorporated, Ill App 1995, plaintiff injured by stray. Bullet from defendant's firing range also CU, P69, Maximin v. Rivera, VI 1990, defendant's asphalt truck collided with plaintiff also PPR and HNR, P70, New Meadows Holding Co. v. Washington Water Power Co., Washington 1984, defendant's gas pipeline leaked and seven years later blew up plaintiff's house also CUNA, P75, Palumbo v. Game and Freshwater Fish Commission, FLA App 1986, Alligator bit plaintiff who was recklessly swimming in defendant's alligator-infested lake. Also PPR, P76, Edwards v. Post Transportation Co., Cal App 1991, defendant delivered 100 strict liability versus negligence CH1 liability no liability sulfuric acid to wrong tank, which caused fumes that hurt plaintiff, P80, in re-Chicago flood litigation, IL 1987, Defendant City's contractor, which was a CO defendant, negligently breached tunnel wall under Chicago River and flooded plaintiff's Chicago Loop buildings also HNR, P84, Tom Allen v. Marriott Corp., D. Massachusetts 1994. Plaintiffs injured by fire-eating act at defendant's hotel, P89, Great Lakes Dredging and Dotco v. Seagull Operating Corp., FLA App 1984. Defendant's giant rock-crushing machine disturbed plaintiff's hotel guests also HNR, P93. CH1 Strict Liability vs. Negligence 101 Chapter 1 Strict Liability vs. Negligence. 1 Von V. Tapvale Re, 
AXCHCH 1860, Defendant's Railroad Locomotive Spark Destroyed Plaintiff's Adjoining Woods No Liability. One Notes on Von V. Tafvale Re, 3 Coos v. Roth, or 1982, Defendants Intentionally Set Grass Field Fire Spread Across Property Line and Destroyed Plaintiff's Adjoining Crop Liability, 5 Boynton v. Fox Denver Theaters, Incorporated, Colorado 1950, Defendants Popcorn Box Fire, Started in Alley, Spread into Plaintiff's Adjoining Garage No Liability, 6 Gil v. Swan, NY 1822, Defendant ascended in a balloon over rural section of Old New York and attracted large crowd that damaged Plaintiff's garden crops when Defendant made emergency landing on Plaintiff's farm liability. 10 Notes on Gil v. Swan, 12 Christ v. Civil Air Patrol, Inc., NY Sup. CT 1967, Defendant's airplane crashed onto Plaintiff's lawn no liability, 13 Rylands v. Fletcher, AXCHCH 1866, Defendant's private reservoir burst and flooded Plaintiff's coal mine below, Defendants themselves lacked knowledge of risk liability. 15 Notes on Rylands v. Fletcher, 18 Tenant v. Goldwyn, KB 1705, Defendant's cesspit leaked into Plaintiff's neighboring cellar liability, 23 Carstairs v. Taylor, AXCH 1871, Plaintiff's rice damaged by water escaping from Defendant's rain barrel, which rats had eaten through no liability, 24. Nichols v. Marsland, CA 1876, Defendant's ornamental pools overflowed during storm and destroyed Plaintiff's bridges no liability, 26 Rickards v. Lothian, PC Austral 1913, Third party stopped up Defendant's sink and flooded Plaintiff's store no liability, 29 W.H. Smith & Son, Limited v. Daw, CA 1987, Defendant's sewage pipe burst and flooded Plaintiff's premises no liability, 30 Bunyak v. Yancey, FLA App 1983, Defendant's manure lagoon overflowed into Plaintiff's puns liability, 31 McGregor v. Barton Sand & Gravel, Inc., or 1983, Defendants' uphill ponds leaked water and debris onto plaintiff's downhill property liability, 32 Walker Shoe. Store v. Howard's Hobby Shop, Iowa 1982, Defendants' heating oil tank burst, and fire spread to neighboring plaintiff's property no liability, 34 Delano v. Mother's Supermarket, Inc., Massachusetts 1960, Plaintiff tripped on defendants' icy parking lot no liability, 34 Albig v. Municipal Authority, PA Super 1985, Defendant's Public Reservoir Burst and Flooded Plaintiff's Basements No. Liability, 35 Transco PLC v. Stockport Metropolitan Borough Council, HL 2003, Defendant's Burst Water Pipe Undermined Plaintiff's Gas Pipeline No Liability, 35 Losi v. Buchanan, NY 1873, Defendant's steam boiler exploded and spread shrapnel and destruction to plaintiff's neighboring building no liability. 39 Notes on Losi v. Buchanan, 41 Powell v. Fall, QB 1880, Spark from Defendant's Road Train Ignited Plaintiff's Premises Liability, 42 Sullivan v. Dunham, NY 1900, Plaintiff's Intestate Hit by Tree That Defendant's Blasted Liability. 43 Davis v. Niagara Falls Tower Co., NY 1902, 
Plaintiff's Museum Struck by Ice Falling from Defendant's Novel Observatory Tower Liability, 44 Central Trust and Savings Bank v. Toppert, Ill App 1990, Plaintiff's Decedent, a blasting employee, killed by premature explosion of blast he himself was setting up no. Liability, 45 West v. Bristol Tramways Co., CA 1908, Plaintiff's adjacent nursery plants unforeseeably damaged by creosote fumes coming from defendant's creosote tracks liability. 46 Raynham Chemical Works, Limited v. Belvedere Fish Guanoco, HL 1921, Defendant's factory for producing highly explosive war munitions blew up damaging plaintiff's adjoining property liability, 5102 Strict Liability v. Negligence CH1 Musgrove v. Pandelis, CA 1919, Defendant's novel car blew up, ignited plaintiff's apartment above liability. 51 Coxhill v. Forward, QBD 1986, plaintiff's car destroyed by fire started by novel liquefied petroleum gas fuel system on defendant's Volvo liability, 52 Kent v. Gulf States Utilities, LA 1982, plaintiff's decedent's aluminum rake touched defendant's power line and electrocuted him no liability, 52 Madsen v. East Jordan Irrigation Co., Utah 1942, defendants blast incited plaintiff's mother minx to eat valuable young. No liability, 53 Cambridge Water Co. v. Eastern Counties Leather PLC, HL 1993, defendants industrial solvent drifted 173 miles and polluted plaintiff's well no liability, 55 Bolton v. Stone, HL 1951, Cricket ball escaped from defendant's cricket field and struck plaintiff standing by her garden gate no liability. 59 Notes on Bolton v. Stone, 60 Rogers v. Elliott, Massachusetts 1888, defendant's church bell sent hypersensitive plaintiff into convulsions no liability, 61 Siegler v. Coleman, Washington 1972, defendant's gasoline tanker truck exploded and killed plaintiff's deceased liability. 62 Notes on Siegler v. Coleman, 65 Fowler v. Lanning, QB 1959, Defendant shot plaintiff, his hunting companion no liability, 68 Miller v. Civil Constructors, Incorporated, Ill App 1995, Plaintiff injured by stray bullet from defendant's firing range no liability. 69 Warner v. Norfolk and Western Re, WD Virginia 1991, Defendant's train struck plaintiff's truck at grade crossing no liability, 70 Maximin v. Rivera, VI 1990, defendant's asphalt truck collided with plaintiff no liability, 70 Luthringer v. Moore, Cal 1948, defendant's fumigation gas escaped to next door and her plaintiff liability, 71 Langan v. Volocopters, Incorporated, Washington 1977, Defendant's areola sprayed pesticides drifted across property line and spoiled plaintiff's organic crop liability, 72 New Meadows Holding Co. v. Washington Water Power Co., Washington 1984, defendant's gas pipeline leaked and seven years later blew up plaintiff's house no liability. 75 Palumbo v. Game and Freshwater Fish Commission, FLA App 1986, Alligator bid plaintiff who was recklessly swimming in defendant's alligator infested lake no liability, 76 Caporali v. C.W. Blakesley and Sons, Incorporated, Con 1961, defendant conducted.
massive pile-driving operations across street from plaintiff's premises, and vibrations damaged plaintiff's building liability, 77 Edwards v. Post Transportation Co., Cal App 1991, defendant delivered sulfuric acid to wrong tank, which caused fumes that hurt plaintiff no liability, 80 in re-Chicago flood litigation, ill 1987, defendant city's contractor, which was a CO defendant, negligently breached. Tunnel wall under Chicago River and flooded plaintiff's Chicago Loop buildings no liability, 84 Pecan Shop of Springfield, Missouri, Inc. v. Tri-State Motor Transit Co., MO App 1978, striker blew up defendant's dynamite truck, damaging plaintiff's adjacent restaurant and gas station no liability, 86 Tom Allen v. Marriott Corp., D. Massachusetts 1994, plaintiff's injured by Fire Eating Act at Defendant's Hotel No Liability, 89 Bennett v. Mollencrot, Inc., MO App 1985, Defendant's Pharmaceutical Factory Leaked Radioactive Emissions Onto Plaintiff's Adjoining Properties Liability, 91 Smith v. Lockheed Propulsion Co., Cal App 1967, Defendant's Rocket Test Shook Plaintiff's Neighboring Water Well, Destroying Water Supply Liability, 92 Great. Lakes Dredging and Dockco v. Seagull Operating Corp., FLA App 1984, Defendant's Giant Rock Crushing Machine Disturbed Plaintiff's Hotel Guests No Liability, 93.